You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Recently, 20th Century Fox had two very heavy ideas. First, make a film called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Second, get Russ Meyer to write, produce, and direct it. You'll meet three girls, young, beautiful, talented, a tight trio that was the heart and soul of a rock group. Life was sweet, man, but not enough. The whole world was out there just waiting, and the beat inside pushed them to where it's happening. Hollywood, USA. Yeah, it happened all right. They got hooked on a non-stop merry-go-round where the only ticket you need is success. Be a winner, man, or forget it. When they made that first party, it was like too late. The whole thing was moving, reaching out, and they dug it. Whites, yellows, and reds were more than just colors, man. They were it. The magic dream pills. The chicks were wild and groovy. The studs were cool and cruel. The eyes so warm, the smile so friendly. But watch the teeth. They bite deep. Faces, so many faces, calling, begging, help me, love me, save me. Don't listen. If you hear them, you've had it. Come on, open your mouth wider. Here, taste. Life, man, life. Like it? Hell no. Tough. It's a one-way trip all the way down. <laughs> One little girl turns her back on truth and love. She'll have to make it with pain and eyes that cry rivers. The second finds her heart in the arms of another chick. Don't look for evil in your brother's eye. The third bird finds her man. It's good, very good, but she almost blew it before she learned that simple truth. The boys are here, too. One so sure that love was enough. It isn't. You gotta fight for it or it'll just get up and walk on Another cat's hungry, bread and chicks, make them pay. Love is free, but sex isn't. Don't look back, you won't like the view. And what about you, man? What's your thing? You talk weird. What do all those words mean? Who are you? Don't look at me, man, you're not real. It's all here. Love, rape, murder, dope, grass, abortion, suicide. Something for everybody. Now hold it, man. Don't close your mind. This is what living is all about. Now and then. The people who make Beyond the Valley of the Dolls come alive are the largest introduction of fresh young talent ever presented in a major motion picture. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is not a sequel. There's never been anything like it before. If you've been waiting for something new, waiting for a film to shake you into the freaked out, mind-blowing scene of right now, then come and see it, man, and find out why it's called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls from 20th Century Fox. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back with me again is Ms. Heather Drain. This is our episode, and it's freaking me out. Also with us this week is Ms. Jordan Blossie. Come into my den, said the spider, etc. This week we are looking at the 1970 film from director Russ Meyer, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Written by Roger Ebert, the film is a follow-up and parody of Valley of the Dolls, no matter what the opening card may say. Kind of like Meyer's Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, which was the subject of last week's episode, this is the story of a trio of women. Instead of go-go dancers, these are three musicians, Kelly, Petronella, and Casey, members of the Kelly Affair, soon to be redubbed as the Carrie Nations by the one and only Ronnie Z-Man Barzell. They head out to Los Angeles where Kelly contacts her aunt Susan Lake, who introduces the young woman into a wild world of endless parties and high-tone melodrama. So we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode. Not that I think it really matters, but just be warned, you know, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is ridiculously easy to get on DVD. In fact, both Criterion and Arrow Video in the UK just put out a release of it. So if you haven't seen the movie... You don't want it ruined for you. Go out, pick up the disc. We will still be here. So, Heather, when was the first time you saw Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and what did you think? The first time I saw Beyond the Valley of the Dolls um, 
was strangely enough, probably, I want to say 2008 and 2009. And I say strangely because looking back on it, I can't believe it took me so long to get like a copy of it. But um, of course, it's one of those things where, uh, I, I mean, I knew I'd love it because I'd seen some of Meyer's earlier works and I love Russ Meyer. He's one of my favorite directors. And of course, the minute the film unfurled uh, before me, it was instant, instant love. I absolutely just thought it was, I thought it was art. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was batshit. I just thought it was everything that you could kind of want uh, in a Russ Meyer film or in any film, really. I, I, I think it's absolutely stupendous. How about you, Jordan? I saw it. I remember when I saw it. It was 2013 because it was the week before Roger Ebert had passed away. That's how I remember it. I was 17. I was still in high school. I'm, I'm 21 now in college as we record. And uh, I had heard about the movie for uh, for a couple of years. I'd wanted to see it, but hadn't been able to get a hold of it. But then over time, I got more interested in it, had the same reaction that Heather did. I I loved it. It was it was very it was fast. It was crazy. Uh, just absurd. And every single minute of it is entertaining. And it's since become one of my favorite movies. I think I first saw this one in college. Uh, we had a lot of uh, campus cinema societies, and they were doing a double feature of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, very much like these two episodes that are kicking off 2017 for the projection booth. And I have since seen other Russ Meyer films, but I kind of go back to these two as my first loves because they were my first exposure. And I have to say, seeing... Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, it was probably not the best print. It probably was even like a 16-millimeter version. But to see that with an audience and just with people of college age, it was amazing. And this movie is just hysterical. And by hysterical, I mean that in pretty much every sense of the word. I mean, it, it just takes you and grabs you and throws you into this world. And I get breathless while I am watching this film because it just takes you for a ride and just throttles you as you're watching this. I mean, the movie starts with the end credits, you know, it, 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 it's just, you know, we, we've seen other avant-garde films here, but this one begins with the end, shows you how this whole thing ends up. You have no idea who these characters are. You have no idea what's going on. You don't know why they're playing uh, kind of a rendition of Deutschland über Alice over part of this. <laughs> and to go from that and and have one of the characters putting a gun into another character's mouth in this very kind of uh, fellatio type of, of thing, and then to cut from that gunshot to a woman screaming and immediately you're in a uh, a rock music video basically of this amazing band the kelly uh, affair doing uh find it and it just is carrying on and then from that you go into this amazing montage which talks about takes you from where they're playing at, um at this like high school dance all the way out to California again with uh, it's almost another music video. And by the end of this, you're just like, Oh my God, is this movie ever going to let up? And really it doesn't. I mean, there are very few moments in this film where you can actually catch your breath. I, I think it's telling that all three of our initial impressions are so similar. And Mike, you nailed it. That cut from when they go from, you know, which we find out later on is Z man about to shoot uh, Erica Gavin's character, Roxanne. 
that cut gets, still gives me chills. I've seen this movie like five times at least. And every time it goes to immediately cuts to Dolly Reed just belting, or actually it's Len Carey belting through the, the image of Dolly Reed, but it's still, it's a brilliant, brilliant cut. I mean, this film, I don't know why it's not studied in more film classes like, say, Battleship Potemkin is or something like that, because the cutting, the way this film is cut and pieced together is is absolute, absolute art. I mean, I think all of Meyer's stuff is, is beautifully cut and edited, but um, Beyond the Valley Dolls is just it's exquisite. I mean, we were talking a little bit offline earlier as far as the the whole idea of where some of these shots are like during that montage you know first off you get the displaced ending of the film at the beginning of the film but then in that montage where you've got the dolly reed character kelly mcnamara speaking to um the david gurian character harris allsworth and they're talking about moving out to la and a lot of these shots that you're getting are going to show up later on in the film and it's like if you were to to try to chart out where everything is from in the movie because there are other places where things just kind of get displaced whether they are you know flashbacks or flash forwards or just you know kind of almost it i don't want to say random but just like these flashes of images from other parts of the film mixed into uh, the the linear story of the movie. I mean, it, it would just be an amazing thing to see where all of these pieces come from and where they move to. Because, yeah, it, it is just. Uh, you're right. This is like the uh, the Odessa step sequence. It's just like, yeah, people should be studying how Meyer was able to put together these things. Because I mean, there are so many times when you're watching this where there the the shot sequences are what like two seconds maybe less i mean it's some of these things are fewer than 24 frames when you get into some of these flashes that he has inside of the movie oh absolutely i mean the one that always stuck out to me in fact the first time i remember the very first night i watched this film this this shot immediately stood out i mean it's so quick but it's like you see a woman's foot stepping on an egg and breaking it which to me is like such an almost like surrealist image. I mean, you think of like eggs, you think of like Dali, you know, or like Hodorowski and Fando Elise. You don't really think of, of, I mean, Russ is, I I will defend him as an art house director via Grindhouse. uh, But I mean, he was not a surrealist. I mean, some of his stuff is so insane that it becomes kind of surrealist (laughs) or borderline, but never like, I think intentionally, like in the European school, certainly. But that image is just like, whoa, what are we looking at? You know, you have like, Kelly's aunt and this diaphanous sheer, you know, violet robe running in a field and yeah, <laughs> just all of this, all of this just amazing, you know, quilt. What's great about Russ Meyer, one of the great things about him is he doesn't pretend to be some sort of intellectual. There's nothing pretentious about uh, this movie or, or his other movies that I've seen, like Faster Pussycat. Like what you see is what you get. Though there's still a lot to um, analyze in terms of his uh, technicality as a filmmaker and even like how the stories uh, unfolded. Russ was such a purely American filmmaker. Like he is completely apple pie, meat and potatoes, you know, jocular men, you know, curvy women. Very little to know. I mean, because most, you know, a lot of American auteurs, um, usually have some kind of European influence and they're mm-hmm. somewhere nestled in their work with Russ. I mean, I think there's little to none. I think he was just completely a true, like American, you know, filmmaker and, uh, a, God bless him. There, there's never going to be another like that man. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
it took me maybe a dozen years between seeing Beyond the Valley of the Dolls for the first time to actually going back and watching Valley of the Dolls, which is you know the completely the opposite experience of America when Valley of the Dolls came out as a book and came out as a film. You know there were pretty big hits. I mean Valley of the Dolls, the book was a sensation, and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was this you know oh my gosh they're trying to make a sequel to Beyond the, to Valley of the Dolls and it was this kind of scandalous thing, and I could give two shits about Valley of the Dolls. It took me forever to watch it. Then when I saw it, finally, I was like, okay, I can kind of see what it's what the thing is about, but I love the, the send-up of it more than I like the original. What's interesting about Valley of the Dolls versus Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, you could look at both films, is that it's basically the difference between old Hollywood and new Hollywood, though, like, the tail end of old Hollywood. And again, I couldn't get into Valley of the Dolls when I saw it. I had seen Beyond first and seeing Valley of the Dolls, I I just yeah, I couldn't get into it. I didn't like the music. I the dialogue just rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, I understand its appeal. I have friends that really love that movie. Consider it like the showgirls of its time, but I just I couldn't enjoy it. I really couldn't. Well, that's the thing is I think that it really plays into that whole idea of camp and whether it was intended to be campy, which I don't think it was or ended up being kind of a camp classic. Whereas with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, I mean, everything is turned up to not just 11. I mean, you're going up to 35 with this film because the dialogue is off the charts. You know, we already talked about the editing style. We talked about some of these smash cuts that he has inside of there that either emphasize jokes or become jokes by the way that he cuts these things, that Russmeyer cuts these. But yeah, that dialogue is just off the wall and it, it is wonderful in that way i mean some of these lines i mean before we started i had to uh, hold heather back from just starting like a quote fest because <laughs> it is just rich with so many amazing lines it's just little throwaway lines are something that you want to quote and want to work into your vocabulary so true i mean i would actually say this film takes it to 11d like i think it's 11 <laughs> I mean, it it goes beyond any any real actual factual number in science and math. It takes it's its own stratosphere. Gosh, yeah, the dialogue, uh, which we definitely before before we when we get past the dialogue, we definitely got to touch upon the music because the soundtrack is you. Oh, I love those songs. Oh my god! Well, I think that's the thing that floored me. One of the many things that floored me when I first saw it was how good. Because usually, when you have like somebody playing a rock band in a like in a Hollywood film, uh, mm-hmm. which as much as Russ was like a big indie director, this was his first studio film with all the studio crutchimonts and all that, and 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 that. But the music, you know, between the Strawberry Alarm Clock, but also the other musicians they got in, including the aforementioned Link Harry, are just spot on. It's it's legitimately good. It feels authentic. It doesn't feel just like you're watching a Scooby-Doo version of a rock band in the late 60s, you know, or a dragnet version of a hippie. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I mean, granted, the, the, the hippie perspective and everything in this film is a little altered because it's Russ and it's Ebert. These are two cats <laughs> not at all tied to uh, the counterculture but that's, I think that's kind of what almost it almost works to its benefit. It's because it's like a like you're seeing a counterculture through this kaleidoscope, 
you know, you're not really seeing it as it purely was, but it's okay because it's even more colorful and weird than what it really was. As an aside, I've always been fascinated by that period of time where the studios are trying to cash in on the quote-unquote youth movement and were just so tin-eared when it came to trying to do that. Things like the Big Cube, Skidoo, Candy, I have to say, was one of those. Yes. Um, you know, there are so many of these movies, and, and including the other film that was being shot at the 20th century a lot at the same time, Myra Breckenridge. I mean, that one we've discussed on the show before, and it's this kind of fascinating failure, whereas I can see – you're absolutely right. There is that kind of out-of-touch feeling when it comes to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. But that almost makes it even more endearing by, you know, seeing the the way that these people are dressing, which aren't necessarily true to the culture, the way that they're speaking, which isn't true to the culture. I mean, everything has an affect to it, which just rings so false, but so wonderful at the same time. And they take it, you know, I think the word that really applies to this film is melodrama and just that whole idea of how melodramatic we can be. I mean, there are parts of this film that are basically like a soap opera to the point of having an organ playing on the soundtrack to emphasize these moments of soap opera, you know, duress, like when Casey finds out that she's pregnant with Harris's baby. I mean, that is the quintessential soap opera moment and you have an organ just cranked up on the soundtrack it just really emphasizes how corny this movie is but for all the right reasons with the dialogue the god the party scene alone and i mean there's quotable dialogue all throughout the whole movie but the party scene uh alone especially with like you've got Edie williams as ashley st ives who's in what does D-Man say? Prettily pornographic pictures. And yes, look at how she gives her body to the music. Delicious. I mean, you've got that. You've got Princess Livingston, who was this amazing, just in this red wig, like this amazing, like older woman who uh, Meyer had used in both Mud Honey previously, as well as Wild Gals of the Naked West. And her and the Indian guru guy, like their dialogue. Oh, God. oh my God. I'd like to strap you on. <laughs> I love when he like flicks his tongue and she's like, stop it. You'll rupture your tongue. Yeah. Like you pussycat who needs grass. <laughs> you see Z man. I mean, we cannot heap enough praise no. on John Lazar. Holy hell. That man. Um, it's funny. Cause my husband one time joked that he's like, he's like, we were watching the movie one time and he's like, God, he's like, he's like a proto Tim Curry. And I was I always thought that was brilliant because I'm like, yeah, John Lazar is kind of like America's Tim Curry, or is Tim Curry really Britain's John Lazar? Lazar kind of came first on the scene, so I'm going to stick with that. Um, what a tremendous actor! I mean, the minute you see him, he's one of those guys where as soon as you see him, you can't really. And there's a lot going on around him, but your eyes are on him, your ears are on him. That guy is a total charismatic. Observe in yon quiet corner, an island of tranquility in this sea of revelry. The languid Roxanne finds beauty, that delicate pinch of feminine spice with which she so often flavors her interludes. Ah, look there. Lance Rock, Greek god and part-time actor. See how well he performs? His is a special talent. The golden hair, the bedroom eyes, the firm young body. These are the tools with which he plies his trade. All are available for a price. 
Beware for a maiden of Emerson born. Behind that friendly mask, inside that innocent shell, lies fermenting the unholy seed of annoyance. See there behind the bar, the man with the benign Germanic countenance? Could that be another face of Martin Borman? Hey, ma'am, I've been to parties where they danced to records by the Strawberry Alarm Club, but this is the first time that the Strawberry Alarm Club's ever been to the party. Hey, what are you shelling out, man? I hear the minimum geek is for sale. I get them for free. They're mine. Wow. Here, yeah, have some grass. Aunt Susan won't see you. Oh, no thanks, man. In a scene like this, you get a contact high. He ranges from funny, charming, to menacing near the end, it was just with ease. And it is one of my favorite performances by a male actor. And I think it's a shame, like, I used to think, like, if Wuthering Heights was made in the 70s, like, he would have been a good uh, Heathcliff. Oh, like, Lord, yes. <laughs> yeah, with uh, Isabella Gianni as uh, Kathy. Oh, my God. Can we, okay, uh, <laughs> we need some time travel technology at hand. Uh, he really should have had a far bigger film career than he did after this film, like, because it's, he's so good. And he's still with us and still looks good. So anybody that's making films or a producer, get this man in anything you're doing because he's total magic. Yeah, the Z-Man's dialogue is something else entirely. We've talked about that kind of corny dialogue that they have in the film, but his is this kind of purple prose uh, version of Shakespeare and it's just it's it floats off of his tongue like like it has no right to do. To, I can't even imagine holding those lines in my head and being able to recite them with the poetry and the speed that he does and the way again whirlwind time when he takes Kelly through his abode and shows her all of these magnificent things when they end up in his bathroom and he's got his ferns and he's talking about his ferns and when he got the idea of it and all this and it's just so poetic the way that he uh that he speaks and it just gets better and better as the film goes on. I mean, when the, the movie is, is near its end, which we kind of saw at the beginning, though at the beginning there is no dialogue, but when we see that scene again at the end and he is you know, uh, proclaiming himself as Superwoman instead of Z-Man, I mean, gosh, all of that dialogue, just it just ripples with excitement. I, I absolutely love listening to him as Z-Man. I cannot picture anybody else that can, yeah, that could handle that dialogue in a way that is so fluid and so captivating like he does. And also, I love the little in-joke they have uh, towards the latter part of the movie where Emerson, who is basically kind of, you know, we first see him as like, you know, kind of like the bartender, or not the bartender, but kind of like the cocktail waiter at the party, but he's a lawyer. And he's this law student and him and Pet, the drummer for the Kelly uh, Fair, soon to be Carrie Nations, they, you know, have this they fall in love and have this romance. They're hanging out in a field and um, he says something and she laughs and says, oh, you sound like Z-Man. And he laughs at, well, Z-Man sounds like William Shakespeare. <laughs> it's like, oh, brilliant. Like the, the, the little self, you know. Referential. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. a nod. Lazar. I, I love it when he does the Count Dracula voice. Like, oh, my God. Just, I don't know. I could... <laughs> I could do a whole episode of just having that. a makeout session with, uh, between Count Dracula and Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. It's such a great line. And um, I think rivaling Lazar, though, in the great dialogue department during the party scene is, of course, the lovely, the sexy Ashley St. Ives, played by Edie Williams. 
she chews up the dialogue and spits it out just the way the the same way that she must chew up men and spit them out. She is like a lioness. I it's just every frame of her cracks me up because it's just so good lord. This there's no human has ever existed like Ashley St. Ives. She's like a she's like a beautiful cartoon character and I love her. I absolutely love her for it. Well, she wears like that almost sneer leer kind of thing on her face throughout so much of that especially when she's dancing she just seems like she's ready to just bite the heads off of her mates you know she just seems like a a black widow ready to strike well now harris we meet again come into my den said the spider etc i was looking for somebody anybody i know where do you get this anybody i know business from one of those pornographic movies you're starring I mean, my, um, controversial box office blockbusters? Ashley St. Ives. I saw one of your movies once. I think it was the one about the, uh, teenage incest trial. Mm-hmm. You'll have to help me on the research for the next one. She physically is a little different from the average Meyer. I mean, she's gorgeous and curvy, but I mean, if you're somebody who's watched his earlier films and you go to this one, you're so used to everybody being built like Tura Satana and Haji, you know, where you're like, Edie almost looks like felt, you know, and tiny compared to this, but she, but her presence is so huge and she's just so, just that hair. I love how she's always dressed in these very like earthy materials. Like it always seems like she's in something like suede or leather. Like she's like some kind of sexy cave woman that's tracked down her prey and, you know, mounted them and then bit their neck and is wearing their skin or something. I'm probably reading more to it than there needs to be. But but yeah, great, great costuming. Well, and it's almost monochromatic sometimes too. Like I forget that she's actually wearing clothes the first time we see her because her top matches her hair almost. So I'm just like, is she wearing clothes? Okay, yeah, she is. <laughs> but it would be just as natural for her to not be wearing a top in that opening scene when we first see her because she is just she's shaking what her mama gave her and really, <laughs> you know, like looking for the next man. The the same way that that uh, Lance Rock is looking for the next score looking for the next woman that he can kind of latch on to and try to get more money out of her. And I have to say that, it I mean, Michael Blodgett is, he's a handsome man, but I just don't see him as being the Lothario that he is in this film. It could just be because I'm another dude and I don't think that he's, you know, all that, but he can snap his fingers, it seems like, and get another woman on his arms. And But he is always on the lookout for where's my next meal ticket coming from. And I love that one kind of throwaway moment when he looks down and sees the one woman that he was with, you know, allegedly, I would think that he was either turning tricks or just using her bank account kind of thing. And when he looks down at where he's at in his life and who he's sunk to sleeping with, (laughs) Kelly, obviously, she looks great already and she's going to look even better because she's got a big price tag around her neck. It's kind of interesting you said about him how you don't see him as a sort of Lothario. And I think that's the point. Uh, He mean, he may look like it, but as we see, he's just like this no talent actor who's, he's like, he's this gold digger. Like it's kind of interesting. You, uh, he's a gold digger masking as uh, this Lothario or as um, Susan Lake describes him. Like he's no Prince uh, Valium, Valiant. (laughs) 
it, it's funny with Lance because the, there's <laughs> there, and I don't even know if this was meant to be funny. I, I'm sure it was, but there, there's a way that he delivers a line towards the end when you're, we're towards the end of the film and Ronnie's having a, a private party with him and Lance and Casey and Roxanne. And, and, and it just, when we just like, you know, something like, it's your party. And like, he's just so sarcastic and dismissive. And it's just like, he's, and it doesn't seem like he's that much better with the women. I mean, I think part of that's, of course, because, you know, he's clearly, you know, not into dudes. But I also think, but you see him kind of with some of the other women. Yeah, because when that old woman's snoring, he actually, doesn't he say cool it to her? He's not, yeah, he's not the suavest, uh, smoothest operator uh, in town. But it but it kind of works. It's all part of the Beyond the Valley of the Dolls uh, glory. I imagine that Lance Rock is gay for pay. Oh, he's totally- Oh, Yeah. Yeah, he's you get him enough quaaludes and enough uh, you know, enough like good bourbon. Yeah, honey. He's <laughs> yep. but he doesn't kiss him on the mouth. So he's not technically gay, everybody. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so much of this movie, I mean, we, we, we haven't even moved beyond beyond the party scene of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls because so much of this movie is set up in that opening party scene. And so much of the movie feels like parties. I mean, so the major sections of this film take place at the, you know, they're two different parties, but they might as well be the same party just because I imagine that the party never stops at Z-Man's house. You know, it just must always be, there must always be somebody making out in his bathtub if he's not using it is how I, I kind of see what life at the Z-Man's abode would be like. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing people, a character like that is an orbit and his orbit's always got to have other like stars and planets and asteroids that, you know, are going to be everybody from high level lawyers and fashion designers to, you know, hangers on uh, and burnouts. Uh, But it's, yeah, that's the thing that a character like that loves chaos around him too. So having a a 24 hour party is a great way to kind of keep that, that chaos orb spinning. When it sets up all of these relationships, you mentioned Petronella, aka Pet, um, meeting um, Emerson. There, we see um, the way that um, Ashley St. Ives looks at uh, Harris, and we see the way that Harris is being kind of split apart from Kelly with Z-Man. I mean, already we're getting so many of these things set up. We see Roxanne looking at Casey, and so pretty much this party scene sets in motion so many of the things that we're going to get for the rest of this film. We're going to get a love affair between Casey and Roxanne. We're going to get a, a love affair. Well, it's it's interesting. We don't get a love affair between Kelly and Z-Man, but we get a rupture of the partnership and of the, the boyfriend-girlfriend thing that we have going on. A very easy rupture, by the way. It seems that she throws off Harris pretty darn uh, <laughs> easily in this film doesn't feel like there's any real love lost and he you know he goes with well any normal man would go with Edie Williams um, but you know there, there's troubles ahead you know every every single relationship that gets set up there are troubles ahead for each one of them some of them are rectified and some of them are not but so much of this movie is exploring these relationships and I was saying the other day that with Valley of the Dolls it always confuses me that there are three female protagonists in this. You know, sometimes it feels like, well, the Patty Duke character should be the protagonist, or no, the the girl that moves from you know small town America and and is thrust into you know this New York uh, nightlife kind of stuff. She should be the main character. 
Or there's that other character who's just there pretty much to look pretty and take drugs and have problems with their mother. But in this movie, it's it's odd because they handle the characters so much better. I mean, I actually feel like I'm very much following the stories of each of these characters and the way that they interact with one another, the way that this movie is paced where I'm taken from one you know set of characters to another and see, you know, Heather, you said the word orbit, but see the way that the, these people uh, all orbit around, you know, these parties and orbit around the Z-Man. So it's uh, handled I would say much better than the way that they handle it in Valley of the Dolls, just to make sure that I'm aware of where all the pieces are on the chessboard. Yeah. I mean, as much as we're talking about it being kind of campy and, you know, and, and, you know, and intentionally so in spots, you really do like all of these characters. You really instantly are kind of charmed by them. You, you know, even, even when they're, they're doing things and making bad decisions, like, yeah, you feel bad for Harris, but you don't dislike Kelly. Yeah, she's great. Oh my God, Dolly Reed is so. I've, she's. I've always had like a sort of crush on her ever since I've seen this movie. Oh, like, she's so so gorgeous. And I was happy to hear that she was so nice in the uh, interview, and I'm really excited to hear that. <laughs> it's always cracks me up though because you know people will say, oh yeah, you know, the, watch Star Wars and listen to the way that uh, you know um, Carrie Fisher will kind of slip into a British accent because she had been playing uh, a British role previous to that. Hearing um, <laughs> Dolly Reed occasionally slip into her native British uh, accent is just hilarious to me. There are, there are certain times where it's just like, whoa, what happened there with that line? <laughs> so the, the one that always gets me is... Um, Susan, I've got these friends in a rock group. Etsy is my my favorite is when she she has the, when she's like throwing, throwing, you know, slapping Porter, uh, her aunt's you know, PC lawyer, and she's just, you know, lover, like that. It's just like this British growl. It's so... It's I always have to rewind it. It's got to be a third of a million dollars. It's got to be, yeah. God, I can't believe we haven't even mentioned Porter Hall. It, it, oh, it's, yeah. He is the mustache-twirling villain in this film, and just really, I mean, if anything, he kind of, to me, represents 20th Century Fox, where it's just like, <laughs> he is completely out of touch with youth culture. If we, if, if we said that Ebert and Meyer were out of touch with youth culture, I mean, this guy just does not get it whatsoever, and just continuously is putting his foot in his mouth the whole way through this movie. Oh, man. The scene with him and uh, Cynthia Myers, where he's like hitting on her oh. slash making fun of her still like grosses me out like ooh, such oh. sleaze and uh i love the way he talks about um uh, they were smoking marijuana cigarettes <laughs> like who says that that scene is is really gross especially because casey you know and i i'm i'm such a huge fan of cynthia meyer's performance in this because she really brings like this haunting quality like she does bring like some some gravitas to the the role because you instantly just sense this like sadness about casey like she only really ever looks happy when she's on stage otherwise you just you know she has this kind of gorgeous i mean crazy i mean all the women it's a russ meyer film it's like radley metzger if you're a woman in this in this guy's films you're probably insanely crazy good looking but just you know but just her quality the sadness you feel almost protective you know of her as a viewer you want good things to happen to her which obviously of course they yeah spoiler alert they don't but yeah just and porter's just such a he's totally like this this nasty 
pro, like as proto pre yuppie because there weren't really yuppies in the sixties, but just this gross businessman and and you and to the point where I'm almost like, what? How did her aunt connect with this guy? Because you know her, you know yeah. Kelly's, Kelly's aunt seems like such a, a lovely, kind. <laughs> lady she seems very nice you know just like this guy is just like snide, the snidely whiplash of hollywood lawyers he's <laughs> it's a great kind of like uh dorothy stratton and paul snyder though like oh. a movie version of that so i i guess it's that old uh opposites attract thing i i mean isn't it implied that they're sort of together like like he's not just her lawyer that it's like he's kind of her boyfriend after um Baxter Wolf, Lion Burke. Like I, I thought I remember um Roger Ebert saying that in his commentary. Like it's implied that like he's like her boyfriend. Because I remember um Kelly looking over at him before she mentions Baxter Wolf and how she read about her aunt in the paper. Like, oh, and you and uh Baxter Wolf. Like You know, I have to say I never picked up on that before. No, I didn't I didn't either. That God, her poor Aunt Susan, especially after seeing his uh performance cough cough with uh with uh with Kelly. That was in a way I was relieved for Kelly. I'm like, Oh, that's good. She really didn't have to do that much, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Never mind, Porter. <laughs> I love the little smile on her face too. It's so brilliant. It's like, oh, you little imp. <laughs> I don't want to say even Susan Lake is beautiful, but every woman in this film is so gorgeous and she is just such a pleasure to look at in here. And yeah, she seems so freaking sweet. And when she, you know, is getting her heart broken by Kelly who wants the, you know, more money and she's so willing to give up, you know, the the fortune to her and all this and then when Baxter Wolf comes back to the scene and in the second big party scene, you're just pulling for these, you know, get these two kids back together they really deserve happiness yeah and then baxter wolf to be played by charles napier i mean there is so much love in this room for charles napier it is just beyond question let it be known <laughs> to, our, to our, our our fantastic listeners that i, I actually added it out to the script that says lord yes all of the napier like i <laughs> <laughs> and Mike wrote, I heart Charles Napier. Yeah, this is the Charles Napier unofficial fan club uh, tonight. Uh, this, oh my God, that there are men, there are actors, and then there is Charles Napier. You know, it's funny you mention that because I don't know too, too, too much about Napier. I've, I mean, I've seen him in this movie, but I think the only other thing I've seen him in is uh, Rambo 2. And he's the villain in that. I mean, it was pretty obvious, I think. I didn't watch the whole movie, but it was pretty obvious that he was set up to be the villain in that movie. Oh, yes. He's, he is fantastic. He's popped up in, in just some of the craziest things. He's in a really good episode of the original Star Trek. Oh, yeah. It, playing that crazy guitar type thing. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and he also uh, was in... Uh, some of Russ's other films. He uh, was in Cherry, Harry, and Raquel in the, I want to say that was 67, 68. Um, and he has a brief full frontal nude scene for, you know, uh, just letting people know Russ occasionally did have equal nudity. 
Hmm. Not often, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on occasion. And he absolutely incredible turn as Harry Sledge and uh, Meyer's Super Vixens, which that film, if this film's on level 30, super or 110, this film is on, uh, I need to make up another number because it is <laughs> Super Vixens is, it's like on Angel Dust. It is an insane film and I love it. Um, he was in the Blues Brothers. I mean, Napier's been in like, Gosh, he's one of those one of those actors who'll pop up in a cult film, but then you'll see him in something really mainstream like Rambo too. Early in Jonathan Demi's career, those two kind of got together, and so then he was like a good luck charm of uh, Jonathan Demi. He would show up in everything. He's one of the officers who uh, uh, gets murdered by Hannibal Lecter when Lecter is in that big cage um, after they move him up to what DC or wherever. So yeah, he's he shows up in almost every single Jonathan Demi film uh, after Handle with Care, aka Citizens Band. He was all over those, and like he's in what last. Embrace and just so many of the of Demi's films, but yeah, he, I mean, he would just show up in these things, and you're just like, what? what the, how can he be in here? And then doing voices for um, so many cartoons, doing voices for the Critic for a long time. Oh my god, he was great on the Critic. I love that show. Oh yeah, and he, I mean that character, the Duke Phillips character. It just, I mean, he really wasn't doing a voice; he was just doing Charles Napier's voice, and it sounded wonderful. And he just just was such a, a kick-ass dude, you know? And then, yeah, just he would show up for five minutes in, like, Austin Powers. And the way that he would say, like, you know, uh, what was it? Like, get me London, England. Oh, my God. Yeah, Napier, one, truly a character actor gem, just a tremendous, tremendous presence and talent. And you see a little bit of that here. It's actually, it was nice to see him play a romantic character who's not especially if you've seen super fixins where he's just um in just on high octane violence you know seeing him play just a very sweet lovely character was, um was quite nice and it shows that he could do it i mean he had um i think is often the case with a lot of these character actors they usually have more range than what they're usually given and i would put john lazar uh in that quality too which actually lazar was also in uh I believe Lazar's in Super Vixens. It's a small part, but he has a scene with um, Colleen Brennan, a.k.a. Sharon Kelly. And um, he's really creepy in it, but very beautiful. That's the thing about Lazar. You're like, that's a gorgeous man. And then you're like, oh, he's going to probably drink my blood or something. <laughs> the shape of Lazar's face is always just something to look at. He kind of, it's very feline to me, the way that it's shaped. And again, you know, listening to him is one thing and then watching him and watching his movements, watching his face when he's talking is just fascinating for me. The first time I saw John Lazar, I thought he looked like a um, contemporary actor, Ezra Miller, who's another great actor he was in um the perks of being a wallflower and uh we need to talk about kevin but yeah they both have that same feline quality and i thought if um that movie that biopic about russ meyer and roger ebert that's supposedly in the works is ever greenlit uh that he could play a z-man I can see that. Yeah, I, I think I know Ezra Miller. He's the guy that's the Flash in the movies now, or going to be the Flash in the movies. Just keeps showing up, and he, you know, uh, am I am I too early? Kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, I think part of it too, because Lazar. I mean, he he has like such a he moves the way he just uses his whole body, and he actually had training as a ballet dancer, and I think he's like a martial arts expert he, too. Yes. Yeah, I read that in a, an interview a few years ago. 
I did want to question, is is it actually pronounced Charles Napier, or are we missing the French pronoun- pronunciation of Charles Napier? Oh, I'm sure I'll have a, a beloved uh, friend of mine <laughs> call it correct me if that's... <laughs> If we're saying it wrong, I've, I've always heard I've always heard it as um, Napier. Okay, I, I uh, think it's I think it's Napier because on the uh, Criterion DVD, there's a Q and A at a showing in the early '90s, and I think it's pronounced uh, Napier, and he's there. Yeah, I wouldn't want to insult the man to his face. Definitely. Oh. <laughs> No, no, we'll get we'll get haunted, Mike. We need to be oh, yeah. <laughs> we need to be a little careful. Yeah, it'd be real hard eating corn on the cob without any fucking teeth. <laughs> and you know, we should point out that you know, I, I read one of the early versions of the screenplay, which was a, a treat in itself. You know, and, and it's it's neat. You know, like we we mentioned Roger Ebert a few times, and this was the thing for a long time. People just, oh my god. Roger Ebert wrote movies at one point. Oh my God, he wrote this crazy like booby comedy beyond the Valley of the Dolls. You know, like people were just their minds were blown that this respected critic who is coming to their house on PBS, you know, every week with Gene Siskel could have written this movie. But yes, he was a young writer, and yes, he wrote screenplays, and uh, you can definitely feel the the force of Meyer kind of riding roughshod over uh, Roger Ebert in this. I, I seem to remember uh, hearing a story about how Russ thought that typing was the same thing as writing. So, like, if you weren't uh, if he didn't hear the keyboard going, he thought that Ebert was slacking off. Like, there was no <laughs> point where Ebert, you know, was allowed to really sit back and think about things. He just had to write the whole time. But uh, in that early draft that I read, this was before there was the lawsuit um, against 20th Century Fox or, or potential lawsuit from, uh, who is it, Jacqueline Suzanne to not call this Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, to not make this a sequel to Valley of the Dolls. So that's why they have that kind of CYA title card at the beginning that this has nothing to do with Valley of the Dolls. But in those early drafts, this was very much a sequel, and the Susan Lake character was one of the characters from Valley of the Dolls. There's a scene at the end of Valley of the Dolls where one of the characters, and forgive me for not knowing their, their names, um, one of them, uh, I think it's uh, Lion Burke instead of uh, Baxter, Baxter Wolf. Wolf. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Lion Burke proposes to Ann Wells, and when I was reading the, the original screenplay, I was like, oh, this this isn't Susan Lake. Who is this Ann Wells? And then as they're going through, they keep making references to Valley of the Dolls. So obviously they had to expurgate that and then rename these characters. But if you look at it in that way, and then I was just reading today, and uh, Jordan, maybe you can confirm this, but I hear on the Criterion disc there's a, a screen test where they're still using those names um. uh, before before they've removed them. I'm not sure if that is on there. I've watched most of the special features, but I'll have to, yeah, I'll have to look at that again. I, I think the screen tests are there, but yeah, I'll have to, have to check. So one of those little, you know, no matter what they say at the beginning of the film, yeah, this was kind of a sequel at, at one point, but <laughs> as they also say, you've never seen anything like this. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, talking about the the melodrama, you know, I was talking about how Harris is kind of being pushed out by the Z-Man and Harris has his own little story here. And okay, is it just me? I mean, every time I look at Harris, I always think of Nicholas Hammond from the Spider-Man TV show. Am I the only one who thinks that? Um, They do have a similar bone structure. They do look like they could be related, though I wouldn't necessarily call them twins. But I don't know who you're talking about. He was also uh, Frederick on uh, The Sound of Music. And he was also uh, Doug Simpson on The Brady Bunch, the guy that asked out Marsha on the episode where her nose gets hit by a football. Hey, you guys. <laughs> I kind of see it as him as an adult now, seeing um, pictures uh, from The Sound of Music. Because I, I, listen, I saw The Sound of Music as a kid. I don't need to revisit the film. Yeah. <laughs> In his youth, I definitely could see the resemblance. I, I definitely could see them as, like Jordan was saying, as brothers. I will say they look more alike than, say, David Duchovny and Salmon King, though. Like, David Gurian looks like he could be Nicholas Hammond's, like, more sensitive brother. If that ma- Like, his nicer brother, if that makes sense. He is so sensitive in this movie. Yes. Just so sensitive. <laughs> though he's got a very important job when it comes to the rock band. He makes sure that they get paid, and two, he spins the color wheel. Yes. Which apparently is a very big deal, and he does it very well, though. I have to say, that wheel does not stop spinning. Though occasionally he has to be reminded not to uh, bogart the joint. Well, you know, I think part of the sensitivity is, you know, yeah, he's he's wearing sandals. Yeah, those men, oh, yeah. those men with their sandals. Yep. <laughs> it goes way back. <laughs> so you're here, freak. Name's Samar. All right, then. How about a toe freak? I need it. I want it. A beautiful woman kissing me between the toes. People who wear sandals must not get very many volunteers. I can change. Into something more titillating? That sounds vaguely obscene. You're a groovy boy. I'd like to strap you on sometime. Well, at least he didn't wear socks. We'll give him credit there. <laughs> yeah, socks with sandals is, um, <laughs> that's, don't, just no. Actually, touching upon the fight scene with the, oh, yes. with, uh, between Harris and Lance, um, which talk about two great contrasting characters. You know, you have this sensitive guy who basically, you know, is basically, you know, kind of more of an ethical creature from the past, from Kelly's past, and Lance, who's this complete, you know, Lothario kind of looking out for number one sort of fella and they have this big fight and of course we get introduced to the amazing character of randy black oh man <laughs> my favorite character i honestly this guy so amazing i mean he, he's like i mean he he almost escaped from a black exploitation film <laughs> By way of a Muhammad Ali characterization, and just almost every line of dialogue he has ties back to the ring, which I just love that everything is a boxing metaphor for this guy. And the way when they are fighting, he gets in there and just starts like being the corner man for these guys. Oh my God, I was laughing hysterically and still laughing hysterically after I've seen this movie probably a hundred times. Miss Kelly McNamara, Miss Petronella Danforth, meet Randy Black. We call him the man. <laughs> Good third to my latest creation, Sham, the Carry Nation, minus one. What are you doing here all alone, baby? Making a last stand? Don't worry about me. I got a real nice old man. You get a nice old man. Where is he now? He's studying for a bar exam. If that makes any difference to you. Well, that changes everything. 
see your brother? Right on. Then it's my duty to get you out here on this dance floor and keep you all nice and easy, boy. <laughs> I love it when he calls uh, Lance his uh, blue-eyed soul brother. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that, I, need I, to I bring love... back soul brother. We need to bring back Randy Black. Holy, oh, yeah. holy cow. I love that his body repels shirts. He's like the Iggy Pop of boxing. Might as well just be wearing a towel around his neck, which I think he does at one point, like wear the towel when around When we first his meet neck. him, like. Yeah, never wearing a shirt. Yeah, he's at the party without a shirt on. It's just like, what? what is this guy? <laughs> I mean, it looks like he just walked out of the ring, you know. It's, Wow, the melodrama that starts between him and uh, and um, I keep wanting to say Harris Emerson and Petronella. I mean, they're almost in their own movie a lot of the times, and I love it. I love watching that melodrama that goes down with those with those folks. It's just amazing. I love the scene where he's trying to comfort uh, Pet, like You're hanging on to yesterday, and and she calls him the heavyweight philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> That, you that, might as well roll over and take the full count. <laughs> when I first saw the movie, that one in particular, that it's like, why this guy's being trying to be deep? <laughs> I was just like, okay, <laughs> yeah. Though, though it's funny, even even now watching the film, and I've seen it like as we all have like several times. Like I always actually kind of hate the fight scene between him and Everson because you really like Emerson. Like he's a really just likable, smart, sweet guy. You know, he's not all you know, he's not really involved in any of the Z Man shenanigans other than just working a party or two for money. You know, he's just a really good guy and I I love that actor, um Harris, uh, Harrison Harrison Page. Page. Harrison yeah. Page is so good and it blew my mind i don't know why i have not put this together until this week that harrison page is the same harrison page that was in the 80s tv show sledgehammer i remember watching this movie with my mom yes i I watched this movie with my mom and uh she was like where have i seen that guy before i mean we ultimately couldn't find out but uh yeah oh Yeah. yeah Yeah, he's done his filmography is very impressive. But of course, me being a huge Sledgehammer fan, that was um, I was like, oh my god, it's the captain! <laughs> he was the captain on Sledgehammer. Oh, holy cow! Yeah. Th- by the way, your parents are amazing. I have great parents, but I cannot imagine watching any Russ Meyer. I'm I'm surprised my mom watched this movie with me. Honestly, like I've actually I've actually shown her a couple of movies. She liked a uh, house that movie i already mentioned uh nobuhiko bayashi i've shown her diabolique elevator to the gallows um but she she didn't like beyond the valley of the dolls but hey she watched it she thought it didn't really have any plot and she thought the whole moralizing at the end of it was kind of weird <laughs> with russ meyer talking about the characters like she thought that was she was put off by that but yeah she watched it to go back to Randy again, I mean, Randy's line is the one that, that always kills me during that epilogue. Well, it's not the epilogue, but kind of that wrap-up when it's like, Randy's body, a cage for an animal. It lifted him to the top of his field, but in the end, the beast almost killed him. <laughs> there's, a, there's a funny joke from the Cinema Snob review of that. Um, Brad Joe's like, did Russ Meyer want to have sex with Randy? <laughs> Russ cannot get enough praise for a lot of things, and one of them is his his use of description. Because anybody, if you watch any Russ Meyer trailer, 
And it's usually Russ doing the voiceovers on those. And I'm assuming the writing, because the, the writing, even for the trailers, is completely uh, fantastically weird and hilarious. And re- it refers to himself as the rural Fellini, which <laughs> is brilliant. Oh, my God. That's... um. It also, at one point, this is for the trailer for Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, uses the phrase, limp-wristed dentistry. This is one of my favorite <laughs> phrases on the planet, for the record. So, And going back to Harris, is the whole sort of unexpected turn where he and Casey comforting each other, you know, and just... Uh, and it's so, and you're, and part of you is like, oh God, no, because you know this, nothing good's going to come from this. But it is a melodrama, so you got to have constant moments of like, oh boy, like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing there, guys? And um, but I thought it was sort of touching because you have these two sort of brokenhearted people. We never really quite find out why Casey. You know, I mean, there's some, you know, brief mentions of her. You know, her father is a famous senator. And, you know, her reaction to her father's name when Porter brings it up in the beginning is not like the most positive, you know, so there's no telling, you know, what her background was, but she definitely carries a sadness. And, you know, Harris has been basically put through the mill. His, you know, he's not a manager anymore. His girlfriend's left him. He just got his ass kicked. Literally. Um, Ashley St. Ives insulted his masculinity. Uh, which, by the way, shame on all of us for not mentioning the roles scene. Oh, my God. Oh, not even a Bentley. <laughs> yeah, a quick aside, that I quote that a lot. That always, like, you know, nothing's better than a rules like this. She's just... A rules! Oh <laughs> <laughs> it's... That's why I throw limp to dentistry as far as things that are my favorite things on the planet. But, um, <laughs> but no, there's something kind of interesting about having just these two damaged souls coming together in a night of a... A, a very ill-fated uh, one-night stand. It's actually a very touching scene when you watch it. Like, if it was from, like, a different kind of movie that wasn't as batshit as Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, it'd be very... I mean, it's still very poignant, but in the context of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, it's a little laughable because, like, what is this? This is so bizarre, but it's another um, charm of this movie. <laughs> But their hooking up is obviously very important to the plot because basically, as we find out um, soon, is that Casey's pregnant. Well, there's even more to there's even more heightened (laughs) to the pregnancy because Harris might not ever have children again after his terrible accident (laughs) that he has. The organ music. Well, in that he so he's watching the the band and they're they're playing and they're on like I don't know it's kind of like a Mike Douglas type show, and uh, he's up in the rafters watching them play one of their old songs that wasn't even on their new redubbed the Carrie Nations on their new Carrie Nations uh, album, and him falling from the rafters that <laughs> that noise the sound effect of the plane coming down oh my god it's so (laughs) i mean myers is just fucking with you at that point it's just like come on i cannot laugh you know cannot not laugh if i hear that what's funny about that scene is when everybody's like gather like what's wrong with harris and kelly's like get away from him and the uh, host is like he's falling to the floor he's just like uh randy black and um the scene where he's the (laughs) corner the guy in the corner like Oh, like he's going at it. He's just like reporting on it. I just, I just like noticed the parallels of that when we were 
talking about the Harris versus uh, Lance scene. There's so many moments in this film where you just you can't you just you're chuckling. You're like what? The, oh my god! <laughs> like what? What next? What next? And then the what next? Of course, is then yeah. Casey reveals she's pregnant, and she goes. She ends up basically going to the arms of Roxanne, who's been very patient, very patient with waiting for Casey for them to hook up. But it's uh, and then you have the abortion scene where Roxanne basically talks uh, Casey into getting abortion because Casey initially wanted to have the kid because he might not ever be able to have a father, you know, be a father, but she does it. And that abortion scene, um, it's a lot more gentle than say like a film that Mike, you and I just talked about like limit popsicle slash last American Virgin, but still no fun. And then like that cut to like, Eggs cooking just seems seems so ugly, especially when you think about like the whole like you know eggs is fertility. That you know, I I don't know. I mean, I I probably wouldn't want to read too much symbolism into it, but um, oh, I don't see why not. It just seems rife with symbolism to me. So I I'd say go for it. (laughs) Well, and it's weird because you have the whole egg breaking at the beginning of the film too. So they're definitely very interesting, especially because actually going back to last American Virgin, because that's another one where you have like the abortion scene and there's like a cut to like a pizza being cut. And I always thought that was a real ugly, I don't mean that bad way. It's brilliant for the film, but I was, that always kind of like, was like, Ooh, that's kind of, you're not really technically seeing anything gruesome at all. It's just food, but it being cut to something so stark definitely is always going to have kind of that, uh, that jolting effect. I think those crash cuts that he has in here i mean again taking something so serious like the gunshot at the beginning and turning it into the woman you know into uh kelly singing and then with this with poor casey screaming and cutting to the sizzling of the eggs i mean it just it disarms you and it distresses you and it makes you laugh all at the same time at least it does for me and it's really quick how how much I go through these emotions when I'm watching this, just like, oh, I feel so bad for Casey. Oh my God, that's a horrible cut. Oh my God, that was so funny. <laughs> it's, this film is a true roller. I mean, it's that's such a overused descriptor for film in general, but it really is like a roller coaster. It really is like a fair, like the best fair in the world. That ride, it's that. Well, and it's one of those rides that you go on on a fair where you're not really sure about the safety rating of the ride. You're not sure about the guy who's behind the controls, you know, if he just had a big old hit of meth or whatever. And it's just like, I'm not sure if I'm going to live through this or not, but you still enjoy it because of the danger. And that's kind of what this whole movie is for me is like, this whole thing feels like it could just shake apart at any moment. I don't know if all the bolts are in the right places, but God, this is fun. This is so dangerous and and exciting all at the same time yeah I, I, you can completely see russ meyer running a really badass tilt-a-whirl i could see him as a carnival barker like nobody's business oh my god it's the mustache it's the smile it's the jack the ripper gleam in his eyes it's it's all of it <laughs> he'd be working the midway just pulling them in getting those suckers getting all their dollars totally he would be the he would be the barker for the girly show for like the girly shows they used to have in the old school uh carnivals I can't remember what they would call that one, but yeah, in the ten and one, it would be the last, the last big show for them. I just thought about Russ Meyer, like in a like his version of the Seven Faces of Doctor Low. 
I would. I could see that. I would buy that for a dollar. Oh. oh my gosh. Well, speaking of fun houses. Okay, so we have to get to what is absolutely, I think, one of the most visually striking scenes in the whole film, which is, of course, the private party that Z-Man holds for himself, Lance, and Casey and Roxanne. It's nice the way that we cut between that and some of the other scenes that are going on. We do get some of the, you know, the the, the whole movie doesn't stop with all of the side plots while this is happening. And it's just another you know, kind of indication of the brilliance of the way that we're handling all of these different narratives threads at the same time. And that we can kind of pull it all together with this party and just with the whole, I mean, at one point, Harris, Emerson, Pet, and Kelly all realize where Casey is and that she might be in some danger. And they get together like this kind of whack-ass Scooby team, you know, Scooby gang, and roll on out. I mean, Harris literally rolling on out because he's now in a wheelchair and it's just this kind of insane moment where they're like, we gotta save her, and just like running, you know, taking the van and going over to to try to save her. But yeah, this party scene, and again, it just showcases Z-Man's poetry and, and in this case the danger, because, you know, there's this kind of Mephistophelian quality to Z-Man And the way that, you know, even in that first moment when he's showing Kelly around the house and taking her through her on this whole whirlwind tour. And in this, he's got that same energy and that same, um, he is starting to get a little unhinged. And the more it goes on, the more that he talks, the more crazy it gets. And, you know, we've seen from crazy when it comes to the Z-Man, but he is just getting more and more out there. And the more that the drugs are fueling things, when he starts talking about his little concoction that he put together of all these drugs. I mean, it's just like, yeah, this isn't going to end well. To toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. Well done, faithful vassal. Pray be excused. We have no further need of your services this night. Make sure you turn off the oven. The fairman feel so haughty and serene. One, two for you, little page. What are these for? To sheathe your supple body, my dear Raymond, for the court. And a brutal one for the jungle, Denison. Come with me, we'll change. And the best one of all for me. Things that I do for bread. Not gold. Affection. Friendship. The strong mutual bond of the round table. We are the spirits of the dead. Creatures treading the river sticks. I'm here, aren't I? Doesn't that prove my fealty? Doesn't that satisfy you? I accept your fealty and do nobly return it and beseech you to get thine ass in gear and guard your angry loy. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, and the lighting. I mean, my God, because I love the, the color scheme and then you have like the, the opening of it is, you know, a complete kind of riff on the Sorcerer's Apprentice a segment from Fantasia. And uh, which is so brilliant. And it's funny, just the pop culture references in the scene, because of course you have that. You have uh, him dressing Lance as Jungle Boy, which is basically Lance rocking a tiny little gold uh, bikini bottom. And then you have Roxanne and Casey as, uh, as, Bat- as Batman and Robin. Which is just which adds just adds even more to just the uh, just beautiful surrealness of it all. 
seeing them dressed as Batman and Robin, I don't know. I don't think that this was a, an intentional intentional riff on it, but I was reminded of the um, that Batman film that Andy Warhol made, and I don't, I don't think that it is out there in existence anywhere, but I know I've seen pictures of Andy Warhol dressed up for that Batman film. What that's from, and I know exactly what stills you're talking from, that was a photo, sh- photo session where, yeah, you had Andy as Robin and Nico as Batman. Warhol, to my knowledge, never did a straight-up Batman film. He did make a film called Batman Dracula. Okay, that's what I'm probably thinking yeah, of. Yeah, but I don't, I don't believe Nico was in that. So these, these are two... Um, to separate. We're conflating things. Okay. Yeah, it, it doesn't help that, honestly, the Warhol estate needs to release all of his films uh, legally in this country because that's, you know, none of his, none of, none of Warhol's directed stuff is legally available in the U.S. So that's going to add confusion because, you know, those films are underground already. And now they're like further underground <laughs> in some weird way. But no, it's, but I love that. I love that comparison because there is like a weird pop culture. I mean, there's like a pop art feel to this film. And that's nothing I would, I would probably say about anything else that Meyer did, which is interesting because I, I, I find this film so quintessentially Russ, but, um, there's a little more pop culture. Ref- like references in this one than I think in any other Meyer film that I can think of. You least. can make an argument that this movie is like a precursor to quiche, like quiche art, which I guess is, which you could argue is also an offshoot of pop art. Like, you know, the kind of quiche art that you'd see in um, the B-52s and um, Third Rock from the Sun, like that very, or Pee-wee's Playhouse, if that makes sense. Am I pronouncing that right? Quiche? I think it's kitsch. Is it kitsch? Kitsch, kitsch yes. Kitsch. I thought you were talking about the egg dish. I thought we were going back to the egg feed again. <laughs> I know. I was getting hungry. I'm like, God, a kitsch kitsch? art. Mmm, delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if somebody is if 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 somebody is really into kitsch art and they're they're into that aesthetic, they would definitely love this film. I don't know. This is interesting because I've never thought about it like this. I don't know if I would call this film kitsch because I feel like it. I think it's like a precursor to kitsch. Yeah, stuff. yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? I don't tend to throw around kitsch as much as camp and I can see this one kind of being campy, but at the same time it knows that it's campy. It knows that it's campy in the same way that a Rocky horror picture show knows that it's campy. So it's not like one of those like Valley, the dolls where you watch it now with an audience and you're you know roaring with laughter or like mommy dearest, those kind of things where it's just like, I don't know if this was supposed to be funny at the time or not, but now it definitely is. Whereas with beyond the Valley of the dolls, everything seems like is very intentional. I think we were supposed to laugh at all of these things and it feels like we're in the hands, you know, kind of, I was talking about that that crazy carny before, but this guy, he might be wearing that carny disguise, but going back to the Scooby gang, when you pull off that mask, there's a talented guy. There is that rural Fellini underneath there, so he knows what the hell he's doing with this stuff. Oh, completely. Well, and it's funny because I think um... – because I was looking at some of the supplements. I, alas, do not have the Criterion or the Arrow release of this film, which I'd love to get both. But um, I do have the two-disc special edition that 20th Century Fox put out back a few years ago, which I believe is now out of print. And um, there is discussion of how, like, Russ was approached of being like, how are they going to deliver this dialogue? Are they supposed to deliver it like they know it's funny? And he was like, no, it will not be funny if they do that. What will make it funny if, if it's done straight. That's something that John Waters says in the um, the Criterion DVD. Um, it's a new interview with uh, him, and he says that the way that people speak their lines, like the way they deliver the slang, particularly, it's like 
it's like they've heard the words before and they say it with such sincerity, even though it's clear they don't really know what it means. It's almost like you've been phonetically taught English. Yes. And you're trying to say things back that way, yeah. Everything that I'm saying to you, I've learned to speak phonetically. As to the meanings of the individual words or the percumbent rules of syntax, I haven't a clue. Basically, everybody in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Where I think that's probably more kitsch than camp. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> there we go. Taking it back. I love it. This whole sequence with the drugs, but also we haven't touched we haven't touched upon auto. Don't forget and, to turn off the ovens. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, what's fascinating is Martin Borman because that's the thing you know because his name's Auto. But you know when Seaman's giving Kelly the tour in the beginning, it's like you know basically implying could it be you know Martin Borman, you know, or an alias for Martin Borman. And what's funny is Martin Borman pops up as a character in another Russ film, and I. Oh, yeah. And I believe Up. It's beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. He might even show up in Up because this seems like it was a running gag for Russ Meyer. Yeah. And the other weird thing is Martin Borman is also a character in The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, which uh, the, the Sex Pistols film, which was originally going to be a film called Who Killed Bambi, directed I by Russ Meyer. Yeah. Oh, whoa. Okay. You're one up on me. <laughs> yeah. I, c- I could see why they did it, that 20th Century Fox. Um, didn't greenlight it, but if you're not familiar with the script, uh, uh, spoiler alert, should I, can I go ahead? Go ahead. Okay, uh, there's a scene where uh, Sid Vicious uh, has sex with his mom. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, wasn't his mother supposed to be played by Marion Faithful? I, I think so, name. yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I cannot imagine what drugs, well, okay, I think that was, I'm sure Malcolm McLaren was involved. I'm a little rusty <laughs> on my pistols, but the pistols and Russ just makes, I know John Lydon writes about it in his first book, and just, yeah, it's like, yeah, they hate it. They immediately all hated each other. Like, Myers, you know, this World War II veteran, super jocular American, cigar-smoking guy, and, you know, all he sees are these, like, oh, these snotty, rude little British boys, you know? I mean, he's, I love Meyer, but that's not a guy who's going to understand the, the social, political importance of punk. You know, <laughs> and, I, and I love both of them equally. I probably love punk maybe even a little bit more, but yeah, that did not happen. So, but yeah, I, I don't know. Is Martin Borman in Russ's script for that? I don't recall. Then again, I hadn't seen, I don't think I even knew who Martin Borman was at the time I read the script. I think yeah. I read it. I read it either right before or right after I'd seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, wow. Yeah, because Martin Borman pops up um, bizarrely in that film. It's It makes no sense. <laughs> you talk about something making no sense. It's like, okay, the half of the pistols have uh, def- defected and are hanging out in South America with Ronnie Biggs, who was an infamous real-life uh, criminal and train robber, and an actor playing Martin Borman. <laughs> That. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's always so funny to go back and watch the great rock and roll swindle, the version that ended up coming out, and just seeing like little glimmers of who killed Bambi within it. I mean, it's just such a, a strange like blender hack job of the way that they took some pieces of some things. I mean, those weird animated sequences that they put in there, the, you know, the my way sequence, all of these things just kind of mashed together. And it's just like, what the hell is this? And it's just, it's a mess, but I watched it so many times when I was a kid because it was just like, Oh my God, it's the sex pistols. 
but it, I mean, it, it it's a terrible, terrible film. <laughs> it's, it's one of those films that it's terrible, and not to sidetrack too much from Beyond the Veil of the Dolls, but uh, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle is a film I love in spite of itself, because it mm-hmm. is, as a, as a cohesive film, yeah, I mean, it's not cohesive at all. I mean, but the some of the music in it is so great. And there's there are moments of of actual kind of near brilliance. I mean, the My Way seg- segment, uh, a disco band uh, doing a Pistols medley. Yes. That's beautifully shot. And just and the band's great. The Black Arabs was their name. <laughs> uh, so there's like little touches of Friggin' on the Riggin', that whole animated end sequence, fantastic song. You know, there's a lot of great bits in it. But yeah, it's it's a mess. And I cannot even imagine... I, to me, it's still even where anybody even thought of Meyer though with that band. That makes no. That would I'm, I'm trying to think of what would be like another good comparison. It'd be like yeah, you know, I don't know, like uh, David Lynch doing a new Christy Minstrels movie. I, that would work better than that. I don't know. I'd like to see him uh, directing Spice World myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Ray Wise in a Spice Girls movie. Did you wash your hands? No. Look at these hands, Ginger. They are filthy. <laughs> Oh my god, I love it, yes. But we keep meatloaf. Anyway, sorry guys, I feel like I totally just uh, sidetracked us on that. But yeah, that, so the whole party sequence is just, uh, I love like this weird like contrast between, you have Casey and Roxanne's scenes, where they're very loving with each other, and you have Lance, who's like clearly drugged out of his mind and playing with his teeth. Doing this weird lip teeth thing, and poor, poor Superwoman, aka Z Man. Did you guys feel bad for her? I felt a little bad. Uh, I mean, when Lance, you know, calls uh, Z Man an ugly broad and just is laughing. A goddamn uh, ugly broad. <laughs> I have to say, of all the lines in the movie, uh, that's one of the ones that I find myself quoting the most. You've been a broad all along, right, Barzell? A <laughs> goddamn broad? A goddamn ugly broad, Barzell? <laughs> An ugly broad! <laughs> But Z-Man, a.k.a. Superwoman, gets – she gets her comeuppance to Captain Tim and hilariously, like, the, the, he uses the 20th Century Fox fanfare <laughs> as the play. <laughs> I read online that apparently Meyer used that music to soften the blow because they were trying not to get an X rating. And that obviously did not work. But I love it that that was his idea of softening it to Captain I wonder how he got away with that, honestly. Like using it at that particular scene, like I don't know, this president like caused some sort of uproar. But then again, I think 20th Century Fox really wanted nothing to do with this film outside of the fact, like, yeah, just release it, give us money. Well, the <laughs> Go film do your thing. <laughs> well, the film made made bank because they were it they did. were in a, they were in some pretty vote like kind of scary financial times when they when they brought Meyer on board to do this film because they saw that how much money he made with Vixen which you yeah. know Vixen was super low budget and it made millions so I think I think they were probably just like you know what if he helps us pay the light bill well the thing that always gets me with the 20th century fanfare is that and I actually took the end of the movie and the beginning of the movie and obviously they they are similar but there are there's much more at the end of the movie there is more there's dialogue to it there's more shots there's the death of martin borman aka otto in there but you can almost line up where the 20th century fox fanfare is in the beheading scene with the 20th century fox fanfare at the beginning of the movie and they play 
parallel for a little bit. It's almost like that's where that was at the beginning of the film. So like when the, the logo is on screen, that's when Lance is getting beheaded at the beginning of the film. So it's this kind of weird circular thing that he's doing because we do get, you know, I keep saying the end of the movie, but there's a whole lot more to the end of the film. There's this kind of epilogue. There's the, the wrap up with all the characters, that narration that I was talking about. There's the triple marriage thing that we get and we get to see Porter Hall, you know, kind of get his comeuppance thing. But the way that he has that circular thing of the end at the beginning and the beginning at the end, you know, it's, it's just, it, it, that's another one of those moments where you're just like, wow, that, that is pretty darn cool. And that you could see where the 20th century logo is coming up at the end of the film and hearing it almost like bleed through. God, that's great. It's a cue to the audience. Like, Oh, we're back at the beginning. And of course, the whole idea of, you know, that so Casey ends up dying, Roxanne ends up dying. We could get into the whole political thing of did their weird lifestyle, and I'm using air quotes here, you know, was it because they were gay? Is that why they were punished? You know, and I'm sure that you could take scenes from this and throw them into the celluloid closet documentary without hesitation because, yeah, they probably got punished because they were gay and they were living this, you know, this out of normal relationship. And then it's almost through Casey's death uh, is how Harris ends up getting his legs back or ends up getting some of the feeling back in his legs. As it seems, you know, they even say that the act of death has let another life be reborn. So, but again, it's just so fucking cheesy and it's just par for the course. And I love it because of that. I always did think that was rather vague at um, Russ Meyers uh, part where he's moralizing about each of the characters, and he's talking about Casey and Roxanne, like, their love wasn't evil, but evil did come because of it, and I'm thinking, like, so what am I, like, the audience, like, as an audience, like, supposed to think of that? I, and I've, yeah, it's kind of, I always thought that was kind of odd, bizarre. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's always been kind of, like, I mean, I feel like a lot of Myers films have these weird sort of moral ambiguities that are kind of rooted in a well if you're going like back to the stuff like the american gothic period like mud honey and lorna you know faster pussycat there's almost like a hellfire and brimstone morality that's very defined in it but you know but then like something like vixen uh, which also had erica gavin where i mean our our main protagonist protagonist at one point is basically a racist nympho who has sex with her brother at one point (laughs) But then realizes the errors of her ways. And there's like, a, I think something involving communism. It's been a while since I've seen Vixen, but it's just like, that's just kind of Meyer. It's just he'll throw things at you um, that if you, you know, you if you if you thought about it too much, you'd be like, what the hell? Like, is this anti-gay? <laughs> is this anti-woman? Um, I don't think it's either. I think it's just Russ. I think it's just Russ yeah. Meyer. It's just what he, you know, Jackson Pollock does the great splatter technique russ meyer is the great american action the fellini he is the rule that is the isn't that the best descriptor ever i wish i would have thought of it because like it's so brilliant it's so perfect so let's go ahead we're going to take a break here and play a whole raft of interviews that i've gotten over the months um from folks involved with this film uh the one person i didn't get a um an interview with was uh Edie, um, <laughs> that was the day after I got the uh, confirmation that, um, like, oh yeah, you can talk on this show. It was so funny. Like after I was found out I was going to be on here and then to have this cease and desist letter, it was like, 
Wow. First day. <laughs> so I'm, I'm putting together the uh, episode and that, you know, I'm like, okay, let me see who I can get. And I'm sending out different emails and stuff. And I find Edie Williams has a website or had a website and it. It's just this mess. You know, it was way worse than that tubes website <laughs> we were looking at today, Heather. I mean, this thing broke in images everywhere, just held together by the grace of the internet. You know, I'm surprised it wasn't a GeoCities page. <laughs> And I get this email. Uh, so the subject line is, no interviews are granted. Sorry, this is by demand of relatives. Uh, this is from somebody going by the name of BK Williams Bobby. And in the body, it said, this is her attorney. Mr. Mike White, 321-2016. This is a notice to abate, cease, stop stalking harassments or pressures for the demand of miss williams time you shall be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law for any further disturbance yours truly harry wilson esquire ccewmwhw so <laughs> i'm like what the fuck i'd sent one email and this is what I got. And there was a, a a JPEG attached to the email. And it's it's a memo note that um it's it's hilarious. It's it's on one of those like while you were out and it's to Harry Williams, ship to email sent, uh order number request, terms denied, three twenty one twenty sixteen, uh uh, Mike White, ImpossibleFunky at gmail.com, and then it's got all this stuff. And there's a $500 price tag on this thing. So I'm just like, what the fuck is the $500? Is this what he charged? So I I, I uh, wrote back and I said, I just sent an interview request yesterday. I have not harassed anyone. Did you just charge her $500 to send an email? The response was, your bill is over $500. Back off. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah so completely out to lunch i don't know who the hell sent me that email really i don't know if it was uh what was it bk williams bobby or harrison harry wilson esquire i don't know it could have been porter hall for all <laughs> i know just bizarre well you won't be hearing an interview from Edie Williams, but you will be hearing a whole raft of interviews. The first one is with author Doyle Green, who wrote Hips, Lips, Tits, Power, the films of Russ Meyer. After that, we're going to hear from some of the actresses and actors from the film. We're going to hear first from Dolly Reed Martin, then Marsha McBroom, who played Pat, John Lazar, the Z-Man himself, Erica Gavin, a.k.a. Roxanne. And then we're going to hear two of the folks that brought us the music from the film. We're going to hear from Stu Phillips, the composer, and Lynn Carey, who provides the awesome vocals of the Carey Nations. And we'll hear from all those people after this quick break. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well... AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? 
It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick... <laughs> Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark. If you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> <laughs> will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcast via Libsyn, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, the projection booth. I know. It's messed up, right? How did you get into writing? And specifically, how did you get into writing about Russ Meyer? When I was an undergraduate in the early 80s, I was majoring in political science and history. But just through various circumstances, I ended up taking film courses to uh, fill out the electives and do some you know, like other requirements and stuff. And I really got into film studies and was, you know, and in some ways it was kind of, I found out I could talk about, you know, the stuff I was interested in in social sciences and film in a way that I couldn't in, you know, just like statistics and whatnot. So, so I really gravitated more towards the film and cultural studies angle about that time too. There was the early eighties. So, um, I grew up in a family of TV addicts and we had, uh, uh, we got a VCR and cable around the same week, and man, that was it. So, <laughs> and and cable in the '80s was great because you know ESPN used to show roller derby, and and Showtime used to show a lot of uh, exploitation and sexploitation stuff, and the USA in the afternoons on weekends would show like the old uh, Lucha Libre films. And, and so I really, dis, that's how I discovered a lot of the, the so-called trash cinema stuff. But I never really did anything with it until the late 90s when I decided to go back to grad school. And it, by then, things had changed quite a bit as far as the paradigms. You know, it, it was you could actually talk about more than Hitchcock or Goddard <laughs> in film studies. And yeah, so I, I kind of started getting a lot into the trash cinema stuff and ended up doing a master's thesis on uh, Russ Meyer's Lorna, which kind of parlayed into the book. So An awesome topic for a master's thesis. Oh, yeah. It was great. And, uh, and what was really fortunate was uh, I had people, uh, you know, what, what's always nice, um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not too much into the art thing um, as far as, you know, like, well, is Russ Meyer a good filmmaker, bad filmmaker? Just like, 
I don't know. You know, <laughs> the films are what they are. So, um, but you know, much more. They were they were the film studies thing is always stressed more about what's being said than how well it's being said. And so it was really fun to really work on that from the perspective of doing like the the textual analysis and, and not having to worry about whether Lorna Matron's a good actress or not, but you know, okay, what's going on with these scenes and how's, how, how is he framing, you know, gender politics and, at the time and stuff. So, so yeah, I, I really lucked out that I, I worked with a lot of really good advisors who were very receptive to that. Now was Lorna your first Meyer or what was your first foray into his films? The thing I did, the master's thing on Lorna was the first, uh, thing I did w- with Meyer and then um, I'd kind of been toying with the idea of writing a Meyer book around the time I, I was in grad school. I uh, submitted a proposal and um, somehow it got accepted. So, <laughs> so yeah, that t- ended up being the Russ Meyer book, kind of the stuff that I worked on in grad school. So when it comes to um, researching Meyer, how was that? I'm, I'm trying to remember when he passed away. Was he still around at the time? Uh, he, I think he uh, died, what, 2004, I believe. So it wasn't long after the book came out, I believe. But um, and, and there was a lot of uh, uh, stuff that um, uh, was available. And a lot of it, too. I, I kind of read them through a lot of... Uh, you know, in terms of the critical theory stuff that people um, we normally do. So I, I read them through a lot of the film theory stuff, which you know has been around for a while. So and especially like the feminist film theory and and all that kind of stuff. So it was um there was a lot of stuff out there, not necessarily related to Meyer, but more so in terms of kind of the areas he was working in and stuff. So. Yeah, because I remember B. Ruby Rich writing about him, but I don't remember yeah, too many it, people yeah, exactly. taking him that seriously. Yeah, I I think um I, I remember that essay she she wrote, actually, and and if I remember correctly, she was one ad, advanced the argument about um the 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 gender politics of Meyer and the idea that you know that it's um that there's he's kind of turning everything on their head. As far as you know, the the women are actually like the toughest guys in the movies and stuff. But I, yeah, I do remember that. And there were some other people who had worked on Meyer too. But I think yeah, I remember Ruby Rich was someone who was kind of spearheaded that stuff. And and around that time, I was fortunate because uh, there there was kind of a, an academic interest in trash cinema at the time. So there was a lot of people. Um, I know uh, Jeffrey Scott uh, wrote a great essay on um, trash cinema as uh, I think he used the term counter cinema and, and kind of looking at it more in terms of avant-garde cinema and oppositional cinema rather than, you know, the usual camp and, you know, so good it's bad kind of stuff. So can you tell me where was Meyer's career at when he got his big deal at uh, 20th century Fox? Well, I think, uh, you know, Meyer had been around for a while. Um, I, I think going back to the fifties, he started out as an industrial filmmaker and which I think is why he there's so much emphasis on the editing in his films, and just because he'd use a lot of stock footage and then have to edit it all together. So I think that industrial filmmaking aesthetic was definitely something he worked with. And he, he was also a pinup photographer. And if memory serves, Eve Meyer, his first wife, was a one of the first Playboy centerfolds, and I believe he he photographed. The, the layout that she did in Playboy. So he he, he was definitely established in, in those fields. And then um, 
from around 59 to 63, he had, he had done the, the nudie cutie films. I think, uh, the immoral Mr. T's was the most successful of them. You know, those were the, the very, you know, kind of garish burlesque comedy films. And so he'd had some success there. And then 64 through 66 was the second phase, which was kind of the nudie roughy phase as it's called. Um, and that was Lorna mud, honey, motorcycle and of course faster pussycat kill kill which i think is is probably the quintessential meyer film for me uh, and and those films were were you know the black and white films where he got into a lot of the the noir stuff the the naturalism you know these kind of weird naturalistic worlds and then in the third phase was around 67 through 69 when he got into the the sex satire stuff and he kind of went back to the color movies and little bigger budgets and, and a lot more emphasis on um, the, the the sexual politics and satire. And then out of those, you know, Vixen was the big hit for him. I think uh, I think uh, it, it was made for like a hundred under $100,000 and it, it grossed like $8 million. So, I mean, and this this was huge. I mean, like, and this is when Hollywood took notice of Meyer. It was like, okay, this guy's making money and we're not. And the, the other thing that happened was uh, was uh, Vixen became the subject of a lot of censorship. And, like, some cities banned it outright because there, there was, like, scenes where, like, she has sex with her brother and, and there, was a, there was a sex scene with another woman and stuff. So... And so a lot of, and, and I believe in Cincinnati just banned the film and it, it ended up going to the Ohio Supreme Court who ruled that the film was obscene and Meyer took it to the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, I, I think what ended up happening was they declined to hear the case. So, so in addition to the fact that you had this film that was a huge box office hit, it was also very controversial as far as the censorship and um, those kind of issues. And so Meyer, by the time uh, he contracted with Fox, was very well known in terms of you know filmmaking and this whole field. I know a lot of studios were taking chances back mm-hmm. in the late '60s with yeah. young or different directors. Uh-huh. You know, I know Universal had their whole program of you know taking shots on people like Peter Watkins and these guys. Yeah. And, uh, so w- was it? pretty much the same thing over at Fox as far as we're going to get a new crop of directors and give them some money and see what they can do. You know, I'm not really sure about that. I, I, I think it was specific reference to Meyer. It was just more of a case where, you know, this, this guy had, had demonstrated that he had box office clout and had, had a lot of uh, controversial name recognition. So I think they, it was kind of for them, just kind of a gamble to bring him in and see what might happen. So, but yeah, the, the, I do, and I think Corman too. You know, just to, to digress, too, was kind of like the training ground for a lot of those directors in the '60s. It, it's amazing how many people came out of Corman's stable. So, one of the most notable things about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, at least these days, is that Roger Ebert was the screenwriter on it. Uh-huh. Do you know how he and Meyer kind of joined forces in this? Vixen had like this, I think it, there was like this kind of a low budget theater called the loop 
in Chicago, and Vixen ran for some, like over a year continuously at the Loop because it was just bringing in people every night. Ebert went to see the film, and he actually ended up becoming a defender of Meyer critically, and he wrote a very, you know, fairly positive review of, of Vixen, and and like some of the things he had touched on, really liked it because it it wasn't making any pretense of, uh, you know, being a, anything more than it was as far as well, to be a sex film, you know, and it, it, it wasn't as, and drenched in a lot of what Ebert saw as a lot of the puritanical stuff that was going on in a lot of the films. You could show sex as long as in some ways you portrayed it as like, okay, if you have sex, you're going to face the consequences, you know, which was the old exploitation thing. You know, it's like if you if you have sex or like do drugs or whatever, listen to rock music, you know, it's going to corrupt you. And, and Meyer, so more, I guess, away from that. And and that's the one thing Ebert had, had um, talked about in his review, that it was, um, that he was actually doing a lot of a satire of, of the whole idea that if you had, did a nude film, you had to have some kind of social relevance to it. And he pointed out, like, it's like, basically, Vixen is just, you know, sex for an hour and then they have the discussion about civil rights in Vietnam and, and stuff in the last 15 minutes just so it was like ah here's here's the social relevance and like Ebert said you know basically when, when they get on the plane and start the discussion basically you can leave the theater you know so because at that point the film's over so and I think uh, yeah Ebert ended up doing interviews and stuff and they became friends and so when um, Meyer got offered the uh, the chance to do uh Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, he, he brought in Ebert to do the screenplay. I know that Valley of the Dolls was a very successful film when it uh-huh, came out. Yeah. Was this ever supposed to be a legitimate sequel? Well, I, I, it was originally intended to be a sequel, and I think at one point in the screen, Ebert screenplay, they had two of the characters uh, from Valley of the Dolls. But what ended up happening was Jacqueline Suzanne sued 20th Century Fox I'm not sure if she sued uh, the other people involved. I know she sued the studio and basically said, you know, you don't have my permission to do a sequel. And I think that case went on until like the mid-70s when they finally settled. But yeah, so she was not happy about it. And that's why you have the disclaimer in the beginning of BVD is that, you know, this is not a sequel. Because basically they they were under uh, litigation at the time. So, yeah, so Jacqueline Suzanne put the, the kibosh on it. But um, I think what's interesting for me is, is that, so it was, even though it wasn't a sequel per se, it was still definitely the inspiration because Ebert had panned Valley of the Dolls when, when it came out in 67. Or it was 67 or 68, I, I forget. But, um, I mean, he just, and, and the reasons he um, hated the film, he just talked about, about the inane dialogue and, um, you know, the fact that you have these actresses who are basically, you know, being brought out just for eye candy. And, and then, the whole, again, the whole message of, of Valley of the Dolls, you know, like, you know, how sex corrupts people and that kind of thing. So, he saw, again, he saw it as a very puritanical film. And so I think he's very much um, responding to Valley of the Dolls with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, even though it's not a sequel as such. I think he's kind of like turning Valley of the Dolls on its head and, and just writing, you know, this really ridiculous dialogue and just like this gratuitous nudity and, 
and all that kind of stuff. So, And how was the film received when it finally came out? At the time, I know it was a box office success. Um, I think it, it ended up making like 10 times the budget back. So, yeah, I mean, so it was, um, I think it was around something like um, roughly a million dollars. And I think it made like $10 million for the studio. So the studio was very happy with it. I think, I think, you know, but by and large, it, it was pretty much attacked, you know, and, and critics hated it, but it, it's such a bizarre film that it's really hard to get a handle on it. So, but yeah, a lot of the, the critics did not care for it at all. How does it kind of fit into Meyer's body of work? Again, with, with Meyer, it's, um, his fundamental thing in the end, I think was a satirist. And, um, I think that's what he uh, picked up on with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was the whole satire thing. But it was it was a different kind of satire. Um, I think um, when, when Ebert um, wrote the screenplay, I think he used the word, um, he basically thought, didn't really see it as a screenplay, but uh, just an anthology of every cl- Hollywood cliche they could think of. And and uh, and so there's all these references and, and in-jokes. And um, like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, it um, begins almost identically to uh, Douglas Sirk's Written on the Wind, where, where basically the, the film begins by showing the ending, and then you just kind of okay, then it starts back to what led up to the ending and stuff. So, so they were referencing Cirque and I know that the, uh, the citizen Kane reference, it, it, when the scene where the guy tries to commit suicide at the soundstage while the band's playing that, that, that pan was lifted right out of citizen Kane. And, um, so there was a lot of, of those kind of things going on. And, um, Ebert said, um, he, he had kind of like viewed the screenplay as self-conscious camp. And I don't think, um, I think it, in some ways that could have really backfired, you know, because it, it's the whole uh, Susan Sontag's argument that camp that tries to be camp really works as camp. And I, I think what, for me, where the film really works was that Meyer insisted on, on having the actors play everything straight. So they're just, you know, like playing this, this really over the top dialogue, just totally deadpan and, and serious. And then there's these, there's weird moments that come in, like um, where the guy jumps out, off the thing and, and the, when he's jumping off the thing, trying to kill himself <laughs> and they have the sound of the jet of, of the fighter plane crashing as he's like plummeting to the earth. And then it cuts to that scene where they're in the, the hospital and, and the, the guy who's treating them is Dr. Scholes. <laughs> and, and beyond that, it's like he's, he's explaining, you know, it's like, well, he, he's, he's going to be in a wheelchair, but uh, a disabled person can live a happy and productive life. <laughs> and they're playing all this corny soap opera organ music in the background. And, and it's that kind of stuff that, that, it's, it, that really is the satire stuff that goes on that I think works really well in the film. So it's, um, it's this very odd mixture of these actors. The actors are almost trapped in the film trying to like play it straight. And then there's just all this, you know, like over the top satire going on around them. So I think, I think to me, that's why the film is so fascinating. And I think that was the nature of Meyer's satire. It wasn't a, a very heavy handed satire. It wasn't like a Mel Brooks kind of satire. It was much more of a dark, uh, uh, 
kind of almost black comedy satire. And one of his huge influence was actually Little Abner. And uh, and so I think he, he took a lot from that. And Cap was definitely, you know, Al Cap was definitely a satirist too, satirizing a lot of American values and mores and that kind of thing. Was Meyer one to reuse a lot of cast members to, to have a, a troop of actors that he would use? Oh, yeah. Uh, Stuart Lancaster, I know, was in a couple of his films. He plays the uh, guy in the wheelchair in Faster Pussycat. And and he's also the star of Good Morning and Goodbye, the older guy who's married to the younger woman. And Erica Gavin, who played Vixen, also had a supporting role in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So, yeah, he did, he did have a, a fairly... Um, uh, uh, sorry, a uh, stable of, of people, and and some people became fairly well known. Um, like Alex Rocco was the star of Motorcycle, and Charles Napier was, uh, I believe, he was in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and then he later was one of the stars of Super Vixens. Yeah, and I'm not sure. Uh, maybe you don't know more about this, but um, I think Meyer influenced a lot of those people too. I I don't know if my if Demi has ever talked about it. But I think he he did influence the, that younger generation of of uh, directors, and I know he's a huge influence on John Waters and stuff. I think, uh, and I, I always loved uh, John Waters' comment that uh, he was he was the Eisenstein of sex films, <laughs> and, and I, I think that um, that's actually quite brilliant in a way because I, I think that really sums it up. Well, yeah, his use of montage is just amazing. Oh, that, and 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 it's really weird how. And some of the montages are just so bizarre. Some, there's the one, uh, uh, Finders, Keepers, Lovers, Weepers. Uh, and, and I don't think that, that's, probably, for me, one of the lesser Meyer films. But there's that incredible scene where the couple is having sex in the swimming pool. And he's intercutting it with footage of a demolition derby. <laughs> and, it, and it just comes out of nowhere. And, and I think that's the kind of stuff that... Um, made Meyer so interesting. Again, it's very satirical, but it's uh, not a, not jokey. It's, it's, and it's very much, you know, yeah, you know, sex car crashes, you know, and it's, and, and there's always one of Meyer's quotes I remember was that, you know, when they asked him why he depicts sex the way it is. And he said, well, you know, basically when I do it, I like to do it like a football scrimmage. So I think that was kind of his aesthetic, you know, and, and that 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 sex violence thing that kind of always gets blurred in all of his films. So he makes Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and as you said, it makes back ten times its budget. Yeah. Why doesn't he become the next flavor of the month after that? Well, I, I think after that, uh, he uh, did The Seven Minutes. Which just, uh, it, it was an adaption of a, another kind of one of these uh, trashy novels. I think Irving Wallace wrote the novel. And they'd kind of gotten them because it involved a court case about censorship and stuff. So it kind of seemed like it was uh, it was something that was going to be right up Meyer's alley. But um, it kind of ended up being a courtroom drama. It's, it's been ages since I've seen the film, so my memory might be way off on this. But you know, it it just doesn't have any of of, of the pizzazz of a Meyer film. Meyer's long suit was not the long take, <laughs> and so and so it it's it's a really ponderous film, and and it, it bombed. And after that, the studio severed ties with him and stuff. So so does that then begin his his final phase of war? Yeah. Uh huh. 
Yeah, he did that. He kind of he did that one. Um, it was a uh, when the black exploitation thing was really big. He did a uh, one of those uh, black snake, which was which is his, his kind of parody of plantation plantation uh, ex- black exploitation movies. But um, I think what really happened was in the final stages, um, which was Super Vixens up and Beyond the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. And I think by that point, Ebert was becoming really involved with the screenplays. Meyer started to really become, it was almost like he was making Russ Meyer films about Russ Meyer films by the end. And so he became much more of a very self-referential. And in a weird way, he almost became this kind of postmodernist director because a lot of the films were about him making films about his previous films and stuff. And like Super Vixens, I mean, all the characters... You know, there's like Super Lorna, and I forget some of the other characters' names, but they're all references to his previous heroines in his film. So is Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens kind of a, a play? Well, obviously the title's a play yeah. on Beneath, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but is there a play on the, the subject matter there? Uh, not really. From I, I, I would say it's much more just in, in keeping with Meyer's um, emphasis on satire, I, I think for me, um, what I was struck by how much of the film is, is kind of a satire of Last Tango in Paris. The all emphasis of Beyond the Valley of the Ultravixens is anal sex. <laughs> so, and and how the, how how Kitten Natividad's husband can only like do it, you know, anally, and how she hates it. And so I think he was kind of doing a send up of that kind of thing. I think that's what's. Um, in some ways, you know, one of the underwriting theme about Meyer's works is, how do I want to say it? There's these contradictions involved in his stuff because he was very, you know, very much at the forefront of the whole, quote, sexual liberation, unquote, thing. But, you know, his his films in some ways are very, um, you know, it's good old-fashioned sex. You know, it's, you know, there's not a lot of... uh, you know, homosexuality or, you know, it's just, you know, it was, you know, very, very Hegelian, you know, man, man, woman, you know, climax kind of (laughs) sex in Meyer's films. And so he he was really traditional in that way, as far as, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, weird sexual things going outside his films as much as he was, you know, really pushing the boundaries of what was permissible on screen at the time. So it was well within, I guess, you know, normative heterosexuality and normative masculinity and stuff. He makes like rough, sh- rough estimate, seventeen movies in the '60s. He makes not even seven movies in the '70s, and then nothing in the '80s and '90s. Yeah, what happened? You know, I, I really don't know on that. Um, I, I think you know, I think basically he just kind of retired, and um, he, and I think some of it too is I. I know you talked about um <clears throat> it was um by that point by the late seventies um the, a lot of the his his brand of nudie film you know was kind of becoming obsolete and um like and you know pornography had, had basically become fairly mainstream by that point and then with by the eighties you'd have like you know you didn't have to go to the 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 theater in the bad part of town anymore you could just go and rent pornography at the at the video store and, and watch it at home. So, so I think a lot of it just came down to, it was just, um, his, his style wasn't, uh, 
really where that the genre was headed. And um, and it, it, like you know, he, he his great uh, quote was that he, he said he'd never do straight pornography because there was no humor in it. So <laughs> he just found it very you know utilitarian and very um, you know it just you know cut and dry. You know more like um, you know a bit like watching health movie or something and stuff. So he, so he said he never had any interest, but he, he also said, you know, it's really hard to compete, you know, with when, when they're basically showing what, you know, we we're still trying to hint at and stuff. So I, I think just a lot of it, the times changed and maybe his style just wasn't appropriate. That's more or less speculating on my part, but yeah, he, I think like 78 was the last film that he did as such. And then I think he did, uh, that, that something in the, in Later on, yeah, Pandora's Peaks and oh, okay, 2000. okay, yeah, I, I actually haven't even seen that, so, so, um, and and I think that was more of a just a, kind of, no, was that more of kind of a quasi documentary thing on her? I think so, yeah. Okay, yeah, but yeah, I think a lot of it was just you know by then it was like you know, and he had said even by the early seventies it was like you know how do you compete with a film like Deep Throat or something, you know, or. And um, so I think he, he kind of just saw that. Um, and I think that's why he became, and you know, he, by that point he had enough money to, to, he wasn't really beholden to studios and stuff. And I think in, in some ways, a lot of the, the later films, you know, are just, he's making the films more for his amusement in some ways and just having fun with them. And kind of, like I said, you know, making films about his other films and kind of doing a lot of intentional self parody. So, but he was pretty much set, you know, by the end. So it, it wasn't like an economic thing where he had to churn out movies. So, I, and I think he just, you know, kind of just ended up, it was not really where he wanted to go with movies anymore. But like I said, that's uh, kind of trying to read Russ Meyer's mind. So I'm not sure what was going on at the end. When you were doing your research on him, was it fairly easy to get your hands on some of these materials or were they still pretty out of touch? Honestly, the the hardest thing was this was uh, before the internet. So, so so now the internet. Oh God, it's like thank you. Um, but um, it was a little tougher just because everything was in um in you'd have to go to the libraries and, and and so everything was still in print. And I remember one time I was trying to find a, a film comment thing on him that I think Ebert had written, uh, and I finally found it at a library. I checked it out and somebody had basically ripped out those pages out of the film comment. And so, but I mean, so it was, it was, wasn't too tough, but, um, and there, there's a few print books. Um, uh, David Frey, David K. Frazier, I believe, um, did the Russ Meyer book. Um, it's, it's a very good introduction with a lot of, um, kind of, a an overview of the career, but it's, it's mostly a bibliographic thing where we're just every article that's written on Meyer. So that was a big help. And, uh, and like some of the essays we had talked about too, like Ruby Rich's essay and, and people who at the time were starting to take them seriously. And then some of the other books that came out, um, the, the book Grindhouse, I believe came out around that time. And, uh, and the research book, incredibly strange films, which is, which is definitely still a go-to text as far as that stuff. So, but um, there wasn't a lot of academic stuff being done on Meyer, and, and the stuff that was, you know, really didn't. You know, there was one I, I think that I read um, 
I forget what it was, but but basically, you know, it was an academic essay basically saying that Meyer didn't have any talent, and it was kind of like, well, this this serves no purpose for me. So, but now with the internet, everything, and and thankfully, a lot of stuff has is is available on the internet that was out of print. So, but not your book though. It's it's definitely out of print. Yeah, that's out of print. So, I, I'm hoping that one of these days it'll come back. You know, I, I'm not sure if I have any more copies. Of, I think I have the one copy that's of it. I have one copy of it still, and and I can't get rid of that because it's signed by Tourist Satana. So, so that. But otherwise, I, I would uh, I, if I had a leftover copies, I'd offer to send you one. So. No, it's okay. It's just, yeah. No, it's just a shame that it's not, you know, available for the masses to continue. Well, to Well, you know, and. And then that's kind of okay. you know I you know like I say it's um once I get done with a book it's like it, I I kind of like okay and somebody always said you know it's like wow it must be like having a baby and I said no it's more like having a really rotten teenager who turns eighteen and you can kick him out of the house you know so so I never I, you know honestly the only time I've ever looked at another stuff that I've written is if I'm looking for a quote that might be. But yeah, I'm. Uh, and in all honesty, I think the Meyer book. Um, I mean, I, I'm glad the people liked it, and um, and and whatever the the reader wants to get out of it is is great for you know if they get information out of it, that's fine. Um, you know, I'm glad it, that's productive for them. But but in all honesty, I think I would have written a different book. You know, and I mean that just is natural. You know, I mean, I, I wrote it like 12 years ago, I think. So, and and I still was kind of. I think some of it suffers from graduate studentitis. <laughs> so, so I, I think there's a lot of points. Well, well, did I really need to like quote every guy in my bookshelf in it and stuff? But you know, I, I think it it works. And but I think a, a lot of it too is I, I I'm not for me personally sure. Like I said, and I don't think it, it's a rap against Meyer, but I think it, it was just more he was a practice of his times. You know, the, the '60s. And and the whole 60s thing, it was, uh, you know, it was that weird, you know, time with sexual revolution, but it was also very, uh, you know, very sexist, you know, chauvinistic kind of revolution, too. I mean, uh, but I, I, Wayne Kramer, the MC5, one of my favorite bands, uh, he, he had a great quote where it was um, basically what it was, was we were sexist bastards. You know, the, the guys got to go out and fuck and the women got to sit around and if they complained, they were bourgeois bitches, you know? <laughs> and, and I think to me that, and I, I think what Kramer really pointed out was, uh, was, was there even in this era of, of sexual revolution, there was still this big double standard as far as gender and sexual politics. And, and I think maybe Meyer, I think in some ways succumbs to that as far as the sixties and, and that stuff that I, I've worked on since and stuff kind of looking at that. So, so I think maybe I would, I, I think maybe that I'm not sure that he's quite the, uh, the radical feminist, that I thought he was at the time and stuff. I think he definitely problematizes gender and sexuality. And I think that's probably in a lot of ways, the message more than the message itself. So I don't know if that makes sense or not, but, and like I said, you know, just the contradictions of his stuff, I think are, are in some ways more are important than really trying to, to find this unified Russ Meyer theory and stuff. Cause he was really all over the place. So. Yeah. It seems like the one thing Obviously, uh, his theme is just big boobs. Oh yeah, 
<laughs> and uh, well, it was so funny because when I was in grad school and uh, I was talking with one of the professors at where I was, and he was, he was like, "Well, so what are you talking about?" And I was like, "Well, you know, I'm talking about you know this, you know, kind of this, uh, you know, sex violence, you know, the, the blurring the distinction." So I'm going to bring in, you know, like this idea that he's kind of like a cross between little Abner and the Marquis de Sade and stuff. And, you know, and looking at terms of, you know, naturalism and, and kind of these, you know, the Russ Meyer world, it's always this, this world that's kind of not quite civilization, but it's too human to be, you know, the, uh, the animals. So it's this weird middle ground between like civilization and, and the animal world. And he's listening. He goes, so, when are you going to talk about tits? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I did. I was just like, okay, point taken. Yeah, because I mean, that's that is like the the raison d'etre of, of a Meyer film it is the big boobs and stuff. So, <laughs> but um, and that's and, and I think that's always been the the thing. It's like you know, it's like, you know, the, just the fetishistic aspect of it. And so, but I think in a lot of ways, what I've always said with Meyer was. What I always think is interesting is that everything in Meyer is 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 always exaggeration. So it's like these, like I say, that's why I love Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is because Tori Satana is not only the you know the the most buxom woman in the film, but she's also the toughest guy in the film. <laughs> and and I think that's what's great about the film. And so and so she is she she's like this or woman or something, you know, and and she's just like um. Yeah, basically she 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 wipes out everybody in the in the film, but and and it's it's almost like a horror film in a way. You know, she's the monster, and basically you know she's gonna die because she's outside the sexual norm. You know, because she's basically a butch lesbian, and but you can't help root for her anyway. You know, and stuff, and it's but and I think that's but oh that reminds me too. Yeah, and I think when we're getting back to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, I think that's uh. uh one of the things is going back to that is um that idea of underneath you know the satire of hollywood and and you know film and clichés it is very much i think that kind of a uh, that sexual political view that that Russ Meyer had you know and and again in beyond the valley of the dolls you have the, the villain who turns out to be i believe he's a hermaphrodite isn't he so yeah he's he's like the the, the sexual aberration so he's got to wipe out uh you know all the, all the whores and all the other you know bad people in the film and then he ends up getting killed and then it concludes with a triple wedding <laughs> and so and so it's just like okay let's you know it's like just okay now now let's just not make things normal but you know super normal and um and so there's always this this weird thing where where at the end you always have the this the couple who's reconciled at the end you don't like every hollywood film you know the couple gets together at the end but it's always this really sar- sarcastic take on the couple because they're usually the, the two dullest per- people in the movie who end up surviving and getting together. So, so I think that's, um, something. And, um, yeah, some of the other things I was going to mention real quick about them. Oh yeah. And, and what was really, and, and one of the, I think the really darkest jokes in, um, in beyond the Valley of the dolls is that, um, they, uh, were just slated to film a few days before Sharon Tate's murder. And Sharon Tate was one of the stars of Valley of the Dolls. 
and so and so they decided to like change the ending and turn it into this massacre, which it, it's kind of a really macabre joke in some ways. But yeah, but yeah, the whole massacre ending was inspired by Sharon Tate's murder, I guess. So, so you know, in in, in great exploitation film fashion, you know, just uh, take take something really t- lured out of the headlines, and then since it has a in joke reference as well, but it is an amazing film. Yeah, yeah, and and but yeah, it's it's such and to me, why I always love that film is it's yeah, just like I said, it's just. I almost feel bad for the actors at times because they're they're struggling so hard to keep it together and and Meyer's like sabotaging it at every step of the way and and so yeah it's it's a very bizarre film and with Meyer there's so much stuff going on and I think at times it, it's if you could fault Meyer maybe it gets a little bit into pastiche I guess and sometimes it just seems you know it's like the reference for reference sake and stuff. I, I think and I think that's some of the problems I have with uh, some of the later stuff, is is that there's that that the references are just kind of like well can you, it's like that spot the reference kind of competition between the viewer and the director and stuff, like there's a, I know in up there's just a very gratuitous reference to Psycho, just for no other reason than it's a reference to Psycho and stuff. Just as a reminder, because I know some folks, uh, they say, oh, you say who all the interviews are going to be with, and then you don't really come back in and say who the next person is. So I will tell you that the next interview that you hear is going to be from Dolly Reed Martin, who played Kelly McNamara from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. When you grew up, you were kind of, were you involved with the whole swinging 60s London scene? I left home when I was 17 in Bristol, so I was very naive. Bristol's very large, but it's still, we lived in the country area. It's the same place that um, Cary Grant was born. You know how many people I talk to that don't even know who Cary Grant was? But in fact, it was funny. Um, we were, Dick and I were, yeah, we went to Peggy Lee's house for a cocktail party and um, uh, from like 6 to 7, 7.30 or something like that. And Dick and I walked in, and Cary Grant came up to him and said, Hi, Dick, Cary Grant, and shook hands. And I went, Oh, my God. And, and he introduced me, and, uh, he, you know, he was very polite and very pleased to meet you and started walking away. And I went, I'm from Bristol. And he went, you're from Bristol? Oh, my God. He went on, and we talked for about 20 minutes um, with, about Bristol and about how the pubs in England uh, go, the stairs in uh, England and, and the pubs go right down into the water because it's a seaport and an airport. 
and um, how the pirates used to come up and bring in the illegal booze and stuff, and how his mother lived in Henley's, which I, I knew very well. And he said, does your parents still live in England? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'm going to England to see my mother. He said, why don't I give him a call when I get there? I said, you're going to call my mother? And he said, yeah. I went, oh, my God. He took down all the information, and James Bacon, the um, the columnist, was there writing it all down for him. And so I, I said to Dick, okay, we're leaving now. He said, we just got here. I said, are you kidding me? I just met, met Terry Grant, my idol. I said, no, we're leaving. So um, we we went, and we were having dinner that night with Bob Newhart and his wife, Ginny, who are very close friends and still are with us. And um, they and I said, Ginny, can I use your your phone? She said, sure. I said, but it's to England. She said, oh, that's fine. It's okay. So I called my mother and I said, Mom, if Cary Grant calls you, it is Cary Grant. Don't hang up. <laughs> but um, uh, his mom died like uh, a week or so later. And yeah, but but since then, before he died, of course, we went to the Hollywood Park with him and stuff. But it would have been a gas had he called my parents. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I remember when um, when Laughing was on Rona Martin's Laughing, and um, uh, John Wayne was on the uh, on the show, and my mother said, "Oh, there's John Wayne." She was visiting me at the time. And she went up to him, and he went to shake her hand, and she threw her arms around him. And she's like five four, and he's huge, and um, and it made every paper in in England <laughs> front page. Oh, you know, she was a, a celebrity in her own right for five minutes. <laughs> so I've had a very, very entertaining life so far. Did you want to be an actress when you were growing up? Yes. Yes, of course. I was. I went to uh, uh, Eileen Hartley Hodder School of Drama and went after school three days a week. And um, and when I, I left home when I was 17 and went to London, I, my mother always insisted that I be, uh, knew typing and shorthand. I was dreadful at shorthand. But typing, so I supported myself while I was in London because it was a big move to make. And, um, and I, I did, um, quite a bit of stuff in, in, um, in London. And that's when I did the movie, um, Kiss the Vampire when I was 17. It's actually a quite a good movie, but I, and Dick got, got it for me. And I was like, I had like four lines in it and I got eaten by bats. <laughs> so we're watching it and I, and I looked down and I said, I think that's my voice. I didn't even recognize myself. <laughs> Did your parents in Kiss of the Vampire open a lot of doors for you? Yes, actually. I was very young, so it, it, I really didn't do uh, I did television a lot of television over there but I could not wait to come to America I just ever since I was like six years old I wanted to go to America because in my mind 
America was uh, cowboys and Indians and gangsters. That's all we saw in England, so that's what I thought there was. And I was here for a while, and I said, wait, where are the gangsters? And somebody said, look around the room. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> I realize now that was kind of true, but I always wanted to come. So when I saw the ad for, I think they interviewed about a thousand girls, so anyway, I came to America, you know, as one of the six girls. They wanted girls to open the London club, but they wanted them to train in Chicago, at the club in Chicago, to, so that we could open the club in London. And so we went through a seven-month hell, actually. And um, it was, I can't begin to tell you, we had uh, till four in the morning, we worked till four in the morning, learning to be at the club, we had the uh, door bunny, the uh, the uh, pool bunny, the photographer, um, the and all the way up. We had to work up to the play play uh, room bunny, and the VIP bunny, and learned. Oh my gosh! But you had to call the drinks in in a certain order, and I still. To this day, I know I'm a dummy, but to this day, I don't know the difference between scotch and bourbon. And that was what got me so many times. But we, and then we had to take, um, we, we did a um, photo session and I was chosen to be a, a Miss May 1966. Okay, so, so you ended up working for the club first and then you... Work yeah. for, or were in the magazine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They wanted to promote the London Club. So I called my mother and I said, they want me to be a playmate. And she said, oh, well, I said, but they only want to show the boobs. <laughs> so she said, well, my girl, if you can look yourself in the mirror and not be ashamed, um, go ahead. <laughs> so that's what we did. And it was, it was, a, it was a gasp. I had a wonderful photographer who was Italian. I had a big family, and Pompeo Poser, and um, and it was I was so naive that before the the shot was taken, he'd have me uh, uh, go against my nipples with my hands, and I said and to make them hard. And I said, "Why are you doing that?" And he said, "Because it's sexy." I said, "It is." <laughs> I was I was 21 at the time. <laughs> oh God, I was so naive. But I was the first English playmate, so that was a nice thing. Now, when you were learning at the club, did you have to learn all of those different positions? Yes. Oh my gosh, the bunny dip and all of that stuff. But um, I I did quit actually. Um, I didn't know it, but I had pneumonia. We, we, we Don't forget that during the day we were doing interviews and television shows and radio shows, the photography and, and, and all the publicity for the London Club, which we interviewed uh, 30,000 people to be bunnies, and some of them weren't, weren't women um, and would wear like a, a coat and then open it up and like, oh, my God, put that back on. And, um, <laughs> please. And, um, um, it was, it was a great time. It was, uh, it was fun, but I wanted to come back to America to 
actually live here, but I was, I got pneumonia in Chicago and I was so fed up with being a bunny and they, but it was coming out that how much I loved being a bunny, which I did when the photos were taken. But after seven months of rigorous work till four in the morning and then getting up at 10 to start, you know, effort, uh, uh, promoting the club in London, you get a little tired after seven months. And I didn't know it, but I had pneumonia, and I, but I, I quit the club. And they said, you can't quit, you can't quit, you're saying how much you love it. So they made me um, uh, the door bunny. After, but I was, I was sick for about five weeks, and I had to have uh, penicillin every day and all that stuff. But um, and then I came back to England, and I wanted to come back so badly. And um, I went to, uh, to dinner with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and, and my mother because I didn't want to be alone with him. And I said, I can't go out with you because my mother's with me. Oh, bring your mother. So we went to the um, club, the West Knightsbridge Sporting Club in London. And he said, I have a way of playing roulette. And he said, and he said, this is what you do, and you put them, you two or three um, slots over. That's what you bet. Well, I ended up. He 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 won thirty thousand dollars. I won six thousand dollars, and my mother refused to gamble. <laughs> so she she he gave. He we started with a hundred dollars, and then um, she would not spend that at all. Hundred dollars? How can you spend that? which was, what, 50 pounds. I went to, I came to America. Um, I spent 3,000, about 3,000 on my family and my uh, friends and my mother and father. And then I came over with $3,000. I couldn't get my green card in Los Angeles. And so I went to Chicago and they tried to play, but I stayed at the mansion there in Chicago uh, on State Street, I think it was. I, I, we tried and tried, and eventually we got it. But I was so broke by then, and I said, well, I'm so close to New York. Why don't I go to New York from here instead of going back to California? And I realized that, in, that it's a great place to visit New York. I love New York, but certainly not to live. I had pneumonia again because I did couldn't afford a coat, and it was 15 below zero uh, wind chill factor. And um, people said, "Aren't you cold?" I said, "No, I'm English. I don't get cold." Well, I did, and then I was on stage doing um, a promotion for Chevrolet, I think it was, and they didn't have stairs for me to get off the stage, which was ridiculous so they had this rickety chair and someone was helping me off and I fell and cracked my my instep bone on my foot and so I said something's telling me to leave New York and so it's a great place to visit but I, I obviously can't live there I love the sun and I love uh, the palm trees when I landed in in Los Angeles I said this is heaven there was blue skies. There were people smiling. There was no gray buildings. There was um, people actually smiled and wore pretty colors. And and I just 
Well, now I live in Malibu, uh, right on the on the beach, and each day when I go out there, uh, it's just heaven. I mean, I'm I'm actually in heaven, except Dick's in heaven, and he shouldn't have gone. Well, I'm curious. When did you end up meeting him? You remember a comedian called Jack Carter? Um, Jack Carter um, was was dating a friend of mine. And I was having dinner with somebody from Playboy. It was an executive from Playboy. He was in town visiting. And I went to go to the loo. And uh, on the way, there was Jack in, in a booth with this pretty blonde in the middle and Dick Martin. And I never thought Dick was any anything hot at the time. I knew he, he had a great show, but never uh, personally went for him but he said Dolly come and meet so I went over and when you know in the comic strips sometimes when you look into someone's eyes and the and the sparks are flying that's what happened with Dick and I we looked at each other and and then the next day Jack Carter said to me Dick was really crazy about you could I give him your phone number and I said sure and eight weeks later Eight weeks, and I. By the time he called me, eight weeks later, and he said he was on a tour um, uh, with the Maltese Bippy, the a terrible, terrible movie. Uh, he, I mean, really bad. He, I mean, I knew he took a lady there, but anyway, he calls me, and I said, I don't want to go out with this fella. It takes him eight weeks to call me, blah blah blah. And so he calls me, and he says. Um, Hi, Dolly. This is Dick Martin, and I think I love you. And it, it just made me laugh. And and that was it. Two years later, we got married. Then we got divorced because he said we could adopt a baby. And I really was going from 29 to 30-ish, and I really wanted a baby. And he said we could adopt. And then we're sitting at the beach, and he says to me, I lied. I said, what do you mean you lied? I said, that's a big lie. He said, well, what can I tell you? I don't want to have children. And so we went to a friend of ours said, this is this great uh, marriage counselor guy you go to. And he said to me, you get divorced and you get divorced today and here's your attorney. And I went, wait, wait, wait. I don't want to get divorced. Anyway, we got divorced and um, we were dating the whole time we were going through the divorce. And at that time, in, uh, gosh, this was 73, 73, I think it was, he said, um, the um, uh, uh, the judge said, you're going to give her $4,000 a month for four years. So I'm living with Dick. So he gets a little pissed, and he said, why do I have to pay you 4000 a month when we're living together? And I said, don't pay me. I don't care. Don't pay me. And he said, the judge says I got to pay you. So I kicked back 2000 a month to him in cash because he was writing me off uh, uh, with, um, with the um, tax-wise. And, and we're living together, so I give him 2000 a month in cash. And he loved it. He loved his cash. So we, and then the, four, the, the day after the four years were over, we got married again. And he said, said he just said, well, the divorce didn't work out. <laughs> and 
it didn't. I think that would be the name of my book. <laughs> Divorce didn't work out. So I have to ask you, how did you come to the role of Kelly McNamara? I was really in a tight spot money-wise. I was, um, in fact, I went to the International House of Pancakes to um, to try and get a job, and they wouldn't even give me the time of day. So for many, many years, I didn't go to IHOP. I mean, I mean, a good 30 years, I didn't go there. And um, talk about holding a grudge, right? But they, they didn't even try, they didn't even give me a chance. I said, but I, I, she, this woman said, it's hard work. I said, I'm used to hard work. I can do it. Anyway, um, there was, my agent sent me on this interview and I was in a brown Dodge Dart, one of those push button things. And I was chugging up the hill to uh, 20th Century Fox uh, on Pico Boulevard going up to 20th Century Fox. And I was going to for the role that Cynthia had, Cynthia Myers had, the, the not the lead, the second lead. And she, and, and as I'm going up 20th Century Boulevard, there's a big, big sign. And it was Barbara Streisand. And it said, hello, Dolly. And I said, I know I'm going to get this part. Something inside me said I was going to get the part, and I did. I got the lead, and um, it was amazing. It was uh, just amazing. It, they, uh, I guess they wanted fresh face. I don't know, but it's such a shame that Cynthia died. Oh, my God. I was so upset. Cynthia Myers apparently had cancer, and she died. That was so, she's such a beautiful girl. She was a playmate, too. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, that was your first big lead, correct? Yes, yes. We got 500 a week. And how did you prepare for the role? We had about months full of um, rehearsals. We had rehearsals and then had to uh, pretend that we were, uh, that I was playing the guitar. So we had a few lessons on that. And we were at 20th Century Fox, I think, almost every day, the last three weeks. Before that, there were a lot of read-throughs and stuff. And had to learn all the lyrics and stuff like that. And of course, it was fulfilling a fantasy of mine, because who doesn't want to uh, pretend that they can sing so incredibly well and and um, play the guitar and just, oh, my gosh. It was it was such fun. We had such fun. It was just lovely. So we prepared quite a bit for it. There were some things that were left out of the movie. They had me at one point um, dressed as a real old lady that had died in a coffin and uh, doing rap music. And uh, that, that didn't go over too well. So that was left out of the movie. A, this, a deceased Dolly. You had a, a little bit more of a challenge than some of the actresses, I would imagine, because not only are you doing all this, but you also have to speak with an American accent. Yes. Yeah. And my and it was tough because my mother and father were visiting me. And um, even though I don't have an English accent, I don't think now, now and again, when I'm when I'm chatting on, it comes out, especially if, if I'm speaking to an English person. So they had to pretend I was from Boston, uh, who had moved to Boston and whatever. But it was, and then, of course, Russ Meyer said, don't blink. 
before every take, he would say, don't blink, don't blink, don't blink. So every time we blinked, he would cut and he'd do it again. We got to do it again. And but I never knew the consequences of that until I saw the movie and the uh, eyes were like saucers. <laughs> and then, and then, and remember the scene where I'm, I'm teaching um, this guy, the, the old guy, to to smoke grass, and he can't get it. But they gave us pipe tobacco. Now I'm not a smoker. I don't smoke regular cigarettes. I never have. And certainly not pipe uh, tobacco. And um, so they put that in this pipe. It took 17 takes because they showed, I said, you have to inhale it like this. And every time I inhaled it, there was a coughing fit like you don't believe. And uh, so 17 takes it took for that. I said, why don't you put oregano or something? Why don't you use the real stuff, anything, but gosh, pipe, pipe tobacco, awful, just horrible. So if I ever did want to smoke uh, uh, regular cigarettes, I, I wouldn't because of that horrible, horrendous time. Well, yeah, and that's another thing. When you say man, I had never said man before in my life on the movie and I had to keep saying hey man and uh, I, I didn't know that's such an American expression that we never use that in England and um, so it was very strange sounding to me to say hey man it's amazing what that movie does uh, how that movie has stayed current though and and how people I get letters all the time from people that can tell me every line in it and it's amazing it's it's so amazing to me and and um, when i do these autograph shows people asking me write something from the movie and i say like what <laughs> and um uh, but i did i must tell you i did show it to some friends that hadn't seen it that they talked me into this and i really didn't want to do it but they they came to the beach there's about six of us, and the girls were dancing up, dancing. It was amazing. And then Chaz, as ever, um, uh, Roger Ebert's wife, she was wonderful. She had a, a birthday party for him after he'd gone, a, a couple of years after he had gone, and at the Saban Theater in in oh, Saban Theater in uh, Beverly Hills. And I thought I had just seen Dick Cavett there, and it, it didn't seem like a very big theater. But I didn't know they had they had uh, cut some you know, seats out and stuff. But I went to this theater, not expecting anyone there, and it was jammed. It was jammed, and 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 the psychedelic band um, uh, was was playing, and, and and people were dancing, and it was such a hoot. It was so great. I loved it. What was Meyer like to work with as a director? He was a tough bird. He was, oh yeah, he was um, and very tough on me, I must tell you. Um, he would always say, you know, I can replace you. I can replace you, which is not the best thing to say to somebody. And um, But he 
he loved it. I mean, personally, he was a fabulous guy. He took, um, but I, he was, there was a lot of, like a peck and pull wannabe about him. Very um, dominant and, um, but he knew what he wanted and, and you gave it to him. And, um, but I, I adored him as a person. I just, he was a tough cookie. I, I, uh, I got anemic during the, during the filming of it because, I mean, poor boy. But he, he knew what he wanted and he knew how to get it out of you. And, and, you know, when it got the Raspberry Award when it was released and stuff and it got terrible reviews, but you do what the director tells you to do and, and look how it's held up. There's people now saying it's one of the greatest movies. I can't see that myself, but, um, it's, you know, it held up over all these years. It was 1970, it was released in 71, and we're in 2016 now. So something was right. I know that you made a couple of appearances on Match Game. Oh, yeah. Loved Match Game. What was that like? Uh, I'm a huge fan. Are you? Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I did some with Dick and some without. In fact, I'm still getting residuals for $1.57. (laughs) <laughs> I got about 20 of them the other day, and um, I got some for Dick, too. He, they didn't take taxes out of his because he was a corporation. So his were $1.71, and mine was $1.54. That was it. I loved it. I had such a good time doing those shows. And did you ever see Tattletales? I know I've seen some episodes. Yeah, you were on there quite a bit. Oh, yeah. We used to have such fun because we'd start drinking on the first show. And uh, we always, <laughs> and we would always have like um, uh, friends of ours, Bob Newhart and his wife, or Anthony Newley and his wife, or Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. And we we knew them personally, so we would just be laughing and they they would it would get very raunchy but it was so fabulous it was just fabulous and i but i loved match game i'm not happy about the new match game though do you like the new match game no i'm not a big fan no i'm not it's like they're trying to be funny gene rayburn was so terrific all the people on the show i guess they'd been in their characters for so long but they were all fabulous people, and we had m- m- lots of laughs. And by the fifth show, we were all in our cups. <laughs> I wondered. I thought there might have been yeah. a, a little bit of drinking out there. Yeah. Oh, yes. Because you do five shows in one day, and and it's it's just lots of laughs. If it's not fun, why do it? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, Dolly, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been terrific. You are so welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you, Mike. And um, I hope I see you on Facebook. I turn my eyes to lunatic skies of red destruction, sunrise and morning empty. Hide my head. I've got to find a direction to follow. Something I borrow Each day I wait Heavy's the weight on me Find it 
Next up, we've got Marsha McBroom, who played Petronella Danforth. Enjoy the interview. I was curious, kind of how you got into the business. Believe it or not, it was one of those classic situations where I was in high school. I went to an all-girls high school in the Bronx called Walton High School, and I wanted to go to an all-girls high school because I didn't want to be distracted in my studies. And then I had a friend who told me that they had a friend who had a modeling agency called Black Beauty Modeling Agency. And and he thought that I would be a good model. And I was like, I hadn't really thought about that. But I went down and immediately they started getting work for me. So I started out as one of the pioneer dark skin models of the 70s, actually. Now, with a name like Black Beauty, I imagine it was all African-American models. Yes. And it was very interesting because my husband and I just went to the African-American Museum in D.C., and it turned out that one of the book covers that I did is in the museum. So we were screaming, ah, I made the, the museums. I can't wait till I can take my grandchildren there to see their grandma. And, and it's in the section called Black Feminism. The name of the book was called The Black Woman. It was a um, a book of essays by African-American women writers edited by Tony Cade. And then the first cover I did was a magazine called Evergreen. I did a cover for Evergreen. And then... Um, it turned out I did, it was interesting because I knew Wilhelmina and she wanted me to join her modeling agency, but I was very political because my family is very political. So I didn't want to leave the black beauty modeling agency to go to a white agency because that's what a lot of people did and I would have made a lot more money. But I felt, no, no, when we're making it, then we can't just desert the troops and run to another agency. And it was very interesting because I was always going to school and working. So after I graduated from Walton High School, I went to Hunter College. Like I'd go one semester and I'd get some work someplace and I'd have to leave and go back and forth. And I'll never forget, some of my professors were like, why do you even bother coming back? You're making more than we're making. But in my family, it was like, "Uh uh-uh, that wasn't even an option. Everyone was getting a BA degree. So I said, I don't care how long it takes me. I'm going to get that piece of paper. So I would go and do a job and come back to school. And um, it was very interesting because when I graduated from Walton, for example, I was offered a scholarship to go to Grinnell College out in the Midwest. And Miss Catherine Dunham, the choreographer wanted to take me to Paris for six months because um, I danced in Aida at the Metropolitan Opera House here in New York at the Old Met and the New Met with my sister, Dana. 
And uh, so she wanted to take me to Paris. So I contacted Grinnell and I said, I have an opportunity to go to Paris for six months. Can I still get my scholarship when I come back? And they said, yes. But then when I did it, then it was like, oh, no, you didn't accept your scholarship too bad for, for me. So, but in a way, that was good because I ended up going to Hunter right here in New York. So I was able to work and go to school. And who knows, my life would have been totally different if I were out in the Midwest. Because I, I most likely wouldn't have gotten beyond the Valley of the Dolls or a lot of other things that I got because I was here in New York. Well, how did you get beyond the Valley of the Dolls? Well, I was with Agency for the Performing Arts. And I read the description of Petronella Danford. And so when I, my agent thought I'd be perfect for that part. So I dressed as, as I thought Pet should look. And when I walked in the room and Russ Meyer saw me, he said, this is Pet. (laughs) It was like, I was Pet. (laughs) He was like, wonderful. And then I had a screen test. And then he would always tease me because his big thing was getting women with big breasts for all of his movies. And so he said to me, I had the smallest boobs of any woman he's ever worked with. So he said, so you know I didn't just hire you for your boobs. (laughs) 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 But he was always such a gentleman and such a sweetie pie. I always saw him as like a big teddy bear. And he had this little twinkle in his eye. But he was really wonderful. But sometimes we'd have these big arguments on the set because some of the he explained to us, first of all, that the whole point of the movie was to put in every corny line of every movie you've ever seen. So it was a big spoof on all of these, you know, uh, stereotypes of movies, et cetera. But sometimes the lines were so corny, we would have these things, not not just he and I, but I mean the whole cast, like, oh, no, this is too ridiculous. I can't say this. So, But he would let us change the, the, um, the lines as we wanted it so that it would be ours. And it was really, it was a wonderful thing because we were all very young and this was our first Hollywood experience and... Um, I remember like Dolly and um, Cynthia, they were actual Playboy bunnies. So they were into that whole thing of, you know, I'm a Playboy bunny thing. And it was cute because um, I was with Agency for the Performing Arts at that time. And so was um, Dick Martin. And I just found out recently, Dolly, we've just reconnected recently And I always thought that I had introduced her to Dick because um, I knew him and I knew Dan Rowan because of my agency. But she was telling me, oh, no, there was somebody else who introduced him to her. So that was interesting to find out because we were all hanging out together all the time. And she was funny because she told me she came here from England and her goal was to marry a rich American man. And she ended up doing just that. And they were married for 40 years until his death. So that was really beautiful for her. Now, had you played any instruments uh, before you took this role? Well, in high school, I played flute, and I was in the in the um, school orchestra. But for the movie, they actually gave me drum lessons so that I could at least go through the motions for the movie. And it was so cute because 
when we were filming, of course, they had pads on the drum. So then I would just do the mo- the motions, even though I wasn't really, really playing in the movie. But for years after the film, anytime I would go to a club, the drummers would always get up and offer for me to come up to play with the pads. <laughs> I'd say, oh, no, I don't know how to play drums. But then I was honored that they felt that I looked authentic enough that they thought that I could actually get up and play in in a club. So that was fun. You worked a lot with Harrison Page and James Englehart on that. How were they to work with? Oh, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I'd say, as I said, we were all like starstruck being in Hollywood and most of the film was shot right on the lot of uh, Fox because they were going through a big financial um, drama at the time and that movie really got them out of the doldrums but it was interesting because when the movie was actually out the audience didn't really know how to react to it. They didn't realize they were supposed to laugh and have fun with the movie. So I feel it's more appreciated now than it was when it actually came out originally. Because it was kind of billed as like this big sex thing. And it was actually based on the Sharon Tate murders. So that was kind of horrifying. Now people can real and even for us looking at it and hearing all the corny lines and and um Everything about it's so much of that era. That's what I think about it as being iconic when I hear the lines and see the costumes. And even when you think of how we were dressed, we were dressed like middle-aged women. Many times when you think about it, we were a teenage rock band. But all the people who dressed us and everything, these were like old-time Hollywood people. So it was like kind of funny when I look back at it now. Have you seen the movie with an audience recently? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've seen it actually here in New York. And um, it's really funny to see and enjoy. That's what I'm saying now when I see it. And I see the audience really getting into it. And when we it first came out, we were the ones in the back, like, kind of spurring the audience on because people are sitting there not knowing, am I supposed to laugh? How am I supposed to respond to this? You know, it's so crazy. And then and then the Z-Man character, I really see that as um, Spectre because when you think about it, he ended up killing a poor woman in his house. So it, it's it's been a kind of weird movie because... I thank God my character, the whole thing with Russ, he said that Americans are so prudish that if you go over the line, you have to die before the movie's over. But because I transgress, but then I begged for forgiveness, that's why I just got shot in the shoulder and I didn't get killed. <laughs> So it was really wild that he took it to that length, you know, in terms of dealing with the American psyche and, you know, who had to be dealt with in what way. And another joke that he had was having people with love scenes in very uncomfortable situations. For example, being in the hay is very, very painful because they... The straws, like in like needles, or on a you know 
um, springs of a bed. So he, that was part of the joke, too, in his, his whole scenario of having people making this passionate love but in very uncomfortable situations but making it look as if it was so incredible. Yeah, there's nothing like making love in the back of a roll. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Things that are very awkward and very uncomfortable. And even remember our manager says that finally when he says, can't we ever just do it in a goddamn bed? Why do you have to be on the beach and the sand and, you you know, you know, in the back of the road, you know, it's all these uncomfortable, unusual places. What about just a regular scene? <laughs> that you do get that, though, with Dolly in the bed with um, um, our big love guy with the blonde hair. Lance Rock? Yeah. You know, at least she does actually get a scene in the bed, you know, so that was funny, too. Unfortunately, he died. You know, it's, that's another horrifying thing because so many of our characters in the movie are gone one by one, like Cynthia, and then um, Lance Rock, and a few other people have already departed. And then it's interesting because towards the end, I connected to um, Roger Ebert, and it was funny because people were always asking me, did you see him on the set, or, and I never did. But then several years ago, I'd say about seven years ago, I picked up the phone and somebody said to me, is, is this Marsha McBroom? And I said, yes. And they said, is this the Marsha McBroom? And I said, yes. And they said, well, I'm calling from the University of Southern Illinois in Champlain, Illinois, and I'm calling on behalf of Roger Ebert, and he'd like to know if you could come out with a guest to his overlooked film festival. And I said, yeah, that would be exciting. So Roger invited my husband and me out to um, Illinois, and he gave me a thumbs-up award for my from my role in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And then after that, we were in communication by email until the time of his death. So that was very special because it's funny because we had this great week of seeing all kinds of incredible movies and we ended up having um, a breakfast with him just before we left with the heads of the college and um, Herzog the filmmaker and it was like Werner Herzog will be here for the breakfast could you please come and we were like Werner (laughs) and then since then I've seen some of his movies and I see how extraordinary he is as a filmmaker and it's like oh my god so my husband and I always laugh you know remember we had breakfast with Roger Ebert and Werner Herzog. (laughs) Yeah, it was really wonderful. Had you done much acting before Valley of the Dolls? What happened was I was taking private acting lessons and I I also studied with um, the director of a um, company here in New York and I did plays. So I did, for example, um, Blues for Mr. Charlie and different plays here in New York. 
And I did some extra work. This is funny because I did an extra piece on it in a movie called um, Cotton Comes to Harlem that starred Red Fox. But that was just my first experience being on a set, a movie set, and seeing how, and I was studying in between. So here I am with my books under my table studying because movies, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. So I would just take everything very much in stride. And so Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is like my first big movie thing. And then I ended up after that doing Jesus Christ Superstar. In, and we were in Israel for four and a half months. Yeah. And so that was funny because everybody there was like going through all kinds of changes to get their cameras, you know, be in front of the camera. But for me at that point, it was like, listen, we're here as one of the apostle girls dancing in the Negev desert. And as long as my name is on that screen means I'll get some residuals. And so I'm not going to fight with people to be in front of the camera. And my husband and I, a few months ago, ended up seeing that. And that was the first time I'd seen that movie on a big screen, which is wild. And I was like, wow, I was shocked to see how many times I was right there in front of your face. And I wasn't even, you know, fighting to get in front of the camera. So that was fun to see um, Norman Jewison after all these years. And it was like, oh, Marsha. And that even remembered my name. It was like, wow, this is exciting. This is fun. Was that in New York City? Yeah, because um, I was doing, um, it was very cute because I was signing autographs in New Jersey at the Chiller Theater thing. They have this thing, Chiller Theater. And um, Dolly and I were there doing that. And then it turned out they were doing a reunion for... Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. So I was like, wow, I didn't know they were there. They didn't know I was there. So someone came over to my table and said, Marsha McBroom. And I said, yes. He said, Jesus would like to speak to you. (laughs) So everyone looked around and then burst out laughing because it was Ted Neely. (laughs) It was so cute. Jesus would like to speak to you. So you have to take all of this stuff with a grain of salt and a bit of humor. And um, and it was funny because when we were doing Superstar, they were filming Myra Breckenridge, and that was supposed to be the big film. And I haven't heard a word about that since. But the thing that was so shocking was the director of that film was at our cast party at the end, and he just walked up to me very casually and told me how he'd been looking at me for the whole time that we were filming, and he just wanted me to know that he'd like to F me, but he used the word out. And I was, in my heart, I was like shocked, because I was like, oh, these people in California are so vulgar and crude. How can a man come up to a woman and say something that horrifying? But I was like trying to be very cool, and I didn't show any big reaction, you know, to him. But I was like totally freaked out, like, what the hell? I have to get back to New York City. This is too much for me. And then it was so cute because I went to this club once, and... um 
I don't even remember what, if this were his acting name or his real name, Jack Diamond. He had the, he had some famous show that was on. And it, that was cute, though, because I had a drink, and he took a sip out of my glass, and then he looked at me, and he said, we drank from the same glass. That makes us more than just friends. <laughs> <laughs> You know, all these things, and here I was just, you know, really young and very protected, and then being thrown into this kind of world of debauchery, I was like, oh my God, this is really wild. Yeah. And then I didn't know how to drive, so Cynthia used to pick me up every morning to take me to the set, and she was a real rascal. So we would be at a stop sign and she'd start flirting at the guys in the next car and then zoom off, you know, when the light changed. And we went to a party once and she walks into the room and she whispers to me, oh, would you believe there's 32 men in this room and I've gone to bed with 31 of them. And I only missed the last one because he was out of town. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh my lord, have mercy! What the hell? And remind, and mind you, this is pre-AIDS, so it's like a total free for all, totally crazy. And then before it was all over, there was a rumor that Cynthia and I had something going, just because she took me to work every morning. And it was like, oh, my Lord. And then to make matters more exciting, Pam Greer and I were roommates at the time because she was with uh, Agency for the Performing Arts also. So here we were sharing a house that they had up in the Hollywood Hills. So I would open the door, and here's Wilt Chamberlain there to take her out or the heir to the Disney fortune, you know, it was like totally crazy. <laughs> and because um, somebody called me and said that um, they had asked her how come she got into the party scene of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and she said, oh, because Marcia was my roommate, and they were having the party scene, so she asked me to come with her to the set that day, so they put her in the scene, and that's how she got in. It was just so, so crazy. So much fun. Yeah. But then we got screwed because um, here it is. We don't get any residuals for the film. And here it's gone all around the world. And it's in DVD, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't get anything for that. And meanwhile, other films that I've just been featured in or whatever, I'll get a little check every now and then. For, for Bingo Long and the Traveling All-Stars or Comeback Charleston Blue and other films that I've been in. And yet here, my big, big thing, Beyond the Valley, I get not basically nothing. Well, whatever the contract was that they arranged to give people residuals, it was like, I think it came out like six months after our film came out. So I still think that's really a bummer because we really put put them back on the map with that movie. Yeah, but you see, this is the whole thing of exploiting workers. Okay, so that was that early SAG strike back in the 70s. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah. 
and it's a shame because here so many people are making so much money from that film, even up till today. And for example, I even at one of the shows that I did, I ended up buying a poster, which I had been looking for for a long time, of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls in Japanese. So they've translated into Japanese. My mom and my little sister were in Germany, and they saw the poster in German. So it's been translated into several different languages. I get letters from people from Scandinavia and all over the place, Australia, who are big fans of the film. And so it's international. And I'm shocked that after all these years, it still has like a new generation of people who are interested in in it and admirers of it and fans. And I could see now that it would be a big thing for the whole gay and lesbian community and transvestites and everybody else. And when you think about it, it was very innovative, the idea that Harrison Page and I, we were like the middle-class African-American, just even the idea of a girls' rock team that was interracial. People don't even think about things like that. In 1970, how progressive that was, and that my boyfriend was studying to be a lawyer. So there were a lot of very interesting nuances about the film when I look at it now and see, wow, this was really groundbreaking things that were put forth. That's one of the things that I always hear is that you would think that like Hollywood would be much more progressive than it actually is. When you were going out for other roles, did you come across that kind of stereotype attitude? Was it just like, oh, we don't have a black person in the script, so we really don't want to cast you? I have have better news for you because I used to do a lot of TV commercials. One time I had seven TV commercials running at one time because I... I'd always have different looks that I could put on. And so you could imagine how crazy that was to see myself in different commercials and to the point that I'd get off a subway train and people would swear that they met me at so-and-so's party last week. And I'd have to tell them, no, I'm sorry, most likely you saw one of my commercials. And since commercials come on in your home, you become very upfront and personal with people. So it was always in every place I went, people would think that they knew me from someplace. And didn't I meet you at so-and-so's party last week? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. Or walking down the street and seeing um, a album cover or a magazine cover that I did, that was fun. That was really lots of fun. But, but for me, because of the stereotype of like... Um, a whole class thing with African-Americans. There were things I'd go up for that they'd feel, oh, I was too upscale for that. So I'd be pushed out or because I didn't have like a ghetto accent, I'd be pushed out of other things as being too, quote unquote, upscale. Or, oh, this was funny. When I did Legend of Nigger Charlie with Fred Williamson, the football player, They had the nerve to tell me that I almost didn't get the role because it was really written for a mulatta, and I was really too dark. And I said, oh, so now I'm too dark to be a slave? Now I've heard (laughs) everything. So it went to that lane. And and then when we did Beyond the Valley, 
because we did a, a whole feature in Playboy, and I would just let them take a headshot of me, and I wrote on my release that they could only use this shot this one time for this one feature on the movie, because I said I did not want them dragging out my picture later on and saying, because of my exposure in Playboy magazine, I'm doing this, that, or the other. And th- and they begged me three times to do a centerfold for them. I'll never forget, they gave me this incredible photographer. He was wonderful. His name was Pompeo Posar. I'll never forget him. And he kept saying, he, oh, my God, I'd be so great to be a centerfold. And I think at that time I would have been their first African-American centerfold. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I don't need that kind of exposure. And it's, and it's funny because later on I did become a high school history teacher. And now with the Internet, that's all I would have needed was my students to find me in Playboy Centerful, my whole life would have been ruined, to say nothing of my own two sons. How did you make the switch from being an actress and a model and all of these other things to being a high school teacher? Well, believe it or not, as I said, I stayed in college. I got my um, BA degree in cultural anthropology, and um, I was working and going to school. And then, believe it or not, in 1984, my mother got arrested in Nigeria. They had a military coup there, and we, I said, Mother, get out of the country. There's been a military coup, and she starts laughing. Ha, ha, I'm an American, and I'm not doing anything. Why would anyone come after me? And that was the last we heard from her for 13 months. She was put in a maximum security prison. Yeah, so I had to just throw everything to the side and get her out in one piece. And so after that, being out of the business for 13 months, my agent that I had at the time died of an aneurysm. Yep. And so that turned my whole life around. So I ended up finally becoming a James Madison fellow and they paid for my master's degree and I went into teaching in a high school. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. Yeah. Can you tell me about the uh, For Our Children's Sake Foundation? Yeah. That is a um, foundation I started, and we have a special project called A Thousand Boxes of Hope. And I send material aid to um, Native American children in South Dakota and Montana. And I also work with other grassroots organizations. So I've been working with um, an organization in Sierra Leone. We have a chapter in Malawi, and I send um, a lot of I send school fees for several children, like twenty children in Malawi, and we send them packages of hope. And in Malawi, what's so horrifying is like the young girls, if they can't pay for their school fees, they end up marrying them off as child brides. And so that's just so horrendous. So one little girl, for example, she wrote to me thanking me so much for saving her because her parents had died. Her uncle sold her off to an older man. And she said it was so disgusting being with this older man 
but she was able to escape because I was paying her school fees now. And, and the uncle and the older man are now serving nine-year prison sentences for child abuse in Malawi as we speak. I also just finished helping a girlfriend of mine who, girlfriend, she's now in her 80s in remission of breast cancer. She has a, yeah, she has an organization called Friends of the Children of Las Calabas, Haiti. I've worked with her for over 30 years, shipping things to the children, and my husband and I have been there twice to visit and she just wrote a, her memoir of how and why she started her group, Friends of the Children of Las Calabas, Haiti. So um, she's mentioned me in her book. And my girlfriend, even Grace Jones, I'm her son's godmother. She's mentioned me in her memoir. So it's very interesting. Everything kind of intertwines with each other. Like I've taken students to Africa different countries over the years to visit amputees, for example, in Sierra Leone. Because I, I, if it were my, if it were in my power, I would make every American travel to other countries to see what's going on around the world. Because we are so insulated here. It just really makes me sick to my stomach. My mom uh, worked at the UN when we were children and she would get invited to different African countries and she'd always say, I have to bring my children with me. So my sister and I got to travel to various African countries when we were little. And as I said, I danced with Catherine Dunham and the Met for five seasons in Aida. And she took me to Paris. I got to live in Paris when I was um, out of high school Uh, for six months. So the little French that I speak is from my living in Paris for six months. And so my whole life has been traveling, but then like Stokely Carmichael was a cousin of mine and and the drummer Max Roach was a cousin and also Connie Kay who who drummed with the Modern Jazz Quartet. He was a cousin. So we were like always intertwined with all of these people. Uh, my mom worked for Dr. King, so when I was a child, I met Dr. King, and I was so excited because they used to have these big fundraisers for him in the armories here in New York, and here it was Harry Belafonte, Odetta, Sidney Portier, all these big P.O., Dorothy Dandridge, all these people were there, and he came over to me to ask me how I was doing, and I was like so honored. I'm like, wow, this is... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and he's coming over to me, a little girl, to ask me how I am am with all these people here. So that was always exciting. Did I read that Malcolm X was a friend of the family? Yes, he was a good friend of my mother's, and he would even send, send her postcards when he traveled. And she just called me the other day to say she couldn't believe it because she's going through all of her papers. She's now 91 years old. And she said she found a postcard that... Malcolm X sent her and that my father had sent her the exact same postcard. <laughs> so she's saying, oh, wow. And they would, she said he would come over all the time and they'd have all kinds of debates and discussions. But I was too young to remember him at all. 
So you talked about your friends writing memoirs. When are you going to sit down and write I know, yours? I know. I keep saying that. You know, everybody else is quoting me in their books or mentioning me in their books, and I should sit down and do it because my life has been quite, quite a journey. And as I said, For Our Children's Sake was really inspired by my grandmother because my mother's family is from Montserrat. And so when I was growing up, I always remember my grandmother having a barrel in the house that she would fill up with things to send back to Montserrat to other family members. And so to me, that whole thing of caring and sharing was always a part of my growing up. And then traveling to Africa to various countries as a child and seeing how people lived and things that we take for granted that other people didn't have, that always, you know, that was always my life's dream to make a difference for people in their lives. And it's very um, touching to get letters from kids who, you know, tell you, my goodness, I'm so glad that you're part of my life now because you've just transformed my being. And if everybody felt that they had a purpose, in this world and that people cared, you know, that would change so many of the dynamics that are going on. And now my my two sons, my oldest son, who's now a musician, a bass player, Jeremiah Hosea, uh, when he was three years old, his father and I took him on a trip to Kenya, and I'll never forget, here we are packing to go away, and he walks into the room with an armful of clothing that he had outgrown. And he said, Mommy, let's pack these clothes because we might meet a child who could use them. And I just had tears in my eyes. I said, wow, you're only three, and yet you're already thinking about reaching out to other children. And sure enough, we did meet a child who could, was so happy to get those clothes. Because I realized that it really makes a difference in terms of how children can see themselves in this world and thinking of others. And then my uh, my second child, Gregory, is so funny because at three, he would go around the house. How, when am I going to Africa? I haven't been to Africa. Everyone's been to Africa. And I said, how many American three-year-olds are yelling about when are they going to Africa? So, of course, they've all been now since. And walking through, my um, my husband now, Louis Small, he's a, a musician. He played piano for Richie Havens for 10 years. And Richie was on the board of advisors for For Our Children's Sake. And um, so everything is interwoven, you know, with each other. It's so wonderful. And my whole idea with For Our Children's Sake was the idea of using the arts to be um, a bridge between people because through the arts we can connect with each other because it's a universal world. I have two sisters, for example, who are incredible rock singers, Lorelai McBroom and Durga McBroom, and they have gone on world tours with Pink Floyd and Lorelai sang with the Rolling Stones and the Steel Wheels tour because Lisa Fisher couldn't perform with him at that time, so she recommended Lorelai. And Lorelai did a summer tour with Rod Stewart. And now the two of them 
sing in these tribute bands, Pink Floyd tribute bands, and they go all around the world singing Pink Floyd songs, and everyone in the band has to say, um, only my sisters have actually performed with Pink Floyd. And so it's been like that our whole lives, always with this kind of in the glitz and glamour. Now, if people want to donate or get involved with the For Our Children's Sake Foundation, is the best place to go to the website, or is there a number? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, Actually, we have a GoFundMe, yeah, and I'll check and see if that's up to date now. GoFundMe, a thousand boxes of hope. I would say that's the best way, and I'll see if that's activated because I know that they go go on for a certain period of time and then you have to like reactivate it or they can also send uh, donations to 347 West 30th Street Suite 2A New York City 10001 and as I said that money every penny of it goes to helping us send these boxes out or paying for the school fees for the kids. I also buy things for them to that they know that they need because each group tells me what they need they can, so that we can send it. Because what I think is so important is that these young people know that people care for them. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. And thank you for promoting my for our Children's Sake Foundation, because I've taken so many children to Africa and sending all these boxes out. It's been amazing. All right, folks, here's John Lazar, a.k.a. Ronnie Z-Man Barzell of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. How did you get your start, and when did you get your interest in acting? I'll tell you when. I was a very, very little boy, and my mother took me to see Lord O's, Sir Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet, and uh, I was taken with the uh, last scene, the sword scene, because I'm a swordsman also. Not at the time. How did you go from seeing swordplay in Hamlet to being a full-time actor? Well, I, I, I studied. Uh, I started in high school. My big triumph was covering uh, the late, great Jerry Orbach in Carnival. That was my first big thing. Then I went to City College and uh, San Francisco City College, studied there. And then um, my professor suggested that I do what they, what my Margaret, who's a retired teacher, calls uh, interdisciplinary. I was able to get a scholarship uh, in voice at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And then I also got into dance, studied uh, dance, because I figured uh, I'm into sound movement and emotion for an actor. So you need all three on some level, being a physical performer. 
And then I was uh, just about turning 21. I was almost flipping a coin. Do I go to New York or do I come to Tinseltown? And the American Conservatory Theater came to San Francisco. And uh, I auditioned and um, they accepted me. I, I was the youngest company member. That's how I started. When did you get into the sword work? Oh, well, along the way, uh, I, I, I was interested in martial arts. I started with foil fencing, western fencing, and went on from there, boxing, eastern martial arts. I'd probably get myself killed in a, in a bar ro- a brawl now, but that's, a, that's another story. Was your first job Beyond the Valley of the Dolls as far as movies, or had you Yeah, worked? yeah. Isn't that something? I started at the top. It's my first film. It's my first film, yeah. Did you have to go through the whole like casting process and all that? Well, yeah. What happened was uh, after ACT, uh, this was in um, 68, uh, I was a guest, a guest professional, even though I was, what, 12 years old, uh, at the University of Hawaii uh, doing Camus Caligula, Albert Camus Caligula, not the Bob Guccione. Right. For right. your fans out there. That was later. No, I'm kidding. 20th Century Fox was uh, scouting for um, the World War II movie, Tora, Tora, Tora. Closing night of Caligula, this nice gentleman came backstage and um, introduced himself uh, as a casting agent for Fox. Not being too bright, I thought it was a joke being played on me. <laughs> I mean, huh? How do you like that starting your career? Uh, and he finally uh, convinced me that he was legitimate. And uh, one thing led to another, and a year later, um, they tested me uh, for it. And somehow I got it. Your performance in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is just amazing. Your energy level. Oh, thank you. Your speed of, of talking and everything. How did you maintain that kind of level of energy as you went into that performance? Well, you know what? Uh, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate that, Mike. Let me hearken back to the American Conservatory Theater. The one thing that they had, uh, the late artistic director, Bill Ball, actually met with, we're back to Olivier, okay? He was teaching um, the British classical Shakespeare of uh, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, and I was lucky enough to be trained in it. So uh, on a technical level, I used that with uh, Roger Ebert's uh, mock Shakespearean lines. Does that make any sense? It totally makes sense. Yeah, and yeah it does That's have it. that. No, no, basically, I drew upon my classical background uh, for that, even though it was mock comedy stuff. It, it felt so lofty but base at the same time. Well, thank you. Really, thank you very much. Yeah, so that's, that's how that happened. What was it like working on that film? I mean, it's such a strange mix of having those Roger Ebert lines and then having Russ Meyer as a director and this being his first big budget movie and your first movie well it was great i had i had a a great uh a great time with it i loved the script i thought i i thought that uh, my character was just i couldn't believe it you know my first time out getting such a part russ uh he left you alone if there wasn't some any kind of problem he uh, at least trusted me dubious reasons but it seemed to uh, work out he was you know he was a cameraman himself so he came from that that approach. You know, some people are uh, actors, directors. Some people are more uh, 
you know, like Hitchcock coming from um, being an editor. He was more on that side of it. He left you alone unless he thought, unless he didn't like something. To me, it's an A picture. We had we had Fred Konenkamp as the director of photography, and he had just finished doing uh, Patton. So we had an A crew, A everything, sound stages, and uh, you know the full uh, studio treatment. So it wasn't like uh, as Russ uh, was used to shooting from the hip, independent uh, kind of things. This was a full studio feature, three months of shooting. Now, I've heard several different takes on the whole idea of your character being a transsexual. Can you tell me what your experience was with that? Did you know going in that that was the case? Yeah, that's why Z-Man, the X chromosome, the Y chromosome, and Z. That was the, uh, that was the joke. That was the punchline. But what happened was uh, I was brought in to meet Russ, and he almost did like a Mae West line about Cary Grant. He, he looked at me and he said, "If that, if you, if he can speak, he's got, he has the part." So they liked how I looked. That's a quote, really. So he gave me the uh, the Borpal blade goes snickersnack, and that that speech before I behead uh, Blodgett. And uh, I asked him. I said, "Well, uh, uh, Mr. Myers, is there anything I should know about?" Because it? it made no sense. It was doggerel, right? out of context. And he said, no, no, go ahead, just do it, kid. Then again, I just drew on uh, uh, the classical part of my uh, background. And uh, he said, you have it. Uh, you just have to test for Dick Zanuck. We all did. And, uh, you know, ultimately, it's, uh, I got the part. Wasn't I lucky? As far as I know, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was a, a really big moneymaker at the time. It's been making money, as far as I know, uh, for 46 years. Yet a lot of the actors that are in it didn't necessarily go on to, you know, huge stardom. Why wasn't this like a catapult for a lot of people's careers? Well, we're getting into the gray and dark area. Uh, the Manson killings, okay? It put a pale and a pall over, uh, over the film as far as a lot of the uh, movers and shakers and leaders of Hollywood were at the time. It's always been popular with the fans. It took until about 1990 before uh, we were really recognized. I knew it when they honored us at Royce Hall at UCLA. And now, now it's a cult classic. There's no negativity to it. Fox also did uh, the Rocky Horror Show, right? After us. They didn't want to uh, release that either. And then there were, there were difficulties with uh, Russ and uh, the head of the studio, Mr. Uh, Zanuck. And so there's, you know, there's a confluence of negativity that was around it. About my, my colleagues not going on, well, some married well. Um, Blodgett uh, became, uh, became an honored uh, screenwriter. Now, how about you? What happened to you after the film? The film didn't do me uh, much good for a while. And then, you know, slowly I came out of it and, uh, and uh, did other films. Check my IMDb. I'm not kidding. Well, I know you worked again with uh, Russ Meyer for Super yeah, Vixens. Oh, yeah, okay. Super Vixens? Yeah. Uh, he went back to his uh, he went back to his pirate ways, and uh, so he somehow talked me into doing it. I had a great... I, I wrote a lot of that, by the way, that whole Super Cherry thing. Yeah, I'm guilty. Uh, yeah, well, that was uh, Russ going back to, you know, free studio. Yes, you're right. I did do I did do a kicker with him. That must have been 
pretty different to do one totally, of his. No, totally different. I mean, between the two, the experience of, you know, I'm saying hello to, to Lloyd Nolan and uh, uh, we're trying to sneak into Mae West's film. They're trying to sneak into ours because we had this closed set. Two was shooting on the road. I mean, shooting from the hip. No permits. We're in Simi Valley. Somebody's down the down the road, making sure that the highway patrol doesn't catch us. I guess how, in a way, it was like shooting at Republic Studios in the day before my time. Yeah, it was wild. Out of wild three days. I know you have done a ton of things, and I've loved you in stuff like Night of the Scarecrow and Death Stalker Two, Eddie Presley. What are some of your favorite roles that you've done over the years? Actually, the one that, uh, well, always the one I'm doing. You know that stupid answer, but it happens to be true with me. Uh, have you seen my Alice Jacobs is Dead? I haven't seen that yet. You've got to see it. Award-winning film short. It's a, it's a zombie uh, boomer romantic comedy with my co-star Adrian Barbeau. You know Adrian Barbeau. Yes. Not it's personally, the, but yes. Well, I met her. I work with her. So what? No. Oh, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. Uh, but have you heard of Alice Jacobs is Dead? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, you must see it. I think it's it's Margaret. It's on YouTube, isn't it? I'm sorry about doing this. Alice Jacobs is dead. Is on YouTube. Yes, I Okay. Yeah, uh, we won uh, Comic Con '09 and um, Coney Island and Atlanta and Louisville. It's really it's really hip. It's based on Z, No Brooks' son, Max Brooks. Yeah, we did it before uh, Brangelina took a shot at it. And it's a 22-minute short, and it's really popular. And I'm really proud of that. Uh, a young director named uh, Alex Horowitz uh, uh, wrote it for me, and then we took it from there. And speaking of uh, why he got interested in me as an actor, when he was in middle school, they'd seen Dead Stalker 2. Go figure. So I'm proud of that one. I like them all. I mean, some aren't, you know, the, the, the movies aren't as good, but this one I'm, I'm very proud of. So if you get a chance, Mike, uh, check it out. So what are you working on these days? Well, I have a few projects that uh, are in the works. Also, my Margaret and I uh, have written a, uh, a, 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 a treatment uh, script. Uh, it's a rom-com, uh, romantic comedy, uh, based on a day and a night in, of my loose youth. Uh, back in the early 70s. And I think it, I think I I think it'll be amusing. So um I'm I'm planning to go behind the cameras too. Oh, that's great. I was going to ask that if you've And also I'm working I'm working on a one man show also. And then there are other things, but I I can't uh because they're not finalized yet. I I really can't speak to it. But I'm still around. Now, are you still doing uh theater work? Not at the moment. No. No. I've been, as I said, I'm trying to mount my one-man show. That will be theater. Yeah, you have such a wonderful voice. Have you ever done any kind of voiceovers or radio work? Years ago, some voiceovers. Uh, I plan to do some more. And uh, radio work, uh, well, like what we're doing now, I've uh, mostly uh, uh, interviews, a lot of interviews, especially when we were, um, after we did the uh, DVD on DVD, okay? And... Um, but yeah, thank you for that. This is going to kill my career, right? Is this what this is about? You better be doing some hell of a lot of judicial editing. I'll, that's, a, that's what I'm going to tell you. You were asking about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. I've given so many interviews about it. 
which is fine. I love, you know, I love the film. Like your first girlfriend, it's my first film. But if you saw the, uh, well, what did you think of the uh, the extras on on the uh, DVD on the DVD? Oh, they were great. I mean, it was nice to see kind of behind the scenes. I thought I gave a lot of information there, a lot of the the stories and stuff. It was what was interesting was uh, seeing some of the old time stars in a way on their way out when I first started. You know, I mentioned like Lloyd Nolan and uh, uh, you know Eddie Albert. Well, they're, they're just you go in you go in the Cafe de Paris, the the commissary, and it was just loaded with them. So that was uh, for a young actor, that was quite heavy stuff, you know. Zanuck gave us uh, the best crew, and uh, Conan Camp went on to win the Academy Award for uh, Towering Inferno. He seemed to like me, and so that that was helpful. It's good to have the director of photography on your side, if you know what I mean. And uh, I learned a lot. I had to learn fast, of course. It was extremely professionally done, uh, and uh, it was just. You know, it was it was a joy to do. It's too bad that uh, you know it got sort of a bad name for a while, but those things happen. Yeah, why was that? Why would that have ever happened? Uh, Russ and uh, and Zanuck didn't get along. He had a three picture deal. Uh, he did um, what's that? Irving Wallace's Seven Minutes. But Russ, it, it, Russ is an auteur. You know what I'm saying? He's he really is only he should only and he did his own stuff. He wasn't good at covering something else, somebody else's stuff. And so that didn't help. Um, then uh, trying to put an X rating on it where it shouldn't have been. Even then, you know, it should have been, as they call a hard R. Midnight Cowboy around that time had the same problem. So there were positive influences. The, the, the fans, the audience always loved it and uh, were very hip and got it. Because, you know, it was a combination of a, of a send-up of a satire of Hollywood. It was a horror film. Uh, it was a musical all rolled into one. Which, uh, when I read it, and then uh, I thought that was great at the time. And it's a statement, uh, you know, like uh, Tom Hanks' uh, 60s, 70s, now his 80s on CNN, you know, about the era. In a way, it was a, a statement on what was happening uh, in our country and culturally, uh, the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. We actually started shooting um, in December of 69. And we finished, uh, funny, March of, of 70. So it was uh, one of the first films of the 70s, the decade. You know, Mick Jagger had performance. You know, as I said, Rocky Horror Show. Things were really changing. What was more positive in the 60s, the Vietnam War and all that was was starting to turn darker then, you know, pre-Watergate, all that, that stuff. So we were right there in the 70s on that on that social statement thing. But it was, uh, you know, it was a mixture and I I thought it worked well. Of course, maybe I'm prejudiced. I mean, it, it, it had the whole horror thing. It had the violence. It had the sex. But it, uh, I've always said that uh, Russ was a sexual comedian. You know what I mean? If you really look at his stuff, uh, he's very cartoonish. But, uh, he always reminded me of a cross between, uh, in a comedic, uh, not uh, demeaning him at all. Uh, we got along. I, I loved the guy. He was great. But uh, of uh, kind of a, 
with his voice and kind of how he looked. Uh, he reminded me of a, a cross between Clark Gable and Johnny Carson. Think about it. Either, either that or I need my eyes tested, but there's, it's either one or the other. And he was very funny. You know, he had, he had this kind of leering, dry wit. So he he made me laugh a lot. Was he uh, pretty much in the same mood when it came to Super Vixen? Yeah, I mean, Russ was Russ. What you what you saw is what you received. And yep, uh, professional. He worked. We worked fast and no blinking. Oh yeah, tell me about the no blinking thing. No blinking. No blinking. We shoot it over or cut away. You'll notice, and that's the thing of intensity and pace. Well, I think uh, uh, Michael Caine, a long time ago I read his, uh, his book on acting, and he had a theory that uh, blinking, nothing wrong with it, but from an actor's point of view would, would connote some kind of weakness or distraction if you think about both things. So, yeah, in other words, if, if you notice, if, 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 you, if, if you see someone with their eyes open, nothing else there's a certain intensity there that you don't get when you blink blinking is saying something else overall that was his reasoning how was that to handle as an actor it, it didn't bother me at all because a lot of times i you'll do a scene i've, I've used it later on for a more intense kind of thing uh, just keeping the eyes open maybe a twitch or something but um you know, and sometimes I have blinked and for conscious re- reasons with the character. But it was no blinky, man, no blinky. He, he didn't get on you for too much, but you're just not going to blink. You can call your agent about it, won't work. You're not blinking. Now, how were your other co-workers to, or co-stars like to work with? Basically great. Uh, Dolly Reed and I hit it off right away. We had a great time. That, uh, when I'm, that, that tour I take her on in the film... In my whole career, I, one of my favorite things to do. We just had a great time. Uh, everybody was fine. We were, we were working hard. We were all young and uh, basically well-behaved. Basically. I'll talk a little bit out of school because we've got to get spiced up here a little bit, right? Michael Blodgett and I didn't like each other to begin with. But that's just uh, too young, uh, you know, those T's against the kind of thing. And we made it work and we ended up becoming friends. But there was that, you know, when we were, when we were at the reading, uh, we were kind of sizing each other up. But he was great to work. We, as I said, we used it. We used that tension and then realized that um, we were helping each other and that was fine. Tell you the truth, maybe the easiest cast probably I've ever worked with. Outside of, I will say this, not just uh, working with uh, Adrian Barbeau. Uh, Dolly and Adrian were, I think, two, two of my favorite uh, leading ladies. Their approach, their technique, their professionalism. Now, how was it working with Jaja Gabor? Ah, Jaja. Well, interesting. <laughs> Which means that that's a euphemism. Well, Jaja, uh, uh, she had, of course, her entourage. One of her, one of her uh, Prince Something husbands. I, I couldn't keep track of it, right? I, I've had I've had dialogue shorter than her husband. <laughs> uh, one interesting thing, and I uh, that was her sense of humor uh, in this one regards, at least. Uh, I'll give her credit; she's uh, she's really uh, an animal person, like Doris Day. You know what I mean? 
and she had this little lap dog of I don't know what kind, uh, some kind of like was like all furry, very very tiny, and um, she named him Genghis Khan. Okay, so that's a clue to to Jaja. Uh, I'll tell you, I really enjoyed working. She was fine. She was fine to work with. We're talking about every girl should have one, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you who I really was. This this really got me talking about the uh, the golden age of Hollywood was working with Alice Faye. She hadn't worked in 20 years, and uh, she was a little bit nervous. And I'm going to myself, look it. I remember seeing her when I was a kid, you know, like the Shirley Temple movies. I had a lunch for her when I was 10. I forget nothing against Miss Temple, the late Miss Temple. And I, I told uh, Alice say that. I said, I had a crush on you when I was like a kid. So that didn't hurt our relationship. And I don't mean to be cocky. And, and obviously she was just being nice. I was in my early 30s when we did that. She, uh, she said, oh, you know, uh, Johnny, uh, my friends call me Johnny. You can call me Johnny too, whoever friends. She said, you remind me of Tyrone Power. That was a great leading man. I almost lost it. I still think she was being nice, of course. That kind of made uh, my life. That's basically my answer to Jaja. No, I'm kidding. Jaja's all, she was all right. Okay, I, all right, I'll tell you. I can't tell you who did this because I don't want to get them in trouble. But, uh, yes, Jaja could be a little difficult. I'd be, I'd be lying if I didn't say that, okay? But, you know, no big tantrums or anything. She was being Jaja. Jaja's largesse, and they spy, you know, that kind of thing. But we were coming back from lunch one time and from her trailer we were just hearing her just screaming yelling get the director the whole thing right as it turned out uh, somebody had used her lipstick and on the uh, on the mirror had written uh, George Sanders was gabored to death <laughs> now that's as out of school as you're going to get out of me I don't want, uh, I know who did it, but I can't say. And, and I didn't do it. Was it High Pike? Um, uh, high Pike? You remember High Pike? You want a High Pike story? Uh, this will blow your mind. Uh, we had worked together before. It was right after I had left ACT. There was a play in the North Beach, San Francisco called High Mass. It was written by uh, the then Mayor Aliotto's son. And that's where I met him. We worked together in that. How'd you bring up High Pike? He's not living, is he? Is he he's no, not. he's not. Yeah. Huh? He he passed, unfortunately. Yeah. Did you know him? Uh, I just know his. Now work. that's pretty. No, no, he was a fine actor, uh, but that that's pretty arcane. How'd you come to bring up High Pike? I just knew he was in Every Girl Should Have One. So, I and uh, I he's been on my mind lately because I'm covering uh, the first nudie musical in a few weeks here. So. And he's one of the one of the people in that. I'm glad he's being remembered. Well, good for you, Mikey. You're a good you're a good lad. Remind me to name my last one after you. Yeah, we were all hanging in in North Beach. Do you know San Francisco at all? A little bit. I've only been there like twice. North Beach. Yeah. The Italian section where there's uh, you stand on Columbus Avenue and there's Chinatown. One nostril you smell Chinese. One nostril the other nostril you smell Italian food. That's all you need to know, you know what I mean? We've just done two hours on High Pike. What kind of deal is this? Maybe a whole podcast dedicated just to we, High Pike. Uh, how are you going to interview him? 
Ouija board, maybe? I don't know. Okay, you can go Ouija with it. What the hell? Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Will I ever be able to hear this and not get embarrassed? Oh, Or can I hear it and get embarrassed? Which way are we going with this? How are you editing it? Answer these questions. Am I uh, running on your lines? I'm sorry. This whole thing, I didn't blink. I can hear it over here. You can hear me not blinking. All right, so obviously you want to cut this, uh, this nonsense out. It's been a pleasure. I mean that. Thank you very much. It, Hi, it fucking Pike. Are you kidding me? Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Look what you put in my head. No, we, we, he was a good guy. But we know we go, then in a way, we go all the way back. By the way, uh, I had nothing to do with uh, him being cast in um, Every Girl. So that was a surprise again then. Hey, hi, you're out of rehab, you're not in jail, you're not dead. You know, you have a, a great voice for radio and everything. He just had such a, a strange but gr- a terrific voice as well. Yeah, well, you know, I wish he'd work more. He was, uh, in a way, I, uh, like the, could have been, the, in a way, the Peter Laurie of our generation. Let me know uh, how, you, how this turns out. Secure. Seems you've had a bad affair And now you're acting immature You've gone down so far Next up, you're going to hear from Erica Gavin, who played Roxanne and was the titular vixen in the film Vixen. We're going to hear a lot about that with this interview with Erica Gavin. Where did you grow up? Um, In Hollywood. I was born and raised. And your dad was an actor? He was. He was under contract to Columbia, actually. Then came the witch hunts, uh, the McCarthy era. And my dad was called to testify before the Un-American Activities Committee. And um, because of the kind of person he was, uh, he took uh, the Fifth Amendment. And anyone that took the Fifth Amendment was automatically blacklisted. So he was blacklisted and his contract was dropped. And I had just been born and dad had to make a living. So... He continued to work on his craft, which was acting, by staying in classes and went into, at that time, TV, televisions were coming onto the market, black and white TV, and uh, he started selling TVs over on Western Avenue in Hollywood. 
at a, a furniture store called um, Evans, and that was pretty much the end of his career. He had done about 26 films. You can look him up on IMDb. It's sort of weird. They they identify him as Erica Gavin's father, which is sort of hard to take. I mean, for me it is. It's hard, for, hard to take when he was my dad, you know, and the most important person in my life, my constant, always there. Now, do you think his being an actor kind of influenced you in some of your choices as to go into drama and all that? You know, I don't, I don't think so. I think it was just sort of in my genes, not Sassoon, but my G-E-N-E-S. It may have been in my subconscious, but not really, you know, that's not what motivated me. I think I just loved it, you know. Started in in uh, junior high and high school, and I did summer, uh, it was called the Los Angeles Youth Theater with Gerald Gordon, and um, we did summer plays at LeConte Junior High, and and that was right in the midst of Hollywood there on, uh, I think it's on Gower. Did that in the summer. And uh, just, I remember trying out for the Mickey Mouse Club. And my de- and you had to uh, do a scene from a play. I still have that play, the book actually sitting around here somewhere. Um, my dad was going to do the scene with me. I can't remember if I ever went to do it. I think I chickened out. Or maybe I did go. I don't know. I can't remember. I was in awe of, who is it, Cubby and there was a Karen and Cubby wanted to be them desperately, both of them at once. Did that put the uh, damper on your aspirations or did you pick yourself up and carry on? I carried on. It was kind of odd. I... uh, (laughs) After I got out of school, I was just sort of wandering around in Hollywood and didn't really have any direction and had uh, been living with a guy, and he actually got busted. Um, In those days, uh, he was known as the hash king of Hollywood High. He got busted by the federal government. The only thing they really had on him because there was no actual law against possession, federal, but um, it was for tax evasion. That's how they got you. I was going to have to testify against him, so um, instead of testifying, I married him. And uh, um, that way I wouldn't have to testify, but he ended up going to jail anyway. I was sort of on my own again, and at that point, my mother had sort of disowned me because I left home the minute I could, which was at 17 and a half, I think. I'm not sure how old I was when I got married, maybe 18. And then uh, I needed a job because there was no more money. So I went to work for a, um agency called, this is going to kill you, Brings back old memories. Um, Models a go go. You like that name? <laughs> it's terrific. Yeah, right. Well, their office was just as terrific. I mean, <laughs> it smelled of that paste 
that you put fake paneling up on a wall. That's what it smelled like, like glue. You know, like you walked in and got high from the glue. And uh, I guess that's how they got you to sign up. Um, but, but anyway, I went to work for them. Uh, and I thought it was just fabulous that I'd be earning all this money for what I thought was not much, you know, just, just dancing, you know, until they sent me out on my first job, which was to Oxnard, which is totally industrial part of Los of California and and I guess it's a city in its own to a beer bar with a stage that was about as big I would say it was three by three circular three feet that is and I was in like four inch heels and uh, bikini and topless and had a dance to a jukebox eight hours on um, eight hours uh, 50 minutes on I think it was and 10 minutes off per hour I remember getting home and just crying my eyes out you know it was like the customers were the kind of people that sit in beer bars during the day and I had to be there at like I think it was 12 noon or something like that and worked until like 8 at night and dancing to a jukebox and it was frighteningly scary Um, and then what happened was they said sent me out on a job that was for this nightclub on La Cienega Boulevard, which is restaurant row here, and very chic, or so I thought, and it was what they called amateur night, and this was on Sunday night because the regular girls had to have a day off after all, and so, right, so they would have... um, what they called amateur night and the agency would send over four girls or whatever. It was great. It was like, I only had to dance 10 minutes on per hour for like four hours and earned more than what I earned at Oxnard on a three foot round stage for eight hours. And it was just, it was really cool. And when I finished the, the owner, his name was Pete Rooney, called me over and he said, uh, would you be interested in working here full time? And I said, are you kidding? Yeah, but I'm only, you know, 19 years old. I had a fake ID, of course. And um, actually, I didn't have a fake ID. I didn't have any ID. And this model, the go-go, they didn't care. They just sent me out. And he said, well, I can tell you what to do with that. I, I, we probably shouldn't put anything about his name, but um, anyway, he guided me through that, and um, I started working there. And the name of the club was called the Losers. I don't know if they're referring to the patrons or the the hired help. I'm not sure, um, but uh, it was it was cushy. I thought, you know, here we had a big I had a big dressing room, you know, lights around the mirror you know, four other girls, you know, 10 minutes on, you know, 50 minutes off, four times a night, and then a, a finale, which lasted 10 minutes with all the girls. So I started working there, and it was a very long, narrow dressing room, and you can see five chairs, you know, with lights around the mirror. And next to me was a girl by the name of Kara, 
And on, on my right side, and on my left side was a girl, Bibi, who was a Eurasian girl, who was the only girl that didn't dance topless. She was beautiful and an excellent dancer. But she just danced in a really short miniskirt and uh, kind of like a G-string costume. And next to her was Haji. And then there was somebody else. And then at the very far end was Tura, Satana. So that was sort of my beginnings. Uh, and then one night, Haji said to Tura across that she was getting ready to go on. So she was over by my end and Tura was down at the other end. And she said, hey, Tura, don't you think Erica, just Russ would love Erica? I'm like, who's Russ? And she said, oh, Russ Meyer. And Tura said, yeah, I love her, love her. Yeah, right. Okay. So that was sort of the end of it, end of the conversation. And um, I was at a dentist office waiting to be called in. And sure enough, on the table was, you know, a few variety, variety and reporter you know, lined up, this is Hollywood, after all, you got to have reporter and variety in every doctor's office. So I was just thumbing through, and I saw this ad that said casting for, I can't remember exactly what the ad was, I'm not in front of my computer, but it said something like two Caucasian females between this age, one African-American or Negro or something, and two male Caucasian. And so I thought, hmm, that name rings a bell. I think it did say Russ Meyer, and realized that was who Haji and Tur were talking about. And so I called the number, and Russ didn't answer. Somebody, another gentleman, his name was George Costello, answered, and he said, yeah, sure. Come on over. Let's let's take a look. And so I went on the interview, and he said, "Well, of course, Mr. Meyer is the one who will have final say." But he asked me to read something. I don't remember what it was. And then he sort of blushingly said, "Could I just ask you to remove your top?" I'm like, "Sure. I do it every night anyway. What's the problem?" So I took my top off, and he's like, "Okay." And um, that was that. And I never, I didn't hear anything back for a while. And then I get a call back and um, it's Mr. Costello again. And he said, you know, Russ is in town and he'd like to meet you. So I went and met Russ, met his wife at the time, Eve, who starred in Eve and the Handyman, met Russ. And he was all, you know, how he is, he, or was. He was very gruff, kind of. But inside, you know, it's like all mush. So he said, We'd get, we'll get back to you. You know, of course, I had to take off my top and blah, blah, blah. And um, they called me back and said, you got the part. That was it. And that was the beginning of where it all started. I had actually done another piece of film before that that Models Agogo had sent me out on, and it was for a day's shooting down at the beach, which ended up nothing. It wasn't anything. I think they just canned the film or the footage, 
And it became, after Vixen, of course, Eric's Hot Summer, which had nothing to do. I mean, I had just shot like very, very minimal amount of film. Uh, they took the film and cut in other people, made sort of a story around the film they had shot on me and released it as Erica's Hot Summer, starring Erica Gavin. That was sort of the way it went down. So this is, what, 1967 when Vixen is filming, or early 1968? No, it was 68, 68. It was the summer. It was during my birthday. I was actually on location, 1968, and was released in 1969. Was there any hesitation on your part to do a softcore film at this point? I mean, you you were dancing every night, but was there hesitation on your part to have it on film, have your nudity on film? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think it was, for one thing, I had, Russ had always would screen his last film uh, that he had done right before for whoever was going to be in the next. I knew that it wasn't pornography. I mean, just by seeing, I think he screened Finders, Keepers, Lovers, Weepers. I think that was the film that he screened for us. And, um, and for me, it was really, I mean, something turns on when you're being filmed or when I'm being filmed, when I was being filmed, it, it just, I don't know. It just, you just want to do it all, you know, right. And make the, uh, the person who's filming you happy and, you know, uh, just sort of dove into being Vixen. So I really didn't have any, um, any trepidation in, 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 you know, doing that, I think that's the right word anyway. No, answer's no. <laughs> so what was the shoot like for you? It was very interesting. It was fun. I mean, it was like camping. Um, it was, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the cabin that we stayed in. It was a friend of Russ's cabin uh, up north. I had a room, a bedroom. Russ had a bedroom. And... I think uh, whoever was, people would come up at, come up to the um, the site as they were needed for filming. So there really wasn't like, if it was between the scene was between me and Niles and my brother, they would both be there. I would be there, and then they'd go away. And then if if it was between me and Vincene and her husband, Vincene and Robert and myself would be there. Like I stayed the whole time, but people would come and go, you know, and so it wasn't cut in sequence. I mean, it wasn't filmed in sequence. And uh, it was really neat because I, I've always been one who loves that sense of family. And I think you get that on working on a film. It's like whoever is working on the film at the time they become family. And Russ was definitely dad. And um, it, every night, you know, he would cook dinner and it was usually steak. And uh, sort of everyone would sit around and eat and he'd hold court. And it was really, really neat. Those were good times, good memories. Yeah, but he he was tough. I mean, he would just like it when the conditions were probably the worse, the better. 
as far as he was concerned. The hotter it was, the better it was. You know, the more down in the dirt he could be, the better it was. You know, it was just he loved being just dirty and, you know, groveling and carrying all that, you know, all that equipment over his back and hiking into, you know, the bramble, as he would say. And um, there were some, I mean, it, it wasn't all peachy and fun and easy. I mean, there's, there's one of the, a scene in Vixen where I'm, I'm having a conversation with my brother or taunting him or something. And I'm leaning up against the cabin uh, that we, uh, what was my house was actually where we lived for the four weeks we were shooting. And um, I remember it was probably like 110 degrees and so humid and I could not stop just pouring sweat and every time, and it was just so hot and, you know, Russ just loved that. God damn it. He'd say, God damn it. Wipe, wipe that sweat off your face. I, I want to see it, you know, and he, he was tough, tough, but you knew he was doing it for the cause and he wanted you to be the best you could. And that was how it was, you know, but after doing dolls, you know, which was so much more cushy. Yeah, I mean, you're at 20th Century Fox Studios. You know, you've you've got, like, makeup people. You've got wardrobe. I mean, I did my own makeup on Vixen. I did my own wardrobe. You know, it was just whatever I had with me. And at Fox, it was like a whole other story. And it wasn't as much like a family. It wasn't a family. You know, it wasn't like where you sat around at night after shooting for a hard day, a hard day of shooting. And then, you know, listen to stories by Russ, which were always great. Um, it wasn't like that at all. It was like you came in, you did your, your thing and it took for hours and hours and hours. And there's a lot of waiting. There was no waiting with Russ. You didn't wait for anything. If you, if you weren't shooting, you were hiking somewhere, you know, for the next, you know, setup. And, you know, we did, I mean, shot that whole film in four weeks, whereas I think Dolls took like 10 weeks, something like that. And um, I think Russ missed that a lot. He missed, you know, having, well, I know he missed having total control. And I would say that he missed that sense of family as well. Uh, Your character, Vixen, is... She's just so vicious to Niles. <laughs> what was your relationship like with Harrison Page? Oh, it was great. See, for me, like half of the things that I was saying, I didn't know what they meant. Serious. I really didn't know because where I grew up and with my family, my dad especially, you never, ever said the N-word, much less heard any of these kind of you know, slang uh, slurs towards people. I, I, I seriously, I didn't know what a piccaninny is. How am I supposed to know? So in the script, that's what it said, you know, and I just said it. It was probably with the wrong intonation because I seriously didn't know what it meant. I still don't believe it or not. I don't know what that means. I didn't see it as a racial thing because just because of where I came from and was not really aware of how evil it was. I know I knew that I wasn't supposed to like him. 
And I knew that I was supposed to have issues with my brother. And this was his best friend. And I didn't like him. But I really didn't have, I don't think, the knowledge of what the future implications would be. Maybe that's why it worked so well. I don't know. I might have been more self-conscious had I known how evil I was being to him. You know what I'm saying? I, I think I would have had more trouble saying those lines if I knew really what they meant. From what I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I've read that Vixen was one of the first X-rated films. It is. It is. A lot of people think that Deep Throat was or, or Behind the Green Door or something like that. But actually, Vixen was the first film given an X rating. And I don't know why they can, why, if it was considered more of a real film rather than pornography. And I'm not sure that it, those films were even addressed by the Motion Picture Association. I'm not sure. There were definitely the so-called nudie cuties, like, like Russ's previous stuff. Is it just that the ratings board had kind of finally caught up with these films or like did he want bigger distribution for this film? I'm oh, very no. curious. Okay. No, it was it was given an X rating and I'm not sure what the date was of the the first ratings when they first started doing that. Jack Fellini was the one. As far as Russ was concerned, all the better. You know, I guess it, that sort of qualified him in his the lust for big tits or whatever. But it's kind of funny because, you know, all the nudity was really, well, it was from the waist up except for back view, okay? Because I remember in the scene with uh, Paige, the um, Mountie in the beginning, um, I think I'm running through the brambles naked, but it's only from the back. Russ did not believe that a woman's body from the waist down frontal view was very attractive. He just didn't think it was anything that he wanted to, uh, you know, promote. And, and it was all simulated. It, it wasn't, you know, like behind the green door or like uh, deep throat where that's just, I mean, there was full on sex going on. But Dixon wasn't like that. Was uh, unfortunately, I'm sorry to, uh, you know, ruin anybody's dream, but <laughs> it it really wasn't real. And most of the time, I had underwear on, except for when you know you could see that it was. Even in the lesbian scene, I had underwear on. So sorry to dampen anyone's dreams, but that's the way it was. And um, again, it was very, very hot hot in that cabin and we had lights and it was small area we were using actually the kitchen dining room area there he had that bed with the springs and and I was like really nervous about doing this scene because Russ had told me that he had this friend who was in prison and she had told him that the way that two girls do it mind you do it is if you can sort of picture taking a scissors in each hand and pointing them at each other and then having them connect while open. He said that that's how two girls do it. He did it with his, you know, two hands like this, you know, 
I just, it's just, oh my God. <laughs> just <laughs> thinking of him telling me is just like <laughs> so crazy. But for me, it was like, oh God, I hope this scene never comes. Can't there be a tornado or some sort of rain and that just washes us out? I just don't want to do this scene. I don't I just, and I was so, had built up this, and so I was really, you know, phobic about it. And um, so the day the scene came, started doing it, and Russ was just beside himself. No, no, cut, cut. No, it's not working. This is the most important scene in the whole movie, and God damn it, it's not working. You know, he was just fit to be tied just beside himself. And he kept sending me back to my room. He'd say, go to your room and think about it. Right? Go to my room and think about it. I'd go in my room and I'd think about it. And I'd come back out and we'd try again. No! And he was just beside himself. Just didn't know what... The whole... I might as well thrash the whole movie. Forget it. Just it's trash. You know, it's just not going to work. And then he sent George, he goes, George, go in the room with her and talk to her. So I went back in the room and by this point, I'm crying. I mean, I was just like, oh God, dad doesn't like me anymore. So somehow something came to me, I guess. And I just went back out there and he started filming and whatever it was, was working. It was sort of like I was this deranged being that just couldn't get enough of anything and had to have it and like a vampire almost, you know, and, um, I could tell that it was working because as much as I was like trying to concentrate on what I was doing or not concentrate on what I was doing and what was happening around me, I would have moments where I knew he wasn't yelling and he wasn't stopping the film. And so just kept going and going and going. And I don't know how much film he had shot me, but it was all one take. And finally he said, cut, that's it. And while we were shooting, he was literally, well, Russ always shot up at people. He, you never see him shooting down, which is of course way more flattering for a woman anyway. But, he liked to be on the ground, almost if he could be under the ground with the camera sticking out, he would, that's where he'd be. And he'd be just flat on the ground and with the camera pointing up. And I remember him pounding the floor with his fist. That's it. You know, pounding the floor, just pounding it. And then he went cut. He goes, cut, lunch. I got to change my shorts. And that was, right? and that was it. And he's, oh, Erica, you're, you know, I'm the best, you know. So I went from being the worst, most horrible, everything, to being the best. And it was a great day. It was a good day. It was a good day. He got what he wanted. Thank God I didn't have to do that scissor thing. Jesus, you know, I mean, that's what did it was when he was showing me those scissors with his fingers. You know, I was just like, oh my. God, don't tell me. <laughs> You're laughing. I wasn't laughing, Mike. I was just thinking he must really like to cast you in these kind of lesbian roles with with Roxanne. That's where it went. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think he felt like I could do it. 
you know, and do it well. You know, Russ, in a weird way, had some sort of insight into people, I think, uh, and then would sort of cast them in those kind of roles. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure because it, it certainly wasn't me yet. Some of the sexual aspects turned out to be me or a part of me or whatever, but he really did know how to get what he wanted from people. And I think that's what made him such a good director. He wasn't a Steven Spielberg. He wasn't a Hitchcock. He wasn't, you know, a Laia Kazan or, you know, or a Bergman. But yet, on he, he was a genius in what he did. And that's that's sort of how it was. It's unfortunate that it hasn't, his work hasn't been, um, I don't really want to go too far into this, but hasn't been more preserved and his work hasn't been shared and recognized as it should. You know, we have no idea where all those outtakes from Russ are. We have no idea where all those posters that lined his ceilings, walls, and floors are why his work hasn't been remastered and preserved and put out in up-to-date releases, you know. It's it's a, a damn shame is what it is. I'm sure you know what I'm where I'm going with that. Well, from what I remember, Vixen was a huge hit when it came out. Yeah. And just for the the, you know, anthropological reasons alone, you know, and not to mention that it's a fantastic film, but people should be much more aware of it as far as what an impact it had on the day. The fact that, you know, Russ went to battle with Charles Keating and Charles Keating used Vixen as his platform. And look what happened to Charles Keating. He's such an upstanding, you know, moral person, right? But he used it as his battleground for, uh, what was it, the President's Commission on Obscenity and Pornography. And he used Vixen, and Russ spent thousands of dollars in court with him. And, you know, it was banned in Ohio, and that's where Keating was born and raised, Cincinnati, Ohio. And I, I believe, oh, it was the Citizens for, for Decent Literature. Found, he found the organization of the Citizens for Decent Literature, and he served as a member on the 1969 President's Commission on Obscenity and Pornography. And in the 80s, he ran for American Continental Corporation, Lincoln Savings and Loan Association, and took advantage of... Anyway, so um, I believe to this day, it is still banned in, in Ohio. Crazy. But um, Russ hated him, just hated him. So, yeah, you don't see Vixen playing anywhere. You, you just don't see it. It's not screened anywhere. It's not playing anywhere. Or it's not offered by anybody, which I believe has to do with personal issues that the person that is running RM Films now has with me. She is not interested, in quote, in promoting anything that has to do with Erica Gavin. And this has been told to people that have tried to rent 
Vixen to screen it. She's not interested in that, so she won't rent it. And any screenings that have been scheduled have been canceled with another of Russ's films put in. One thing before I, I ask you some more questions about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, I have to tell you that I absolutely love your eyebrows in Vixen. <laughs> they were real. Yes, I kind of blackened them and made them go up at the at the end there. But I have very thick eyebrows. My dad did too. But thank you. <laughs> Those are some serious, serious eyebrows. They are, aren't they? And definitely helps give you... An evil look. Yeah, I've been told that Amy Winehouse used my makeup look for her sort of persona. I don't know about that, but but thank you. Thanks. Yeah, it was. And again, this was by accident. You know, I thought it was just great makeup, you know, good makeup job. Of course, I was doing my own at six in the morning in the dark, but there you have it. And I was I guess 19 years old, 1920. I think I turned 20 on location. I would say, and I don't think that very many people would contradict me, that the success of Vixen definitely helped pave the way for Russ's deal with 20th Century Fox and the creation of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, it did. It did. And in fact, what happened was, you know, Vixen was made for $68,000. That's how much his investment was. And I believe to date it has grossed over $22 million. And when it started just absolutely blowing out, you know, and being listed as highest grossing movies at the Loop Theater or this or that, you know, 20th Century Fox took note. And that's when they approached him. And Russ knew that a lot of that had to do with me and my performance, or I'm not going to say new. I said he attributed, I didn't know. And I never felt like, Oh, it should have been me that got the contract. I never felt like that. I mean, but I think he felt that way. And that's why he made sure that I got a role. He actually wanted me to play one of the girls uh, in the band, but After seeing Vixen, it was my first time seeing myself on screen. We never saw ourselves, myself, during dailies or anything like that. My first view of the film was actually at the screening. Oh, wow. And I think I went into some sort of shock seeing myself that big, you know, meaning not seeing myself that big up close and, and, I became anorexic from seeing myself like that. And I dropped a lot of weight very quickly. At first I became bulimic and then I became anorexic. I figured, okay, if I'm not going to throw, I went into rehab for being bulimic and I said, okay, fine. And when I got out, okay, fine. I'm not going to throw up or take laxatives. Instead, I'm just going to stop eating. While you're making Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, it was starting. It was starting. Yeah, and I had dropped quite a bit of weight since Dixon, probably 20 pounds. I was about 120 as opposed to 140 when I did Dixon. Yeah, you didn't have that much to spare. I thought I did. I thought I had a lot. I mean, Dixon. I had, I thought I felt like I was fat. I felt like I was just huge. You know, everything was like eight times magnified when I saw myself on film. And I didn't I wasn't aware that 
this disorder was creeping into my psyche. I was not aware at all. And all of a sudden it took me, you know, hook, line and sinker and I was there. And so when Russ met with me for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, he was pretty much shocked at my appearance that I had lost so much weight. And that's when he decided I wasn't going to play one of the girls in the band. I was going to play uh, Roxanne. And so I was given that part. But he didn't ever say, oh, yeah, they hired me because of me. He always gave me credit. And that's why he gave me the part in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was because he felt that I had so much to do with the success of Vixen. It was great. That was very sweet of him. Very sweet of him. He didn't need to do it, but he did. Now, you shared a lot of your scenes with Cynthia Myers. What was she like to work with? Sweet, wonderful, wonderful person. Hey, it's so sad, you know. Very sweet, sort of fragile, uh, naive, fragile. She started dating Michael Blodgett, who was uh, Lance Rock in the film. And the three of us were sort of like the three musketeers on the set. You know, we always hung out. And tragically, after the film ended, she became, uh, she started living with Mike, with Michael. You know, Michael used to have that show on Saturdays on TV, the Groovy Show. I don't know if you've ever, it was on the beach or something. Do you remember that? You probably don't. You probably were not even a concept at that point. And um, they started living together and it, it was like uh, Cynthia started, well, the two of them were really good drinking partners and um, got really heavily into alcohol. And we remained friends after the film. And in fact, we would always meet at unemployment on McCadden Way there uh, was where unemployment in Hollywood was. And we all, both, all three of us had the same time. It was 11 in the morning or something like that. You had to show up to get your check. Not like these days where they just mail it to you. And um, you'd stand in line and we'd always, after we got our checks, we'd saunter over to the Formosa Inn on Santa Monica Boulevard, just west of McCadden. And they'd begin drinking and it wasn't like a bloody Mary. It was like shots of wild Turkey, you know, at 1130 in the morning. And within an hour, they were both just raging. And I will never forget this one. Michael went to punch Cynthia and he missed her and clipped me in the jaw with a closed fist. That was pretty much the end of my joining them at the Formosa Inn, but it was it was a precursor to what was to be in that eventually they were living in Benedict Canyon and seeing as how, well, they both passed and uh, sad to say, but um, Michael ended up throwing Cynthia through a plate glass window. It was a big picture, and she almost bled out, sliced her Achilles tendon, and ended up getting 293 stitches in her legs. What is even more incredible, she went back to living with him afterwards, and that's just an addiction. I mean, it's like 
it, it was hard for me to conceptualize that at all, at all. I mean, here he almost killed her. And, um, but like I said, she, she was the most lovely. I easily could have fallen in love with her for real. I mean, she was just an angel, an angel. There wasn't a mean bone in that girl's body. And she talked with a little bit of a lisp that was so sweet, so sweet. And anybody that's had any dealings with her will say the same thing. And she was just the best. There's so much of a, almost a circus atmosphere when it comes to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls as far as what's on screen. What was it actually like on the set of that film? Ah, like I said, there was a lot of waiting. Waiting and standing around. And usually while we were waiting, like me and Cynthia, we'd either, one of two things, we'd either go out and smoke a joint, okay? Or we would go over next door to the set next door, which happened to be Myra, Myra Breckenridge. They were shooting Myra Breckenridge next door. And we'd get on that Bronco. You know, there was no one on the set, of course. We'd get on that Bronco and we'd like laugh and just, oh my God, this is just crazy, you know? And Raquel Wass was here, you know, blah, 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 blah. But like I said, it wasn't, it wasn't that family kind of feeling. Yet, yet we were, or I was so wanting that and created my own little, you know, with uh, Cynthia and Michael and myself. You know, we were a little, you know, cusp of people there. I mean, there were no dinners afterwards with Russ. You know, it was like, and and I know that he missed that part of uh I'm sure he created it, you know, whether it was with Roger or, you know, whoever he went to dinner with that night, because he just, that was, that made it all worth it for him when he could sit around either Nick Adele or Musa Frank or one of his favorite haunts at the moment, hold court and tell old war stories and whatever, you know, or stories about him with a prostitute or this or that, you know, and the dirtier and the grubbier, the better. He was such a character, Mike. Oh, God. Such a character. Yeah. That must have been pretty strange for you to be in that very intense relationship, that kind of familial type thing in Vixen, and then to not only be not the center of attention, which you were in Vixen, but then also kind of removed from that family existence and also suffering from the, the bulimia at the same time. That must have just been terrible for you. I guess it all added, you know, to my feelings of being out of control. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I really missed the fact that I was number one with Russ. I, I missed it a lot, you know, and yeah, it was, it was hard. It was hard. I mean, I, you know, I have this picture of him and me and we're rehearsing a scene and I'm in this white robe and they had pulled me out of um, makeup or whatever to come and rehearse with Russ. And just like looking at him and just so wanting, you know, to be number one again, you know. And it wasn't it wasn't any kind of, you know, sexual. Rela- he never would have any kind of relationship with any of his leading women, you know, not while he was shooting anyway. I don't know about after, you know. And then I have another picture where it's 
me and him and were looking at the script. And and I remember when looking at that picture, how good it felt just, you know, having him, you know, talking to me, just me, you know, that was, that was really, you know, that meant a lot to me. It, and yeah, I guess it was pretty hard, you know. Well, yeah, with him being 25 years at least older than you, it must have just been such a, almost like your your dad's walking out on you or, or yeah. not paying enough attention to you when yeah. it comes to... Which also, you know, I had issues anyway in my own family regarding that. Um, when when I was four years old, my mom got polio and she was pregnant with my sister and uh, she was taken away. She was put into the hospital in an iron lung for six months. My sister was born in an iron lung. And so I didn't have my mom and my dad was pretty absent emotionally because of having to work and then he'd be at the hospital at night, you know, and, um, my grandmother came in from Chicago to take care of me. And, um, later on I found out that, um, the night my sister was born, my dad had to go to the hospital and, um, actually left a note on his bed that he had was at the hospital and he'd be back but didn't realize that I was four and a half years old and couldn't read. <laughs> and I woke up, my grandmother told me this story and that I woke up in the middle of the night, went into my dad's room and started screaming hysterically because my dad wasn't there. So for me, because of my background, which Russ really didn't know any of this, not that he would have been more sensitive or less sensitive. I, I don't, I don't really know that answer, but, um, I, I, you know, I, and when my sister was born, she was born premature. When my mother came home from the hospital, it was all about my sister. You know, all my life, it was all about my sister, um, for the rest, you know, after the first four and a half years. And, um, so yeah, it, it brought up a lot, I'm sure, you know, um, although I wasn't, I, I knew what my longings were feeling like inside. But just like anyone with any disease that they don't want to know about, denial is works wonders. So I, I wasn't as aware. It's interesting what you say. I've never really gone into it until just this minute, <laughs> what I felt like. And um, I'm sure it brought up a lot of stuff that felt very familiar and uncomfortable. But I knew it was different. And I knew that Russ was different and I was happy for him. You know, I never thought to myself, well, this should be me. You know, never did I, I feel that way. I've always had issues with self-esteem anyway. Maybe I should have been feeling like that or whatever, but I didn't. And um, so, yeah, it was hard. It was hard. Yeah, I guess so.
once again, you're going to hear now from Stu Phillips, who provided the music for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, as well as just a ton of other stuff. When was the first time that you met uh, Russ Meyer? I was doing a bunch, some not a bunch, I was looking to do some independent movies, and uh, I got the music editor who was over at Screen Gems opened his own company, and he was doing library music for Russ Meyer's little soft porn movies. And uh, Russ um, had this movie called Cherry, Harry, and Raquel. And he said, boy, I, I sure would love to have a song at the beginning of this movie. And this my friend, Eagle Cantor, uh, said, oh, God, I got just the guy for you. He says he works at Screen Gems. He's in the record business. He does everything. He writes songs. He writes scores. He does films. He says, oh, great. So uh, he introduced me to Russ, and Russ said, I need a song for the beginning of this thing. And I said, great. So at that time, I was friendly with a group called the Peanut Butter Conspiracy. I love the name. They were mainly a West Coast group, but they uh, had some success, and they'd had, a, they'd had a minor hit or something. But they were good. They were, good, uh, they were a good group, and um, I, got, I don't know. I, to this day, I don't remember how I got friendly with them. And so I got hold of the two guys in the group who basically ran it, and I said, uh, hey, how would you guys like to do a song for a, a movie? And they said, what movie? I said, uh, it's called Cherry, Harry, and Raquel. It's a Russ Meyer movie. And they said, are you joking? We're not going to do a porn movie. You know, <laughs> These are rock and roll guys. <laughs> you know, And it's the late 60s, 1969 or 68. And and I'm looking, I said, you have an aversion to do, do Oh, God, no. So finally they said, well, you know what? We'll do it, but uh, we don't want our names on it. <laughs> We're going to change our names. <laughs> I said, go ahead, change your names. Well, I couldn't change my name because that would have insulted Russ, you know. So, um, okay, any, I, anyway, I co-wrote a song for with uh, the guys for the movie, and uh, we made a demo or a record of it, and uh, Russ said, oh, great, I love it, I love it. It's wonderful, it's fantastic, and he put it in, it was in the movie, and the Guys, uh, the two guys who wrote it with had made-up names on the thing. They wouldn't put their real names on it. And uh, I met Russ, and uh, for some reason, he just took a liking to me, and he liked the song. I I gave him what he wanted, and uh, uh, and then Ego said, stay friendly with him because he's going to get a contract to 20th Century Fox. I said, you're kidding. I said, 20th Century Fox is going to put out his crap? And, And they said... No, he's going to make a special movie for them. I said, oh, really? Yeah. And it's going to be a 20th Century Fox movie. I said, well, that, that ain't bad. So I stayed, you know, uh, uh, friendly. And then when Russ went there, he demanded that he wanted to Lionel Newman at Fox. He says, I want Stu Phillips on this movie. And so they said, great. If you want him, that's guess that's it, you know. And they had no argument, and uh, that's how I did Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, and Fox Music Department had absolutely no input whatsoever. It was just Russ and I. We didn't even record at 20th Century Fox. I recorded at a, a TTG Studios in California, in L.A. It's 
spent three weeks or so rehearsing two set of Playboy centerfolds. I said, my God, I got the greatest composing job of any composer in Hollywood. I go to work at 20th Century Fox every day with two Playboy centerfolds <laughs> and teaching them how to make believe they're playing guitar and and bass guitar. So I said, what could be better than that? You know, it was fine. And uh, Russ was... Russ is Russ Meyer. There's no description that covered that. There's no one word that covers him. He's a man of many, many, many things. He's uh, uh, one thing he really was was a brilliant photographer, though. Still photographer. I was curious. How did you put together the musicians for who played on Beyond the Ballad, the Dolls? Just studio guys, plain old studio guys. Uh, I made the playbacks with Lynn Carey of uh, Mama Lion. She's Mama Lion, uh, which was also um, a group, uh, an L.A.-based group. We heard her, and we made a deal for her to do the voices on the soundtrack, and she did all the voices, uh, except for uh, the backup, which I hired Barbara Robeson, who was from the Peanut Butter Conspiracy. And so I got the two girls together to be the three girls, you know, and um, they did, um, Lynn did all the featured vocals, uh, and she and uh, Barbara Robeson did the uh, backup vocals. And um, when we did the soundtrack, we ran into a problem like a lot of movies do, uh, where Lynn was under contract to another label and they weren't about to let her go to go come out on 20th century fox records and so i had to get another singer to replace all the vocals from the film for the soundtrack album that was kind of a that was kind of a mess so the girl on the soundtrack album uh on the original soundtrack album is not lynn carey who did the vocals in the uh for the film but the the uh, that uh, reissue from England of the Yavaria, uh, he I gave him Lynn Carey's original playback vocals, and he put those on the uh, album as a bonus because it was just, it was a pity because the girl that I had to put on the soundtrack album wasn't half as good as as Lynn Carey was. There was a small couple of guitars and bass and keyboard and drums and that's all and uh, those were just for playback and then we sweetened the arrangements of the playbacks we sweetened those with an orchestra for the film and that's what the uh, second singer sang to were the tracks from the film with the orchestra so the Lynn Carey tracks unfortunately don't have any orchestra they only have the original uh, uh, rhythm section However, sometimes if it, it, that original rhythm section with Lynn and and the voices is to me sometimes a whole lot better than the arrangements and everything in the film, the original playbacks. But you know that's my that's my thing. <laughs> did uh, Russ or Roger Ebert have any input when it came to the music itself, or did they kind of give you carte blanche? Uh, Roger Ebert, to my as far as I can know really had nothing to do with the post-production. I never saw Roger Ebert uh, in post-production at all. It was all Russ. Russ did everything. Russ was a one-man, you know, he was a one-man circus. He even threw editors out of the room and says, I don't need you guys to edit here. 
let Fox pay. Hey, tell Fox, collect your Fox paycheck. He says, I'll do the editing here. But anyway, he, um, no, he did not. He was, he was not on my back like any of the uh, producers, directors are nowadays with the composers. We talked about scenes. We talked about uh, mostly he always wanted things to be over the top. If it was dramatic, he says, I want it so dramatic that it's laughable. And if it's funny, he says, I don't need kaha funny trombone slides. He says, I don't want that. He says, I want some kind of a, uh, a mood thing, you know, he says something off color, something different. Maybe you even play love music and it's funny, you know. He he wanted to he he was trying desperately to make this thing into a what he what he did finally make was a you know a put on of of all of these things you know a, a farce yeah and he made it and twentieth uh, century didn't realize that that's what he was making <laughs> and they were so disappointed with this picture they just they refused to even. For years, they refused to even admit that they made it. And the picture took them out of the red. They were in the red at that time, and this picture put them in the black. And But they just refused it until the whole old management got out of Fox and somewhere in the 90s, like 20 years later, uh, new people came in, and they suddenly discovered that, you know, this movie was what it was. And the cult following that started to grow with all of these midnight screenings of the movie, they were taking notice of this and they were saying, you know, what are we ashamed of? You know, like this this picture is what it was and what it was supposed to be. Only the people at Fox at that time, that was actually Zanuck's son at that time. Young guy, young kid. He was the, He was the guy in charge of Fox, I think, at that time. And uh, anyway, um, they finally uh, got around to admitting that this was a 20th Century Fox movie. <laughs> Just so I'm, I'm totally clear on this, because sometimes music and the whole idea of the, the score and everything can kind of leave me a little bit flummoxed. But you are in charge of writing the songs that the Carrie Nations are singing. You're right. also in charge of doing the orchestration of the like the rest of the music, you're pretty much in charge of all the music that we're hearing in the film. That's right. The only person who's in charge over me is Russ Meyer. At the dubbing session of the film, uh, I got to be honest, Russ decided to library a couple of cues in there because he said, I want music there. And I said, Russ, we discussed it. You said you didn't. I, she, he said, I changed my mind. I want it. He says, the way I cut it, I want it. So I said, well, I don't know if we have anything that's going to fit. He said, don't worry about it. And he said to Ego Cantor, who was the music editor, he said, go find me something. You know what I want. And so he did library a couple of cues into that uh, thing. As producers go that I worked with, he was really good to work with. You know, we we discussed and he left me alone. Uh, he didn't even come to the sessions. He didn't show up at the sessions or anything like that. He just like, I got faith in him. I, that's it. And I assure you, if he didn't like what I wanted, he was the kind of man who would have thrown it out in a second, you know. And uh, and uh, he was so, he'd made all of his movies basically with uh, a library or he had a composer. He occasionally, on some of his movies, would have the guy write library music for the film, you know. 
He'd say, well, give me an action thing, give me a love thing, give me a sex thing, give me a this thing. And then he said, and the guy would turn it over and Russ would cut it up and put it in any way he wanted. You know, in fact, he's got credit on Beyond the Valley of the Dolls because one of the library cues that they put in, he wrote. I'm looking at the poster here. You can find it on IMDb. I'm sure they probably have a credit for him on there. But basically, no, I was in charge of the stuff. And as far as the songs are concerned... We had written, um, Lynn Carey and I, I had written all the songs with my co-writer Bob Stone, but one, two songs I wrote with Lynn Carey. One of them was Find It, which is the opening song in the uh, gymnasium when the, the, the dance. And then we had written a song for the two girls in the uh, big lesbian scene with the gun in the mouth and everything. Before that, I'm sorry, not that it's a scene before that. And we had written a song uh, which we made a duet out of Barbara Robeson and Lynn Carey. So it was two girls singing to each other about, you know, love. And um, we had written it specifically for that scene. And uh, everybody, you know, was happy. But 20th Century Fox finally... The music department, Lionel Newman, said, okay, we got a movie here and we need a song that we can put on the air to help sell the movie. Now, we need a record called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And I said, we haven't got a song called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And he said, well, we need one called that so that every time they play it, you know, they're promoting the movie, which was the way... the Record business worked in those days. Russ said, okay. He said, they're probably right. He says, go write a song. So Bob Stone and I wrote a song called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. They loved it, and they sent it to A&M Records, and the Sandpipers heard it, and they said, uh, we like it, and uh, their A&R man, I don't remember who he was at that time. He did the arrangement, I remember. They made a record recording of it, and Fox said, we love the recording, let's use that recording in the movie. So we said, where? (laughs) (laughs) We can't put it on the main title because people are getting slaughtered (laughs) and heads are being chopped off. And I said, it's not quite the place for a, a, a a song called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So the only place we could find that it worked was that scene between the two girls in the bedroom, which meant that the song that Lynn Carey and I had wrote, written uh, had to get um, tossed. And uh, it is, uh, it, it does appear in that English, uh, you know, album uh, uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. But uh, I don't believe it appeared in the original soundtrack. I don't know, I may be wrong. So that's where the song... Uh, took place and then at that point uh i had to actually go in and do a quick session because now i really had a strong theme that i didn't have before because before all the songs were basically so plot oriented you know they they were so concerned with the actual plot that they weren't usable for a score you know and now I finally had this song and this melody, which was usable. So I went in and I did a quick session to uh, for the end, you know, when they're walking on the stream and he's on his crutches. 
and she's running ahead. We always make a joke about that. Come on, slow poke, hurry up, you know. <laughs> but that's where I played the whole Beyond the Valley of the Dolls theme, and then I played it again in in uh, in the area with the um, black fighter and uh, not the fighter, the lawyer, the uh, and 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 uh, the other girl. Uh, and so now I had a theme that I could actually use in the uh, in the movie, but I had to go in and do a quick session. I had already scored the rest of it. You got to work with uh, the Strawberry Alarm Clock on this? Uh, not really work with them. No, they they came in and they used their record and did a playback and sang through playback. Yeah, no, I had nothing to do with them except meet them and say hi and. <laughs> And uh, meet and greet. And uh, since I was basically the music supervisor of the, uh, uh, in other words, I had to be on the set whenever there were playbacks being done because it was my job to make sure the Russ wanted me to make sure the. He says, I want these lip sync on this thing to be brilliant. I don't want it to look like some of those dumb things that Audrey Hepburn did or something. He was saying, he says, I've seen some really bad lip syncs. I want this to really look like these kids are playing guitars and that they're really singing. He said, I want you on the set whenever there's a playback. So I said, okay. So I was on the set. Strawberry Alarm Clock, I had nothing to do with them, you know, with the record or recording of it, except that I was there to make sure that they were doing a decent lip sync. For a lot of years, I thought Dolly Reed was the singer because she does such a great job of lip syncing. Yeah, no, Dolly was wonderful. She did a great job. But she worked hard. And we worked hard. <laughs> And uh, also, uh, they didn't do a bad job making believe they were playing the instruments, you know. Uh, yeah, Russ did some good cutting around it so that, uh, but we managed to get uh, enough things that looked like they actually knew what they were doing. As I said, it was the, well, no composer in Hollywood could say that, that they did what I did, you know. Well, the, the music at the beginning of the film is so, pardon me for saying this, batshit crazy as far as the use of the 20th century fanfare and the Deutschland Ober Alice yeah. and just going in. I mean, just insane. It sets the tone for the film so well. Well, that's what he wanted. He said, over the top. He says, I want it over the top. So he, I gave him over the top. <laughs> it, yeah, it, you, it paid off in spades. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I tell you, it was funny. Uh, after twenty some odd years or something, and I hadn't seen Lynn Carey since that time, and then finally we got invited to this one showing of the film with a uh, panel uh, afterwards, and they invited Lynn and myself to be on this panel and uh, some of the other girls who were in the movie who were still around and everything. Um, uh, the only one you couldn't get was the one who played Dolly. She wanted out of it. She's married to Dick Martin, and she really didn't want this uh, to mess around with this the film. Uh, but the other girl uh, came, and the other the black girl who actually lived in New York City, so she wasn't even out here. But we were on this big panel here, and we answered all these questions, and then we got all done, and they were going to show the movie. And Lynn and I, who hadn't seen each other in 20 years, we said, uh, I haven't seen this picture since we made it. She said, yeah. She said, you know the truth? I never really saw it. She says, I didn't go to the theater on opening night. She says, I've never seen the picture. I said, well, so we stood in the back. 
and we started to watch. We figured, wow, well, we'll watch for 10 minutes. So we stood in the back and watched the whole damn movie, and we were shocked. People in the audience were singing along with the lyrics. I mean, they were sing- it was like, like Rocky Horror Show. People were singing the words. People knew the jokes ahead of time. They were doing all the lines, you know. <laughs> the bartender, you, you want a drink, you're Schwartz, you know. They were doing the whole thing, and we were sitting there and saying, it's unbelievable. I said, <laughs> so I looked at Lynn, and I said, I can't believe that. And that started the whole thing, and then suddenly there were all these showings, and... And we kept, and then there were the conventions, and and uh, it was just amazing that people just took to this uh, to this movie like the Rocky Horror Show, you know. All right, last but not least, we're going to hear from Lynn Carey, who provided Kelly McNamara's vocals in Beyond the Veil of the Dolls. I know that you are the daughter of McDonald Carey, and I was curious, did you grow up in kind of like the uh, typical Hollywood uh, lifestyle when you were coming up? Well, yeah, we lived in, uh, we started out in, actually, my mother told me I was conceived on King's Road above the Sunset Strip. And then mom and dad moved to Mandeville Canyon by the beach, and he kind of helped build that house. And then we moved to Beverly Hills, which was Tinseltown, really. I mean, that was... But initially, Rodeo Drive and Beverly Hills was a horse path going up into the canyons because a lot of people had, I guess, horses up in the hills there. It was a bridal path down the center. That shows really how old I am. But that's common knowledge, so I don't care. Did you want to take up after your dad and become an actor like him, or what interested you as a child? I just was always very outgoing and kind of happy and exhibitionistic, and mom and dad loved games, and there were always people in the business around, and dad loved music and frequented jazz clubs, and I was very lucky as I was growing up. He brought incredible musicians home and they'd wake me up and let me come downstairs and listen and as I got old enough I want and these people were nice enough to let this kid sit in with them and sing and I found out I could sing actually the first person who told me I could sing was Groucho Marx's brother Harpo who lived up the block and he told me I had a beautiful voice and that was kind of incredible, and let's see, Candy Bergen lived next door to us in one of our first houses. We lived in two different places in Beverly Hills on Canyon Drive, which is known as Cannon Drive, because most people don't pronounce the N correctly. It's a Spanish N. Uh, and on Foothill, we lived. But on Canyon Drive, gosh, who was it? That got, was it Johnny Stompinato was killed by Cheryl Crane? By Lana Turner's daughter, right? They lived across the street, and there were tour buses going by after the murder. So I set up a Kool-Aid stand, a lemonade stand, and oh my God, I can't believe what an opportunist I was. 
But I we always put on little shows, the Pharaohs and the Hirsches, uh, and a lot of movie producers and directors and actors. We all knew each other, and all the kids hung out together, and we put on little shows. So I guess it was always in our blood, always in my blood. If memory serves, you weren't even in your 20s yet when you first had an appearance on television. Was it Wild Wild West? Was that your first TV appearance? Actually, no. I think I did something called Divorce Court or one of those shows. It was like a mock reality show when I was 16 and or Day in Court, something really tacky like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, I think Wild Wild West was the first. I did a about six or seven or eight TV shows, little parts, ended up with a guest starring role on Run for Your Life. And I remember that was a really big night. I went to the Daisy with, uh, that was a club in Beverly Hills with Sal Minio, who I was dating at the time. And everybody said, oh, we saw it and it was really great. And Dad loved that I was acting. And I went to... Before that happened, I went to drama school in New York at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, where I met a lot of wonderful people who are still my friends today. And uh, Dad had my picture on the piano, and George Axelrod saw it and said, oh, she'd be great for this movie I'm doing called Lord Love a Duck. And I didn't, they wouldn't accept an unknown as lead, so I got a supporting part. And... I couldn't deal with a lot of... I wasn't strong enough emotionally to deal with a lot of the things that go on in Hollywood. So I thought I'd have a little bit more autonomy as a singer-songwriter. And I went to Topanga Canyon and started hanging out with musicians and met some people and started co-founded a group called CK Strong uh, with a man named Jefferson Cooley. That was the K and I was the C. My original name was Ram. And the guy said, no, that's a terrible name. And then Paul McCartney came out with Ram. But we did CK Strong, and we did some really nice festivals. We did huge festivals in Palm Springs with, I think, Procol Harum and Poco and a whole bunch of great groups. And then we did a gig where we were working with another guy who had this group of Canadian musicians. Named This guy was named Neil Merriweather. And he and I started, I guess I'm very competitive. We started jamming, and he could hit high notes that I could hit. And I thought that was kind of amazing. And he's a real, I think, a master at networking. And we got together and did a jam album called Ivor Avenue Reunion with Barry Goldberg and Charlie Musselwhite. And then we did an album called Vacuum Cleaner, and then he came up with the idea for Mama Lion, for me to be pretending to breastfeed a lion cub. But at the time of C.K. Strong, that's where what you're calling about came in. I was handled by Stigwood Fitzpatrick. And they also handled Cream and a bunch of big groups. And when this movie Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was being made, they were looking for someone to be the voice of the Carrie Nations. And Stu talked to them, and they said, you know, we know this singer. I was singing with C.K. Strong, she's great, and she writes, and blah, blah, blah. And, and I said, look, I've got to write something for the film. That's, you know, I really want to do that. And they so they got me 
as co-writer on two songs. Uh, Bob Stone co-wrote the rest of them, The Stew, and I did most of the lead vocals, and Barbara Robeson of The Peanut Butter Conspiracy did a lot of the background vocals and the other vocals with me, and she unfortunately is gone now. She died of a... I, I don't know, but she died way too young. And a lot of the people from that movie are gone now. It's kind of sad. But then I guess when you get up into this age group, that happens. Was there ever any talk of you being in the film as well as singing the songs? Uh, yes, there was for a hot minute. But I, at that point, didn't know if I was ready for all that nudity. And then I ended up doing Penthouse because uh, Mama Lion was going broke. The band was going broke. And... Uh, Guccione was going to put some of his money behind it, so that was a, you know, didn't make sense at all, but I just wanted to stick to the music at that time. Russ kind of liked me because I was his, I'm built like his type of woman. Uh, he's, he likes women who are kind of pneumatic, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, there's some certain irony there that the woman who is, is, uh, lip-syncing your vocals is in Playboy, and then you end up going into Penthouse. I know, I know. And poor dear, she's uh, uh, Dolly's still around, but Cynthia's gone. Cynthia died way too young. And Michael Blodgett is gone. A lot of people... No, I'm, I'm, I, that's, I'd rather not think about that part of it. I do miss them, though. Now, you actually wrote or co-wrote some of the lyrics to the songs. Was that pretty typical for you? Were you writing a lot of the stuff that you were you were singing already? I got into music because I always wrote poetry. And as soon as I could write, I was writing poetry and rhyming things and writing, noodling on the piano and coming up with poems and song ideas. And, and I wrote the, the uh, lyrics to find it. And another song that wasn't used in the movie called Once I Had Love, they ended up using the Sandpipers, who are a huge group for the, the theme song. But the two songs they commissioned me to write, one was for the one when they play when the guy kills himself, and the other one was for the lesbian love scene. <laughs> so it was quite interesting. What was that uh, experience recording that like for you? Wonderful. Working it was my first time working with, you know, my first recording experience was with CK Strong and that was kind of freeform, shall we say. And but Stu, it was studio musicians and it was you do it right the first time and we're paying thousands of dollars per hour. So you get it done in the first 3 takes, period. And it was incredible. I loved it. I just loved it. There was no, oh, I've got to tune my guitar, or oh, this is not working, or this isn't right. Stu is such a professional that everything was always on the money. Stu was telling me that some of the vocal tracks that you laid down actually weren't used for the movie, that they had to use somebody else because you weren't, what was it, under contract with Fox? No, they didn't use it. They used a sound-alike for the vinyl record, the first one. It's all me in the movie. No, that's when you see that movie, you're hearing my voice and Barbara Robeson's voice. But for the album, there was a contractual dispute between Stigwood and Fitzpatrick split up 
and they had some kind of thing going on where they were going through turmoil and they asked for too much money and I said, I, I don't want that. I want to do this. Stop messing this up for me. But they were into their own thing and they had me under contract and I had no say. So they ended up getting somebody who called herself Amy Rushes, which was a take on amyl nitrate, I think. And uh, it was very disappointing for me and very difficult because I really loved what I did for that movie. And I liked my singing. I loved the way Stu recorded me. He didn't use a bunch of effects. It was just my voice sounding really pure and good. Well, yeah, you just tear it up on so many of those songs, especially Find It. You just... I love stacking harmonies, too, and Barbara was really good to work with. On all my albums, you can hear lots of harmonies, and I, I love to do that, and I'm lucky I have a gift for it and a good ear. Which came first, was Mama Lion or working on uh, the next Russ Meyer film, The Seven Minutes? The Seven Minutes came first, and then we did Mama Lion. What was it like working with Russ Meyer? He was a really nice man and very loyal to people. As you can see, he used me for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and then used me with Neil for the second seven minutes in a little cameo performance in the club doing that song. And there was a, a brouhaha over the song. I think, I forget which one they used. Was it Cream of the Crop or Midnight Tricks? The first song we came up with was Cream of the Crop, and it was Cream of the Crop, the lay of the land, nothing but the best for my old man. And it was cream? Oh, my God. And then they come up with Midnight Tricks. It was about a hooker. So I didn't get how that was all that less racy. But it was fun, and it was he. It was fun working with him. It's interesting, his wife, uh, Edie Williams, was on the movie in a bit role, Lord Love the Duck, that I did before all that. So everything kind of interconnects in life. I forgot that she was in that. I just remembered uh, you and Ronnie McDowell and um, Tuesday Well. Tuesday Well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she was in some, some very interesting movies. Oh, she's a brilliant actress. Yeah, between that and Pretty Poison, just yeah. some great, great films. Yeah, she told me during that film that she would uh, get me cut out of the rest of it after I had my first big scene. It's funny, Billy Vera, who is a huge fan of hers, who is a friend of mine, uh, you know, the singer-producer Billy Vera, uh, he, I gave him, he loves Tuesday, so I gave him a picture of us together in the gym scene. And he said, oh, I bet she had you cut out of the movie right away after that. I said, how did you know? <laughs> well, Lynn, you know, that's what actresses do. You don't let, especially if it's the same kind of physical type as you, but bigger. <laughs> I did want to ask you about uh, Mama Lion a little bit. Was there any controversy around that album cover with you and the Lion Cub? Uh, you think? <laughs> I was thinking... I was thinking there might be. Yeah. I, when Neil first came up with the idea, I was terrified. I thought I was going to get mauled or something. I didn't know that lions got that tiny. He was only a few weeks old. And they actually put pablum on me. So he was really suckling. And we did it at Africa, USA. And it was very controversial. And it, the poster could have made a fortune. 
but the record company at the time, Family Records, was a subsidiary of Paramount, which is a, was a subsidiary of Gulf and Western, and that was around some kind of oil crisis, and Sunshine Records and a whole bunch of other companies were tax write-offs at the time. So nothing really got promoted. Billy Joel was signed to Otter Rip at the same time. And Cold Spring Harbor got released, and the machine was at the wrong speed, so he ended up sounding like a chipmunk. And it was just one travesty after another. But it never got promoted the way it could. It could have been huge. But that week, I think we were banned by the Catholic Church in several Latin American countries. We weren't allowed to go there. And, you know, I mean, that that cover was very controversial. And the penthouse came out at around the same time. And then my father was like, I can imagine, them. oh, it was like, what are you going to do next? Please stop. Were you embarrassing your family? Uh, yes. It was embarrassing to me, too. I couldn't believe I did that. When I saw the magazine actually come out, I was mortified. I couldn't go into a store. I did have one more question for you. I know that you're on the soundtrack for Radioactive Dreams. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, I wrote a song with a friend of mine called, I don't know if I wrote it by myself or with a friend. I'd have to look in my files, uh, called All Talk. And another one called Who Do You Think You Are? But All Talk, I produced in the studio and... Somehow it got around to somebody, and they liked it, and they decided to buy it for the movie. I'm not sure if I wrote it with uh, Rick Braun or Jim Anger. I'm not sure. I'd have to look in my files and get back to you on that. But I do have the copyright forms here. I keep all of that in a big filing cabinet. I was doing a lot of writing in the 80s, and I did. I produced my own album called Good Times, which uh, had a lot of the people from Ollie Mitchell's Sunday Band. Through him, I met some incredible musicians. And he helped me produce the album that I funded and co-produced called Good Times. And then I have a new one that I'm trying to put together the artwork for in the sequencing called Gypsy Lover that has a lot of my harmonies that I love. It's all on SoundCloud. You can listen to it if you're interested. I'm working on new material. And, you know, you never, an artist never, we just kind of, (laughs) we stop writing when we're dead, I think. (laughs) It may not be as popular as it once was, but I don't think an artist ever stops creating. Now, I know you're kind of ambivalent about the uh, social networks and all that, but can people keep up with, like, you or Mama Lion through... I do have a a Facebook page for my music and poetry. Uh, It's the Lynn Carey forward slash Mama Lion official, since there have been so many people pretending to be me. I just put official at the end of it, musician band page. Then there's the Lynn Catherine Carey community poetry page which has which has my poems and artwork on it well i will be sure to link to both of those via my website projection-booth when it goes up and i'm going to be coming out with a book of my i'm going to be reissuing the older i had three poetry chapbooks out but i have to reissue them and 
I'm working on a coffee table book of my poetry and art, and then there'll be the CD of Gypsy Lover and this new CD, which I haven't entitled yet, but I've got about eight songs almost done for it. So I just have to get down to getting the final recordings done. And But doing Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was really wonderful. I know that's what you're concentrating on, and everyone in the movie was a character unto themselves, and they were all good people, and Russ was a really great guy to work with and loved women with big boobies, as you can tell from his movies. <laughs> and a girlfriend of mine who helped me quite a bit, Suzanne Perry, handles the Tura Satana page, which is wonderful for anybody who is into Tura. And all of Russ's women were really great gals. I've done a lot of autograph shows with them, and they're they're wonderful ladies. Well, it is definitely a wonderful legacy to have just that soundtrack, not to mention all of the other work that you've done over the years, and you've done some terrific stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you for calling, Mike. And I've looked at your work, and it's really impressive. You are a master of investigative journalism when it comes to the entertainment industry and cult films. It keeps me out of the bars. <laughs> That's always good. the bizarre and the beautiful. Russ Meyer, the man who knows what to do with beautiful women, now takes them all beyond the Valley of the Dolls. This is not a sequel. There has never been anything like it. 20th Century Fox presents Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. In color, rated X. No one under 17 admitted. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So, like I said, you'll hear more of the discussions with Stu Phillips and Marsha McBroom over at the website projection-booth.com. So, I have to say, while I was re-watching this uh, yesterday and seeing um, Jungle Boy, <laughs> seeing Lance as Jungle Boy, I was reminded of the conversation we had earlier in 2016, how when we were talking about Viva, Annabella's Viva, and that kind of uh, Z-Man character. I mean, there was almost like a Z-Man and um, kind of a portly Lance Rock uh, character inside of that film. And they finally do get to kind of uh, get together in that film, fortunately. They do. It's so sweet. <laughs> and Viva would make, I think, a brilliant double bill uh, with Beyond the Valley. It's, it's, it's obviously a lot more... Um, I think socially conscious, I would say Anna Biller's a, a, a very 
like a very bright, intuitive, um, smart filmmaker. Um, and Viva, everybody needs to see Viva. I, I know The Love Witch is getting a ton of hype, which is fantastic because it's great. But Viva really needs to be equally heralded, in my opinion. Yeah, I am so glad that The Love Witch is getting the love that it's getting. I mean, just to see it end up on so many best of 2016 lists, I was really happy. I mean, that that is tremendous that, you know, because she's a truly independent filmmaker and to have her crack into so much mainstream media, I was just like, oh, thank goodness. Oh, I know. It's it, that gives us that gives hope for everybody. Like, don't give up what you what you love. Ladies and gentlemen, just go keep doing it because it's it's paid off for Anna. We mentioned the Criterion release, and I was so happy to see that Criterion put this film out. Well, I was happy and sad at the same time. I think there's got to be some sort of German word for this where you go, oh, I'm so happy this is coming out on, on Criterion. Oh, shit, I've bought this three times already. What am I going to do? You know, I, I have this film still on VHS. I've got at least two versions of it on on DVD. It's like, do I have to buy this a third, fourth, fifth time? Probably, yes. I mean, one of the reasons I do want to buy this movie is to support the artist because uh, Jim Rugg did the cover art for the Blu-ray for the Criterion release, and Jim Rugg actually did the artwork for Impossibly Funky, a cashier's to Cinemark collection. Oh my God. So I was really happy to see him kind of crack, again, talking about cracking into the mainstream, to see his artwork come up. And as soon as I saw the picture, I was like, that's Jim's artwork. I can tell it immediately. Oh, that is so cool. Well, it, I, it, please, the Germans are the best at like combining multiple words together. We do need a German word for this because I felt the same way because I'm like, holy shit. Because like, the Arrow release, um, Arrow in the UK... Uh, looks equally cherry and on top of that it also has the seven minutes which that one has been probably one of the hardest to find of Meyer's films uh, which is weird because it was his second studio film and his last studio film because it bombs apparently like a big dog but um but it has the seven minutes on top of all sorts of other extras um there needs to be like a non-profit to support us working class cineast <laughs> help us help us get all these special editions <laughs> please well i was taking the task recently because apparently i'm ruining hollywood because i mentioned you know hey it's screener season too bad i'm not important enough to get screeners but thank goodness there are torrent sites out there and this guy oh my god he just tore me a new one about how i am just killing hollywood and it's my fault that you know the studios are closing and that independent artists can't make money anymore so if you're looking oh, for yeah. somebody to blame it has- it's definitely me oh yeah i'm Damn sure it, it has right. nothing to do with the fact that that epic hollywood blockbusters are higher than most countries gdps now like like the way that box office like the way movie budgets have just ballooned or just exploded it's just <laughs> it's horrible like uh, I remember seeing an article from uh, Cracked.com. I always I always have to pronounce the Cracked because if I say Cracked.com, they'll be like, what do you want Cracked.com for? But there's an article that predicted um, like a box office bust in 2018. And it actually did make a pretty good case, I thought. Like it's all the, like these blockbuster movies that are supposed to come out in the summer. And it's like over 50, like. Like, like way more than you would typically see in a summer listing, like summer movie blockbuster. And I thought, yeah, I mean, yeah, like it looks like it's going to crash. <laughs> 
Well, Hollywood's been eating itself for years. If if Hollywood yeah. is destroying, is it's not because of, of of Mike, no, or anybody else out there. It's because you know basically, uh, you know, snake eating its tail. But um, but what is what isn't a snake eating its tail is beyond the valley of the dolls. So everybody out there, support Arrow and Criterion. It, it, for me and Mike, who have already multiple copies of this film, so it may be a while before we get our our sweet Cadillac versions of this of this release. <laughs> I was so happy when I heard that this was coming on a Criterion. Like ever since I saw it, I dreamed about a Criterion release for this movie. The Blu-ray looks great. I'm no expert on restoration or like the more technical aspects of transferring such, but it looked good to me, to um, just an average Joe viewer. I remember thinking it looked very crisp. Oh, I, I can only imagine, because Criterion do, like, such an impeccable job. And, you know, I was revisiting the 20th Century Fox special edition uh, that I have, and that one looks good. I mean, they did a really great job with that one, but I imagine Criterion's going to be just even more, like, souped up. And Arrow, too. I mean, these are two... two probably two of the best yeah, i wonder so. if uh i wonder if dvd beaver has a comparison of these i would not be surprised it would not shock me that is a damn good website all right we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show fantastic planet Special Grand Prize, Cannes Film Festival. Fascinating, a fine adventure story. That's right. Next week, we'll be back with a discussion of Fantastic Planet. You know, we're criticized once for not doing enough animation on the on the show, so... We're going to do Fantastic Planet next week. So before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jordan and Heather. Jordan, what has been keeping you busy lately? I've just been going to school. I'm on winter break. Um, I'm a computer science major. And how about you, Heather? What can we expect from you in 2017? Uh, Well, in 2017, uh, I'm looking forward to having some uh, book projects come to full fruition, knock on wood, and also um, lots of more uh, groovy and great articles uh, in the music and culture section over at Diabolique. Uh, magazine.com uh, and also we're going to be the magazine's going to have its uh, we, we've kind of like held back or 
taken a back set back seat from print, but we're coming back into print in January and we're doing an all uh, Asian themed uh, issue. Uh, I'm doing an article on the ties uh, between the film uh, Goodbye, Mr. Lawrence, as well with David Boy and David Sylvain and Raichi Sakamoto from Yellow Magic Orchestra. So basically sort of an eat uh, meets West with art house and art rock. That's so going to be great. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, let's all put out the energy that 2017 is going to be better than this year. <laughs> well, you know, you must each decide what your life will be. You must always know that a hand extended to your fellow man is a gesture of love. <laughs> love that asks nothing, expects nothing. It is simply there. And if love is in you, then gentle will be all your steps as you walk beyond this valley.
Lately you feel so insecure Seems like you had a bad affair And now you're acting immature I like the grief you give your hair We're going If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.